Let's start the show. We had some technical problems this afternoon. Welcome to my life. Uh, coming up, Pete Dominic will be joining us, as well as Grace Jackson. And uh, I'm David Feldman. Good evening and welcome to the mop up for, is it June 3rd? Yes, it is June 3rd, 2021. <laughs> Welcome to the mop up, I think, for June 3rd, 2021. I'm David Feldman. I hate my life. I, I just hate, uh, I hate my computer. I hate my mixer. I'm David Feldman coming to you trapped in an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in New York City where it's 71 degrees and wet. I don't want to tell you where it's wet. Trust me, it's wet. I'm trapped in New York for the summer. It's become obvious to me that I'm not going anywhere this summer. I am stuck in New York because the only thing more expensive than New York City in the summer is trying to get out of New York City in the summer. Renting a car. Have you tried to rent a car? At least in Manhattan, it's cheaper to buy one. And if you want to stay someplace nice, you have to have a friend who owns or is renting someplace nice. But the only people who have a, a nice place in, say, the Hamptons or Fire Island, they're your, your friend who's a lawyer or your friend who's an accountant, which, which means the price you pay for staying with them is them. You have to talk to them and their friends they, they have friends who are just like them. And, and you have to talk to the idiot kids of, of their idiot friends. Destination weddings. Did you know there's such a thing as a destination wedding? I, I, I'm staying in Manhattan for the foreseeable future. I, last summer, you know, so last summer you get taken in. Uh, for July 4th, and I do mean taken in, like conned into staying with these people on uh, July 4th. And you, f you figure, do it. How bad could it be? You're getting out of the city. What could be worse than being in the city? Well, it turns out being out of the city with your friends. So you go up to the Hamptons, and instead of a holiday weekend, it's a three-day inquisition. From, from the moment I arrive until I sneak out under the cover of darkness six hours later, it's one question after another. Uh, imagine the House Un-American Activities Committee and, uh, and Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn uh, being trapped in an elevator with the entire House Un-American Activities Committee, Roy Cohn, Richard Nixon, and Joe McCarthy. That was my three-day weekend. Well, it didn't turn out to be a three-day July 4th weekend last summer. Just one question after another. Just one. I have no idea if the show that I was working on got picked, uh, picked up or not. Uh, and I don't know how much I earn. I wish I could tell you. I wish I'd remembered to bring uh, my bank statements so you could pour over them and, and discover for me how much I earn. I, I don't know. And, and no, I didn't own the show uh, where I was one of 12 writers on 
No, I didn't own the show. I didn't run the show. I was one of 12 writers. Where did I go to school? I, I refused to answer on the grounds that I, that I might incriminate myself. One question after another. Sure, yes, I would love to read your screenplay. That, that, that's what I love more than anything else when I'm taking a three-day weekend at somebody's house is being forced to read your screenplay because nothing pleases me more than, than spending four hours reading your screenplay than another three hours giving you notes while you fight me on every single note, even though you've never written anything in your life. And, and you fight me on every suggestion. And out of the goodness of my heart, I'm giving you plot points, but you fight me every step of the way because you never wanted me to give you notes. You wanted me to read your screenplay and tell you that you're a genius. So yeah, yeah, let me read your screenplay and tell you that that you're a genius. Let me let me spend this three-day weekend with you hounding me about the story about your grandfather and the lost shoe, which everybody can't wait to to see on the big screen. Yes, please, let me read your effing uh, screenplay so in two years I can settle with you out of court. In two years, we'll settle out of court because Chuck Lorre's Kaminsky method used elements from your maelstrom of cliches as a B story. Somehow you think that Chuck Lorre stole an idea from your maelstrom of cliches and used it as a B story on the Kaminsky method. And I must have told Chuck Lorre your idea from the script because I'm the only one you trusted to read the script. So yes, let me read your script right now. So in two years, you can sue me. Let's do that. You know, I have a better idea. Instead of reading your screenplay, here's my wallet max out the credit cards and we'll call it even why don't we just do that why don't we save everyone a little time and then i have to go to a party next door I, I, yes uh my the people who invited me up to their home and now i'm like this this pony show that that gets trundled out for the neighbors hey i want you to meet david he's the comedian i told you about Hi. No, you you you, you never heard of me. Uh, no, it's impossible. You did not hear of me. Um, I'm uh, I'm like the Bernie Madoff of comedy. I'm very mysterious. Uh, only a select few can actually see my act. It's invitation only. It's a it's a boutique kind of stand up act. I have a a very select clientele. So uh, you you trust me. You've you you've never heard of me. Where, 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 where can you see me? You, you can't. I, I have a podcast, but we're not allowing any more listeners in this year. The books are closed. I wish I wish I could let you in, but we're, we don't open the books for another year. But, you know, I'll keep you in mind for when we're looking for new listeners uh, of my uh, my podcast. John Mulaney's marriage. I, I have no idea what happened uh in John Mulaney's marriage, but give me your phone number. I'll do some snooping. I'll nose around and uh, I'll get back to you. Hi, Colin Jost uses the same surfboard as you. Well, I, I can't wait to tell him that the next time I'm watching Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I have a special television. So when I when I talk to it, uh, Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson get to hang on every word I say. So yeah, I, I'll tell them about your 
your your surfboard. Am I funny? Yeah, I'm hysterical. That's why you have no idea who I am, because I'm so funny. America just can't get enough of me. So how about you? You in real estate? How many people don't get to live in a home in order for you to own this one? The real estate business. Any good? Any good at the real estate business? Or did your father leave it to you because he knows you're so stupid nobody else would hire you? You know what? I think it's because you're so stupid nobody else would hire you. I think looking at you and your wife and your kids and your friends, I think you're an idiot. Let me ask you about your wife. Does she love you for the money or the jewelry? Because it can't be for your taste in art. I've seen dunghills inside a slaughterhouse more aesthetically pleasing than whatever you're trying to pass off as a wall sculpture. Nice pool. Mind if I uh, strip off my socks and underwear and get in there to do a wash? I hate these people almost as much as I hate myself. I, I hate them so much I want to drill a hole in their wall and, and deposit my roommates in, in, you know, and then seal it so they're stuck with my, my, my mice. I want to bring my mice to the Hamptons or Fire Island or wherever I get invited to next and just leave my, some of my mice, I, I don't, you know, the ones I'm sick of, not my friends. Just let them live with mice and cockroaches instead of talking about destination weddings. You know, I have these glue traps for my friends, the mice that I have, uh, that I've laid out. And I, I realize that New York City, specifically Manhattan, is just one giant glue trap. There is no way out of here. I am stuck in Manhattan for the rest of my life. Now, I had a mouse the other night who chewed uh, through his, uh, he chewed his leg off. He got stuck in, in, in the glue traps that I leave out. And this little sucker fought so hard for his life that he chewed his leg off just so he could escape from the glue trap. And I realized that that's the difference between the mouse and New Yorkers like me who, who just can't get out. Now, like the mouse, I'll bite my leg off but only as an excuse not to get out of the glue trap. I, I'm, gonna, I, I, I'm missing a leg. I can't get out of the glue trap. I'm, I'm too weak. I'm, I'm losing blood. Labor Day in the Berkshires? Yes, I'd love to. I, I just can't. My leg. I, I, I chewed it off. Yeah, okay, right. Yes, yes, yes. I can't make it for Labor Day, but I will find a copy of my divorce settlement and send it to you via messenger. Okay, and the bank statements. Yes, bye. I'll send you the bank statements. All right, this is, uh, I'm in a good mood. I'm in a really good mood. Pete Dominic is about to join us. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook, because you know what I need? I need more friends. That's what I need. I need friends. Dan Frankenberger's in the newsroom. We have uh, a great show planned for you, and I'm in a terrific mood. We'll be back. I hope he's here this time. We'll be back with the great Pete Dominic. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. 
He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Let us now go to Rockland County, New York, where the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic is standing by. Hello, Pete Dominic. It is me, David Feldman. It's great to be joining you, as always. Yeah, you were supposed to be um, our previous episode. What happened? Yes, I did. I must have missed a, an email confirmation. Again, the horror I felt. I've, I've uh, established a reputation now with you and your listeners, and it's not a good one. Not a good one. Not a good person. So I screwed up. I don't know. I, you asked me if I could join you. I said yes, and then I just never saw a confirmation if you sent it. Okay. You look great. I feel like shit. I have a very bad cold, which is, a, you know, anytime you get sick now post-COVID, and I'm vaccinated, of course, and have been for over a month. It's just weird. Uh, but my daughter had it. You know, they went back to school. They exposed themselves to people for the first time. And by that, I mean they showed themselves naked. <laughs> and then that, they contracted a virus. Well, I didn't hear what you said. What? What did you say? They they are vo they are uh, streakers, my daughter. No, no, no. You, I, I, you, we what happened after they exposed themselves so they got colds at from high school and they brought them home i think so i think they got them at the school and then they brought them home and they gave they gave them to me and they gave uh, them to you now do you wear masks around the I, house no not in the house no do they wear masks at school yes so it's hard and only one of them goes one of them is still at home my older one in 10th grade is still home but my 7th grader wanted to go back so that she could show her body off is that a problem? It was a problem with me and my daughters. I, I yeah, I, I struggle with it because I I want her to draw confidence from her personality and all of her character qualities, and believe me, she is. She's the most confident young young person I know. But there's it's it's just the the tights and the half shirt. It's it seems like in a it seems like, OK, that's fine if you're going to a club or even a party. But it doesn't seem right to go to school. And she's been what's called dress coded several times, which what does that mean? Better. 
they, they tell you at the school, the administrators, someone says, you have to cover up. You, you've got too much skin showing kind of thing. Now, I had this problem with my daughters. They were starting high school and they found the power of their beauty. Yeah. And I said, and it turns out I'm wrong. And with daughters, if you're lucky enough to have a partner raising your daughter and you're mm. the man, my suggestion is keep your mouth shut. Don't don't get the weird, the weird thing about I agree with that advice. The weird thing else. If, you, if you're if it's if it's a same sex couple, I don't know what to do. But yeah. if it's a man and a woman, let the woman tell the the daughter how to dress. Yeah, my wife doesn't seem to she seems to agree with me, but not want to say as much, which is a little bit strange for our dynamic. You know, she's pretty much in charge and the intimidator in chief. I'm not sure if she doesn't care as much uh, or she just wants to let me be the bad guy. But I would prefer not to take the lead on such gender based things that can fall into a kind of typical uh, historic paradigm where a man is somehow being patriarchal towards uh, any woman in his household or period. But, you know, it, at, at this point, it, it kind of feels like and I've been talking about these issues forever before my daughters were uh, of age and, and developed into women, young women. But it feels like they're going down a road where at some point uh, they will be able to wear nothing. <laughs> and we're still not supposed to say anything like my daughter could say, hey, I'm going to school. And I would say, but you're topless. And then she's like, too bad. You control your body. I control mine. It's like, well, but your, your boobs are out. Your boobs are out. Right. I can't. But look at them if I'm a young, a young boy in, in school. So now you have how many? You have two daughters. Yeah. No sons. None. OK. Don't Assu want any. Assuming assuming that they will grow up to be in relationships with men. We are they told. Are. I'm sorry. They already are. OK. And then so you are the template. You yeah. are yeah. the man yeah. they are looking for. Yes. And that's why they hate you, because that's they want to get away from you. But they gravitate to a guy who reminds them of you and they hate you for that oh my god i'm trying to get away from you and i just fell in love with you get out of my life and yeah i think there could be a lot of truth to that i think that in in my case i'm not sure if they are dating people men like me i, I can't imagine i mean the guys that they have been seen they don't have a lot of choices here where we live, unfortunately, it seems uh, to, to find guys who are as charismatic and curious and funny as I am. But but you live in kind of a Fox Newsy area. You but live in a what? In like a Fox Newsish area. You know, right. like a lot of very conservative families, and so their sons tend to not necessarily be how do you say uh, thinkers. And <laughs> I think that the most important thing I can do is treat their mother a certain way. That's that's the advice I had early. So it's that's hard because when I get really mad at my wife, I really don't want to treat her with respect. But I know that my daughters are watching. And so I have to. And I don't always. I'm not going to sound like I'm perfect. I certainly don't. But that's something that I'm always cognizant of. The, the way that I treat their mother is what they think is how they may expect to be treated. So I, you're I try modeling to, behavior is what you're yeah, doing. Yes. Right. I model behavior. I also lecture the hell out of them, but that doesn't work. I do that just for me. Right. You said the same thing that I said, and it didn't register with them. I said, 
you're first of all, I made the mistake of saying you're beautiful. You're, you're not. Did you know that you're not allowed to say that? I actually have been cognizant of not telling them that. I have always said when other people say they're beautiful, I respond like a stranger in line at the Dairy Queen. I respond with that's their ninth best quality. Yeah, I was told by several women when my daughters were first born, always tell your daughter she's beautiful. The most important thing. A, this, this is what I was told. I'm sorry. Yeah. OK. Yep. Always tell your daughter she's beautiful. So whenever I see my daughters, the first thing I say is, oh, you're so beautiful. I mean it. They're beautiful I because I believe beauty comes from within. Yeah, I, it better I, I, come within. Otherwise, I'm hideous. Well, now I'm hideous on the inside as well. So, <laughs> well, we're not talking about men. Yeah, uh, we're talking about women and, and, and women are have. Uh, society has put so much upon their appearance that it has created all kinds of horrific body image disorders and so so many other things. And so I always try to focus on complimenting them on, on something other than their physical beauty. And yes, beauty can mean many things. It's in the eye of the beholder. But I actually, my younger daughter is so pretty and, and, and not that my older daughter isn't, but we my older daughter is in on the joke. Uh, she, but she has blue eyes, big blue eyes and brown hair. She's a beautiful girl. Everybody talk, talk, tells her how pretty she is since she was little because she had that unique mix. And so I've always done the opposite. I tell her to her face, she's not attractive. And it's kind, of a bit, it's kind of a bit we do <laughs> because so many people talk about how beautiful she, she is. I often say, I don't see it. Oh, uh, it's uh, I, I, you can't win. You know, he, he, he says, I said, I think you look like me. And she goes, um, no, if I look like you, you'd be hot. That's what <laughs> it's hilarious. And so they go off to school and they show some skin. They get yes. into trouble. Yes. I, I'm I shouldn't even be discussing this. I've learned to keep my mouth shut mm -hmm. because I'm wrong. But I have had Dr. Harriet Frada on the show, who is a founding mother of the women's liberation movement, second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. And she has been highly critical of third wave feminism. Oh, interesting. Yes. Like uh, talking about wet ass pussy. Yes. And that she thinks it has gone too far the 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 third wave feminists, as I understand it, thank God we don't have any women here who could set us straight because that would be no fun. Right. Right. What's it's the point of doing a talking about third wave feminism? Yeah. Why, why would I want to talk about third wave? You know, <laughs> uh, but they see their bodies, their sexuality as like our muscles, like men lift weights and they have power and they dominate and that there's nothing wrong with a woman using her sexuality to dominate other men and women. I kind of I understand that. I would do that if I had some wet ass pussy. I <laughs> unfortunately, I have a wet ass. <laughs> I don't want to tell you why. Yeah, I, I think that regardless is it called, of... Your, is that what it's called? I'm getting it wrong, right? No, I think that's right. Uh, who, who sings that? I hate that. I hate that song. I hate my daughters blaring it and screaming it. And 
I, I don't like it. And you know, who else doesn't love it is my neighbors, but <laughs> they're old. They're like 90. Yeah. But I, I, I think that regardless they of your sandpaper ass pussy, go ahead. I'm sorry. We could, well, we could talk about comics. We could talk about anybody, regardless of your, your, your gender, your category, how you identify in any way. I, I kind of, does this too simple? You use whatever you have to get ahead in life, whatever it takes to get out of bed to survive that day, your coping mechanisms, your self-care, if your strength is your personality, your beauty, whatever it is, even your money, you, you know, you, you use what you have and, and whether or not you should, people do. You, you, you use whatever resources and tools you have. You don't take a, a privilege or a strength, let's say, that you have, an attribute that you have and ignore it to so, say, you know what, I'm not going to use that great attribute or resource that I developed over my life. I'm not going to I'm not going to use my beauty. I'm not going to use my humor. I'm not going to I think you use what you have. We're all yeah, different. You know what? I, I, Cardi B. I just looked it up. Yeah, she's the, right. Cardi B is right. You and I saying? are comedians. Let me read you these. Li these lyrics are hysterical. Sure. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass pussy. Make that pull eight. Pull out slow game down, week. Slow it down. Read it slower, if you would. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You fucking with some wet ass pussy. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass pussy. That's funny. It is funny. That's Give funny. Give me everything you got for this wet ass pussy. Yep. Beat it up, N-word. Catch a charge. Extra yep. large and extra hard. Put this pussy right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. This is yeah. funny. Like, like I, I just read about it, and the town elders were clutching their pearls, saying this is. But this is funny. She's just, she's doing what we would do if we I, were women. Hop on top. I want to ride. I do a kegel, <laughs> kegel while it's inside. That's great. That is good, actually. I never heard the lyrics. I do so. a Kegel was spit in my mouth, look in my... If you and I were women, this is something... We wouldn't be as clever as Cardi B to cut, right? But this is what male comics would say. Yeah, Let's for sure. role play. I'll wear a disguise. I want you to park that Big Mac truck right in this little garage. Make it cream. <laughs> make me scream out in public. Make a scene. I don't cook. I don't clean. But let me tell you how I got this ring there. It, it's, you know, it's they're talking back to the pimp. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not horrified by that. And I don't funny. care. And I don't care, really, that my daughters listen to it. it. I just I feel like, well, with music in general, it seems like a lot of the music that they listen to and I'm not. I don't know much about music. It seems very kind of low browed. It's like it, it to me. It seems I, I actually think I thought I honestly yeah. I thought it was low brow until I read the lyrics. Yeah, you're changing it, my mind. Al Yankovic. I mean, it's Alan yeah. Sherman. It's funny. Yeah. No, you're 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 changing my mind on it by reading it. And maybe it's just you reading it. That's changing <laughs> my mind. But it, it is opening my mind up and it is funny. And I, I do have to get a mop for that wet ass pussy that that's funny yeah. imagine i don't like images of I, I don't like violence during sex or or any kind of like i don't like that and, and when she says you hear a lot of beat beat it up beat up my pussy and that kind of thing that kind of thing makes me a little bit uneasy well i don't know what the uh, i don't know anything about I'm probably missing what the what, what I, the I i do know that male comedians yes. have a problem with 
some male comedians have a problem with some female comedians who work blue. Yes. And, uh, but when... I was going to say a lot of male comedians have problems with women. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, And and women's empowerment and liberation and things like that and and sexism, you know, and, and real raw kind of shitty sexism right. a lot of male comics are are lazy thinkers that way for sure yeah. if not actual uh predators right and female comics talking about their discharges and their orgasms and yeah. talking about sex the way men have traditionally talked about it uh some men uh in this conversation have accidentally said uh, well, you know, I wor- working blue. I have a problem with men working blue. You're right. So stay consistent. That's I'm fine. Consi- right. But that's not true because I do enjoy blue humor. So I enjoy all humor. I am right. not in any way uh, a, a snob. I'm impressed with with anything that makes anyone laugh even if it doesn't make me laugh i'm like oh you're making those people laugh that's good for everybody i don't i and i but i understand the criticisms of it and and the critics of comedy and so on but I, i've never been that guy i'm i'm pretty easy going about it i don't feel like i i've never felt like i was great at it compared to other comedians uh but but so i'm always impressed to do it if you fill a room much less a theater or an arena and and i don't you know a lot of people sit there and say you're a hack or you're not a great comic or what i i i that sounds bad. That sounds jealous to me. And it, it sounds I just don't agree with it. Generally. But would you I like agree? All- would you agree? I agree with you. But would you agree that it's harder to write something that isn't about sex? Or yes. It's yes. much harder to get a laugh that doesn't involve farting, coming and shitting. Yep. yep. Yes. My babies. Absolutely. The first thing I mean, my babies, the minute a baby farts. Yep. They laugh yes. when they're born. They know that it's funny. I'd like to think that in a comedy club, people are paying 25 bucks to hear comedy from somebody who's a little more sophisticated than a baby. But God knows my act is filled with flatulent jokes. I think a couple of years ago, my daughter was joking about farts and my wife kind of like scolded her, like grow up or something. And I argued, I was like, no, no, no. No, there is no there's no growing up from flatulent humor. It's always funny. And farts themselves are, are, are always funny, even when they're inappropriate and maybe arguably when they're most inappropriate. Yesterday I was walking the dog and there was nobody out. And so I let one rip that was very loud, like real loud. And then I looked over to my right and there was a woman 10 feet from me weeding her front garden beds. And I was horrified, just horrified so i called my daughter up told her what happened we had a laugh about the horror but i i I think farting is fantastic to talk about think about and joke about i've got no problem with it right i i yeah i i rather not uh with my i had some rules with the kids and the girls and uh i don't want to i just felt it was I don't need to. We burp and we burp and fart. Everybody does here, pretty much. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh... Hey, I had an. Ex- speaking of dogs, I had a, a Pete Dominic experience. 
what's this? You had a uh, dog eat your ass? Yes. No, I was walking through the streets of New York mm. and I saw two dogs playing. And there was this one dog who was the beta. Ah. And he was really happy. He was really, really happy. And the dogs would jump around. But this one dog knew that his default position was to be the beta. And he was happy. And I walked up to these. There were, there were two men talking while their dogs were playing. And I just could not get over the fact that this one dog knew his place in the pecking order. And I walked up to these two guys and, and I said, I wish I was that dog, the, the beta. <laughs> and they go, what? I, go, I, I said, aren't you watching the dogs play? They go, no. I go, the, your dog is happy being submissive my whole life. I've had to be submissive, but I've never been as joyously submissive as your dog. And the guy whose dog that was, was offended. He was like, yeah, oh, what, my dog's on. submissive. I'm going, uh, yeah, you didn't. What? I go, yeah, oh, your dog's submissive. And this and guy was so like, this guy was basically, was like saying, you know, your son's a little uh, light in the loafers. I, I, I thought, I'm going to get my ass kicked. I was giving him a compliment. I said, I wish I could yes. be like your dog. Yes. Oh, that's funny. Ego, even about your pet, is is really, you know, having having your pet's kind of stature, masculinity or something, be, be insulted. I had to get over that when we got a little dog. And, you know, I'm walking. I'd never had a dog in my life. So I'm walking this little tiny Habanese is called. And there were I struggled with that. What did it say about me that I had this little dog? And I I remember coming to this quickly epiphany. I was like, oh, my God. I just started laughing out loud. I, I cannot believe that I would think that somehow it would matter to me what someone thinks about my dog. But other you than, cared. Huh? You cared. I did. And then I stopped. And now I and when I stopped caring what other people thought about my dog, which wasn't long, but when I stopped, I loved the dog more. Like my relationship with the dog became closer when I stopped thinking about what it what it meant about me that I had a tiny dog that was somehow challenging my masculinity. And then uh, shortly after that, something did happen that challenged my masculinity a, a great deal, which is my neighbor came over and told me I was I was weed whacking my my lawn incorrectly. And he stood behind me while I was holding the weed whacker and put his arms around me and showed me how to hold it better. Like it was a little league baseball game. He was teaching me to bat. A grown man put his arms around me and taught me how to hold a tool. That would help you with your whacker. Yes, that was something that I struggle with. And then that night, how, I made, how did your whacker respond to this? Well, I made love with that, that man that night. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So all those concerns were, did he really stand behind you? And just like that. And, and my wife was watching, everybody's watching it. And it, it was challenging for me. Did he tell you to choke up on your whacker? What, what was his advice? I was edging wrong. You have to hold the, the weed whacker, the string trimmer. It's sometimes called at a certain angle to get the edge right, David. Mm. Clearly, you don't know how to whack a lawn. Clearly, I hate New York City. And clearly, I am trapped here because the thought of having a neighbor criticizing the way I weed my wax or wax. <laughs> whack. Did you whack? Why don't you wax your weed? Instead of whacking it, why don't you no. wax? Give your lawn a Brazilian. Wouldn't that be the easiest one of the thing funny to do? things? One of the, the hardest things about being a homeowner is there will always be that guy who will come over and, and have a beer and he'll spend the whole time 
uh, criticizing every little tiny thing about your your home. Did you put that uh, that railing up like that? It's a little it's a little crooked. Or you know what you ought to do over here is uh, and it's just it's all the guys got is advice on homeowning and repairs, and I, it's just like really come on. You, you know, know I, I'm stuck in New York City for the rest of my life. Yeah, in a lousy apartment because the idea of moving to the country or the yeah. suburbs or the, the, it's just it's hours and hours each day of not reading not writing it's hours it's just you're not you're absolutely not wrong about that i love working on my house i've gotten good at it mostly garden landscaping stuff and i'm really into gardening flowers veggies everything but you are not wrong when you say you you're missing out on on reading and writing specifically i tend to listen to podcasts or books on tape when i'm out there in the garden so i can take in information and i try to write some things in my head but that's not untrue what you're saying it's just it's a balance if you could have anything david any kind of living situation is apartment city living your preference i think i live in a shithole and so i don't get up every morning look around and say Oh, my God, that paint is peeling. I have to because the paint is just peeling everywhere. And Your expectations are I'm sorry, what? Your expectations are lower. So you my expectations worry. are lower and yeah. I just keep it clean. I dust, yeah. I scrub, but I look around and like if I got something nice for this, but my furniture stuff I find in the landing near the elevator on the, oh, you're throwing this out. This is that that lamp behind me. I found somebody was throwing this out where I find stuff in the laundry room. If I had nice stuff, it would be like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, it, like one nice thing. Yeah reminds you that you're living in a shithole now you do have a, a really nice display center holding uh, uh, under your tv i'm sorry oh sorry that's a bar stool i don't know what it is i have like a, a flat screen monitor that from another computer for editing that doesn't work so i leave it behind me well, I will say moving out of the city and living, I grew up in the country, lived in, then lived in the city for 15, almost 15 years in, in Manhattan in an apartment and then moved here to the suburbs. And it was pretty overwhelming at first. I had to hire you, somebody. When for, you wake up, do you look at the house and say, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. I got to do that. And yes. when do you stop? See, when do you know it's over for the day? You have to not be a perfectionist. You have to try to get as much done as you can with work and life and your responsibilities at a house. I have a lot and you just it's done when you're done. It's done when you're when you're out of time when you've got to move on to the next thing. But I'm telling you, I, I do enjoy most of it. A lot of it is very satisfying. And you, you know, you're building equity like all the repairs and improvements I'm making will will hopefully help the resale value of this home someday because they're mostly permanent so it, it is satisfying and it does feel purpose-driven but at the same time and i don't i don't want to always be working and specifically you know you mentioned reading and writing i don't know about you but like i have a work-life balance that is easily defined by how much time my eyes are on a screen 
and I'm sedentary. That is a challenge for me to be on looking at the screen and, and sedentary, not moving. So sometimes I'm even looking at my phone when I'm walking uh, or moving. But that that's hard because work life balance. Yeah. How do you get rid of it? I'm trying I, to me. I just want to work. How do you get rid of yeah. the work life balance and just work all the time? Any advice? Well, I, I that's it. I will talk about work life balance for hours with people. I, I find it fascinating. Everybody's different in terms of what they're looking for. But I do have to say I have found work life balance in my life at times for sustained periods that made me feel very healthy and good. And most importantly, as a parent, I, I wanted to be with my kids a lot more. So years ago, I did what I, I call the gamble. And I stopped working at, I was working at three different networks every day, like three different full-time jobs, Comedy Central, CNN, and Sirius XM, and doing gigs. And my daughters are young, and I was making more money than I'd ever dreamt of. My wife was certainly happy about it, but I wasn't. I wasn't. I didn't want that. I wanted actually to be with my kids. They brought me so much more happiness, and they still do. I never complain about time I get with my kids. I actually starving for it all the time. So I try to find the balance so I can be with them and pursue other interests. That's me, but I have found it for sustained periods and felt very good about it. And I'm I'm looking I'm looking for it again now. Yeah, I lost it. That's lost the difference it. between you and me. When my kids were young and they would start screaming at me or just yeah. throwing temper tantrums, yeah. I would say, cut me a check. And they go, huh? And I go, I charge to be screamed at. The way you're talking to me, the way you're abusing me, like cut me a check. Because I this like is that. not fun for me. Is that is yeah. that terrible to say that to a kid? No, I don't think so. I mean, they, do they have a bank account? Do they even have a no, they just... question? It's an empty threat, really. They don't even know the purpose of money at some point. But so no, you got I, to see your daughters grow up. Yeah, I, I was recently looking at a picture of my daughters and I was like, oh, I miss that. And then I said to myself, no, I didn't. I was there. I took that picture. No, I was a, I was I have been with my daughters and been a full time dad and more than any dad I know. That works. But, but weren't you worried uh, that you were spending so much time with your kids one day you would wake up and wouldn't recognize show business? No. Yes. Yes. Show that's business. A what happened? What that's happened a to you show business? I. Yeah, my career. Listen, my career has absolutely, quote, suffered. I haven't done nearly as, quote, well as as other people have because I was so focused on my daughters. But but you, you can't do both. You really you can't be doing gigs on the road. I mean, I was on the road doing gigs. My daughter was six months old. I was finally headlining comedy clubs and I was so proud of myself. And yet I was in El Paso at, at Texas on a Wednesday night. My daughter was six months old. And I said to myself at that point, I love comedy. I made it to the mountaintop, which is headlining clubs. To me, that was the mountaintop. Uh, but I'd rather be a janitor than not be with my kid. She brought me so much joy. I knew I was a good dad. Like I know that I'm good with kids and I know that I would be a good role model and have been for all kinds of kids, including some that aren't my own. I should have been maybe a teacher and I have been a coach and a mentor at times. So I knew that I would be great. And so I cut my career in half. My wife didn't love it. She didn't because the money we were making was so great and I didn't blame her. But I said, listen, this is what I have to do this for me. And I am not jealous of anybody else now who has a better career than me, but not as good a relationship with their daughters. I have an excellent relationship with my girls. Excellent. And I'm with them a lot. 
and they are, you know, they're great young women. I think be, a lot because of the time that I've spent with them. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I think that's true. And I've been selfishly or I've been I feel great about it. I do not worry about the fact that I didn't, uh, you know, uh, diversify my revenue streams more or do more of this or that type of gig. I've done great in my career and I'm really proud of what I've accomplished, but I'm not nearly as I think proud of what I've done as a dad and uh, as a member of, of my unit. Yeah. You can either be a great comedian or a great dad i've proven you can be bad at both which is very difficult i i, I think it's hard to be to be <laughs> good at, at at both those things i think there are guys who have but i think i also knew that i being a great comedian wasn't as important as supporting my family doing what i love which is when i got into audience warm-up and radio and TV and then turned into this, you know, pundit and commentator and analyst. And now I've built a community of, of listeners. And I feel I feel better about that than I ever could with any level of success as a comedian. People, I never felt the kind of reward as a comic and still don't that I do from other work that I've done. That's the it's, difference between you and me. The love from strangers has yeah. always been more satisfying to me than the what whatever I got from my kids and my family, the emptiness. I would feel dirty when my children mm. told me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I, well, I love I you. I, I do love you. Love me. I love you. No, I'm just saying when my kids would say, uh, Daddy, I love you. I go, what do you need? What, <laughs> what, what do you want from me? Yeah, I always, always know good my... to say to your kids. What do you want from me? What do you mean you love me? Well, I, I do something similar, but I don't even get to. She doesn't give it to. I love you. When my when my daughter, Julia, a 13 year old, calls my name, I, I say, what is it that you want me to purchase? <laughs> There's only two things. Do you want me to bring you to a place because you don't have a, a, a license or you want me to buy you a thing? Today, I went and got her vaccinated. And during the 15 minute waiting period, because we did it at the drugstore, she filled up a shopping cart with items of wow. things I've never even heard of. By the way, yeah, I have a, oh, I won't do it. Uh, I was going to uh, make a joke that I'm not going to do. I'm You're not, not making it for my benefit. You're thinking it's not best for your show right now. If it's, it's just, if it's, I, yeah, I just, uh, and people actually believe me when I, when I'm joking around, which pisses well, me that's, off. You're, very, I, uh, you're a very convincing man. And a very a very talented uh, comedic performer. So people believe that I never told my kids that I love them. Did your dad tell you he loved you? Every old man in the neighborhood told me that they loved me. Did you have an old man do anything inappropriate to you when you were younger? Uh, no. Yeah, I, I did. I, I can't even make jokes. What? I had, I had my art teacher uh, uh, give me a give me and a bunch of uh, my buddies at a sleepover. He came over and gave us all back massages. And years and we all loved it. And years later, he was uh, arrested and thrown in jail for uh, assaulting a minor. But it's well, just weird. Back, I mean, I, yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, a back rub. Is not, it's I mean, wildly inappropriate for a teacher to come to someone's a boy's slumber party and 
and rub all their backs. I'll just never forget my buddy Lou going, do me again, do me again. It's like, I don't know if that's right. I don't even think he should be here, but right. Does give a good back rub, but a back rub. I mean, yeah, it's inappropriate. Yeah. It was at a private home. You seem to be hedging on this. No, I'm just like, it's your art teacher. Like, you know, you're trustworthy. Would you eat a cicada? No. Okay. Would you? No, I think it's crazy. Have you seen any? No, I haven't even seen them. Okay. I guess I guess they're south of New York. I haven't seen any. But eventually, we're all supposed to be eating bugs. Apparently, there's a lot of protein. They're good for you. But I just keep seeing this headline come up that people are eating them. I'm a vegetarian. I, I would not oh, eat right. bugs. Right. That's yeah. Right. Uh, you. But you know, I've had I have eaten bugs in the past because I, I go to Chipotle. And <laughs> so. do you have? Do you struggle finding uh, menu choices because of your dietary preferences? Uh, no, because I don't eat out anymore. Ever. I've since the pandemic, I've stopped eating out in New you York City. All, what you make all your own food? Yeah, it's pretty easy to make your own food. I don't agree. Well, if you live in New York City. Yeah. Uh, my stomach does not respond well to food in New York City. Really? Yeah. It, 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 I don't think it's clean. I, I think that it's in your head, probably, right? No, nothing's fresh in New York City. Every vegetable. What? Come on. Everything in New York City comes in through the subway or over a bridge. It is yeah. not fresh. You cannot get good pizza in New York City. Brooklyn, you can get great pizza. Nothing is fresh. I think you've gone off the rails here. And I think your logic is also absolutely ridiculous because that is true of every single location in the world. The chain of custody of the food travels on all kinds of vehicles to get to anybody. I mean, somehow you've decided that a subway and a bridge is, is somehow making your produce filthier than the than the bridge that that it takes to get to my also house. i won't pay more than three dollars for a sandwich so maybe but i'm not probably. eating at the best places pete probably. dominic is the host of stand up i love you buddy three dollars <laughs> pete dominic is the host of stand up with pete dominic subscribe to this man's show do you wager uh, with a sandwich shop you go, i'm listen. sorry what do you kind of barter, wager with a sandwich everything. shop? Like I won't... Uh, yeah, everything. You're at like, the toll booth. At the toll booth. How much to go over the bridge? Right now, you're charging me $15 to go over the George Washington Bridge? It's empty. Whatever happened to supply and demand? Let me speak to your supervisor. All right. <laughs> That's good. How much is the George Washington Bridge these days? It's. I think it's. Uh, it was up until a year ago. It was, yeah, like $15, $16. To get uh, in. Yep. Yep, that was the other reason I, I stopped coming in so often. Yeah. Well, that and losing my job there. $15 to get into New York City. Yes. They should yes. charge $50 to get out. That's where the money <laughs> is. That's where the money is. You should propose that to the new mayor, Andrew Yang. Who are you voting for? Oh, you you live I'm in. I'm not a mayor voter, but I would like Maya Wiley if I were to vote. Okay. Good to see yeah. you, buddy. 
Pete thank Don you for having me. Thank you. I love, I love you, David buddy. Feldman. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckling real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Coming up, the Hershenfelds will be joining us and Grace Jackson will be introducing us to a very important guest. Welcome to the mop-up for June 3rd, 2021. I'm David Feldman. And I guess there were, we had sound issues. I, I got, I was talking to Pete Dominic. There's like, how did I sound, Grace? You sounded... Um, echoey. Yeah, echoey kind of... How do yeah. I sound now? You sound good. I sound Back good? Dan, yeah. Dan how, how, how do we sound? Does, does Grace sound echoey? Everything sounds fine. But you, you did notice that Pete and I sounded echoey, right? That is correct. But now it sounds okay. Yep. And I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. And nothing's ever going to bother me again. Right? That is, that is the truth. When do you want to do community billboard? <laughs> I'm ready whenever you are. I'll be by. Oh, we, okay. The way today's going, I think you and I are going to be filling a <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to be filling a lot of time. Hey, Grace. So hey. glad to see you. I'm so excited about your guest and office hours and hours. We had a big meeting last night. Are you going to be doing anything for office yeah. hours and hours? I think I will grab one of those uh, graveyard shift slots okay. that only works for people in Europe. So, yes, I think I'll be there. Okay, very exciting. Before I turn the show over to you, and I wish I was turning it over to you per, forever, I think most of my listeners would agree when I should take a long vacation. But uh, before we turn it over to Grace Jackson, office hours and hours at the beginning of every month, we do 24 hours of office hours starting at Friday night, 8 p.m. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend office hours and you'll get a link. It's free. You just 
go in there and you can come and go for 24 hours. The most brilliant people on the planet, the the kindest, the the best people in the world show up for office hours. They really do. It's very humbling. And one of the people who will be there, as I said, is Grace Jackson. Take it away, Grace. Tell me who you have for us today. Yeah, well, um, I'm really excited today because uh, I've got a very special guest called Tabita Chow. He I'm going to direct- annoy you for one second. Can you turn up your volume just a little as though I know what I'm talking about? And I, yeah, I can also talk a bit louder. Is that good? You can, you can yeah. I just wanted to pretend I actually knew how to make the sound better. Go ahead. Um, So Tabita Chow is the director of Justice is Global, which is a special project of people's action to create a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right wing nationalism. He is organizing a progressive internationalist alternative to the growing tensions between the United States and China. So welcome, Tabita. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. Great. So let's get into our interview. Um, first of all, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and your work with Justice is Global and maybe just mention uh, some of the things that are at the top of your agenda right now at Justice is Global? Sure. Uh, So I am uh, originally from Canada. I was born in Vancouver, Canada, and grew up in Canada. Um, And uh, my family on my on my father's side, I'm like fourth generation Chinese Canadian. That side of the family's uh, been in Canada for for a century. Uh, And my mom is an immigrant from Japan. Uh, so, you know, I'm living, I've been living in Chicago since 2005, uh, but, uh, my family is split between, um, Canada and Asia. Um, and that was part of my experience growing up. Um, I got involved in politics originally through community organizing, through faith-based community organizing, actually on the South side of Chicago in 2009 and, uh, quickly fell in love with it. Um, and uh, starting around maybe 2014, 2015, started to take a real interest in international justice issues and uh, spend a bunch of time trying to figure out um, what it could look like to bring more of a global perspective and to bring issues of global justice uh, into the organizing that I was participating in and that I saw all around me here in Chicago. Um, and learned a lot about the global economy and how we all live together in a global system and working people all around the world. Um, our destinies are tied together through this shared global system that exploits and oppresses us all. Um, and uh, that eventually led uh, two years ago to the founding of this project, Justice is Global, uh, at People's Action. Um, and that's what I've been doing uh, for the last couple of years. Um, and the focus of our work right now is uh, th- there's a couple of big buckets of work. Um, the main campaign is around uh, uh, this issue of um, waiving the patents for COVID-19 vaccines and other medications at the World Trade Organization. Um, in early May, we got a big win where the Biden administration um, 
actually shocked us all by announcing that they would support this proposal at the World Trade Organization. Um, and this would greatly increase the supply of vaccines around the world, in particular to uh, uh, developing countries that are right now locked out of access to vaccines. Um, and, uh, and so this is good for people in developing countries. It's good for all of us here in the US because uh, we're not gonna beat this pandemic until we, we beat it everywhere. Like none of us is safe until the whole world is safe. Um, and the only ones who are gonna lose out in this deal are a handful of pharmaceutical executives who are now only gonna make like maybe billions of dollars instead of like a hundred billion dollars if this goes through like that, that, that's what's at stake here, right? Um, and that's where the battle lines are drawn. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, the, the Biden administration's uh, decision to support this proposal at the World Trade Organization, super important, a big step forward, but there's still work that we need to do. Uh, we need to make sure that the administration stays strong in its position. Uh, we need to help create more pressure on the governments that are still opposing this proposal. And that's in the UK, that's in Europe, uh, that's Japan, that's Canada, you know, all the advanced developed economies, the entire global South, like all the developing countries support it. Um, and so, um, uh, and the, we also need to now increase the pressure on the pharmaceutical companies because they're fighting back in a big way. And uh, that really puts this whole fight at risk. Um, that's, the, that's the main campaign uh, that we have going on right now at Justice is Global. Um, the other big piece of our work is um, looking at the US-China uh, relationship and how rapidly it's deteriorating into what many are calling a new Cold War. Um, that is very dangerous for the vast majority of people in the US and in China and around the world. Um, we've been doing a lot of work on uh, analysis and strategy um, and developing like new uh, strategic tools for uh, the progressive movement as a whole when it comes to the US-China relationship. Um, and uh, just right now we're doing some work on uh, trying to lead um, some uh, resistance to this big China bill that's moving through the Senate. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's gone through a number of names, but there's this really um, monstrous 1,500-page uh, bill on, on China in the Senate right now, um, very hawkish, a um, lot of dangerous stuff in there. And so we've been uh, trying to lead some of the work on uh, uh, um, taking out some of the worst parts of it. Okay, great, excellent. Um, so next up, I'd like you to give us a working definition of progressive internationalism, which is you know, the, the perspective that you bring to most of these issues. What, what does progressive internationalism entail? So just like we think of progressive politics in the US context, like just within the United States, it's about um, uniting um, uh, the majority of the country, um, working class, middle class people uh, across races um, and, and across backgrounds uh, and um, like fighting for our, our well-being and our rights and um, uh, trying to fight back against the power of corporations and, um, and racist authoritarian nationalists. Um, that's progressive politics in the context of, of the US. Uh, progressive internationalism is just thinking of like those same ideas. We need to extend those worldwide. 
Um, people across borders all around the world, the vast majority of us all working people in all countries, we have shared interests in um, uh, better uh, working conditions, better wages, um, better protections for the environment, defeating climate change, and beating back uh, right-wing authoritarian racist movements that we see all around the world right now. Um, and uh, that's progressive internationalism in a nutshell, is we take these very familiar progressive ideas that we fight for here in the US and we, we think about like, you know what, um, this needs to be a global thing. Like people all around the world have a shared stake in these principles and we need to join forces together um, to fight for this on a global scale. Great. Okay, well, that gives us a nice little bridge onto the next topic, which is China. Um, just a small topic for us in 20 minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this is really why I wanted to have you on the show, because it's something I've been trying to do in some of the other segments I've done on this show is kind of bring people who can speak from a very kind of... Um, a uh, well thought out kind of leftist or progressive position and think very deeply about China and particularly our relationship to China in the West. Um, so first of all, I, I think there is, I think you and I would probably agree that there's a lot of confusion in the West uh, about China still. Specifically, there is confusion around the nature of, of the Chinese government. Um, and how China governs. So just for the listeners, the Chinese government defines its own ideology as, um, and this is a bit of a mouthful, uh, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, which I promise sounds way better in Mandarin than it does in English translation. But Tavita, um, what kind of a society is the PRC? What kind of a government is the Chinese government? Um, is it socialist, capitalist, communist, none of the above, all of the above? Uh, I think, uh, so I, I think of it as a capitalist uh, society. Um, and I think the place where you can really see that is in the relationship between uh, businesses in China and the Chinese working class. And then also the role that the government plays in managing that relationship between workers and their bosses. Um, uh, workers, the working class in China is, um, uh, uh, it suffers extreme exploitation uh, and like heavy levels of oppression. Um, it's a highly stratified working class. Um, uh, a major part of the working class is what, what are called um, rural migrant workers. Um, there's, uh, I think, nearly 300 million rural migrant workers in China, so almost the entire equivalent to almost the entire population of the United States. Uh, these are people who um, have their official residence is in rural villages and so on, and they have moved en masse uh, in the past few decades uh, into the cities of China um, originally to work in in like factories. So this was the workforce that that powered the factories um, and the industrialization in China and all these Chinese exports that we use here in the US. Um, increasingly now though, they're being uh, pushed out of uh, factories and into uh, the service industries. And a lot of this is the gig economy. Um, so the equivalent, uh, so Chinese equivalents of um, 
DoorDash and Uber and stuff like that. These are big businesses in China. And uh, the workers are uh, most often these rural migrant workers uh, working for like very low pay under like very severe conditions uh, with very few rights. All the problems that we see workers face in the gig economy here in the US, we see the same things in China, um, often like the, the problems being often much more intense. Um, so just rampant exploitation and the role that the government plays in all this is um, mainly by defending the business interests and making sure um, that uh, the workers stay in line and do their work uh, so they can be exploited by Chinese businesses. Um, so I look at that and uh, I see just completely standard capitalism, um, capitalist businesses in a capitalist state um, um, even though they do, you know, officially call it socialism or communism or whatever. Right. Uh, but just to kind of, um, push on that a little bit, are there any elements of Chinese governance that, you know, we might learn from despite? Absolutely. All absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So, um, uh, the thing that uh, does distinguish uh, something, a major feature that does distinguish uh, the Chinese government and its form of managing the economy from the US is um, there's much, uh, there's a much more central role that the state plays in the Chinese economy. Um, one thing that uh, China has done very well and very successfully is um, use a lot of industrial policy. So the state intervenes in the economy, tries to exert some economic planning, um, does a lot of, uh, uh, it, uh, puts a lot of subsidies into uh, industries that it prioritizes. Um, and uh, one of the things that this has led to is, uh, so first of all, this is how um, China has managed to pull itself out of um, extreme poverty and is now one of the leading economies in the world. Um, and this happened very, very quickly. And this, this use of industrial policy is a big part of that. Um, it has, a, a, a lot of this industrial policy has also gone into uh, clean energy technologies. Um, so this has also allowed China in um, really, mostly in the past decade, so this has happened like really quickly, to rapidly scale up its clean energy industry. So you look at solar panels, electric vehicles, um, like state-of-the-art electrical grids, um, those industries have been scaled up in China like nowhere else on earth. And that has um, really uh, um, uh, been a great benefit uh, to not just clean energy industries in China, but to global efforts to fight climate change. Um, and all of our global climate targets uh, would be a complete lost cause, if not for how heavily China has invested in these clean energy industries and scaled it, scaled it up in, in China. So there's a lot to criticize about the Chinese government and how Chinese businesses operate. Um, but there are absolutely things that, that we can learn from. And I think we can do both. We can both like recognize some of the positive aspects of how the Chinese government has operated and managed the economy um, and recognize what it can bring to the fight against climate change while also criticizing um, uh, its abuses of labor rights, its crackdowns on labor activists and feminist activists, crackdowns on Uyghurs in Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, threats towards Taiwan, like all of that. Um, we can recognize the good while also criticizing the bad. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so on that, uh, 
I want to talk about this um, increasing polarization of opinion, <clears throat> which I'm seeing a lot now. Uh, you know, on the one side, we have the establishment kind of China hawks who view China unambiguously as a threat, often with an explicitly anti-communist kind of position rooted in the first Cold War. Um, although that that view is kind of seeping into liberal opinion, I think, these days as well. Uh, and on the other side of that, we have those who view China as a, a bastion of socialism, um, as a victim of, of capitalist imperialism, and by definition, not a perpetrator of imperialism. So I think this is kind of the new, um, this is the fault line of this supposed new Cold War. And it's a dichotomy that seems to me entirely wrong-headed and frankly quite dangerous. Um, so I want to ask you, as someone who's thought a lot about this, how do you navigate this polarization and um, how do you position yourself as a progressive internationalist? So the way that I want to think about the relationship between the US and China is first of all to zoom out and understand that um, um, this is part of like broader global trends um, and problems that we're seeing around the world. Um, and uh, that all stem from like deep dysfunctions in the global economy, in uh, the form of global society that has been created uh, after, you know, these like uh, four decades of, of neoliberalism and neoliberal globalization. Um, the global economy is deeply dysfunctional. It has been for a decade or more since the 2008 financial crash. Um, economic growth globally has been very weak. Um, and what that has done is it has fostered in the US and in China and a bunch of other countries, um, this like growing mentality of zero sum competition, which means that um, in order for my country to succeed, your country has to fail. Like there's, you know, um, the global economy isn't big enough for the both of us. Um, and that's particularly intense between the US and China, but we're seeing it all around the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's a big part of what's been feeding these trends of growing nationalism and authoritarianism everywhere. And we see that in China. We also see that in the United States um, with the Trump presidency and now um, how these anti-democratic authoritarian nationalists are taking over the Republican party. We see that across Europe. Um, we see that in India, in Myanmar, just lots of countries in Asia, in Africa, Bolsonaro and others in Latin America, like this is everywhere. Um, this, is a, this is a systemic problem in uh, the entire global economy, our whole global society. Um, and this growing conflict between the US and China and growing authoritarianism and nationalism in both countries um, is just um, like one facet of this overall picture. So I think like zooming out and seeing that global picture is like an important way to get grounded in how we, we think about what's going on between the US and China. Um, I think another important thing to do here is to um, like, we need to break out of these nationalistic binaries and these idea that th this way of thinking of, of um, this conflict is thinking about this conflict is um, on the one side, you've got the United States and everything it represents versus China and everything it, it represents. And it man this imagines that the US is like one unified thing and China is one unified thing. 
And it's really not, that's really not true. Um, there are different uh, political tendencies in the US, there are different political tendencies in China. And um, the authoritarianism and nationalism that we see in the United States and the authoritarianism and nationalism that we see in China, um, these two things really feed off of each other. Um, whenever it, whenever anti-China nationalists in the United States get their way and some aggressive anti-China thing happens, that empowers nationalists in China. Like that is bad for Chinese politics. And then when Chinese nationalists come out and do some aggressive anti-American thing, that then empowers our nationalists here in the United States. Like, like whenever, whenever some Chinese nationalist does some aggressive thing, like Tom Cotton, uh, Josh Hawley, like these people are celebrating, like that's good for them. And the same thing happens on the other side as well. Um, so, you know, I think uh, these two points, like thinking about how, how this is part of like a whole global trend and also breaking out of these, um, these like monolithic US versus China binaries and like seeing how there's a certain segment of nationalists in both countries that are feeding off of each other. Like these are two big parts of what I think a progressive perspective has to look like. Great. Um, okay, well, tomorrow is uh, June 4th, right? I have the day correct. Okay, good. Um, and uh, June 4th, uh, as people will be aware, it, it's the 32nd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, which happened in Beijing in 1989, uh, but which is not obviously commemorated inside mainland China. Um, now, in Hong Kong, where the national security law was passed last summer, um, which kind of gave Beijing a lot more control over Hong Kong politically and legally. Uh, Hong Kong in the past year, I think it's fair to say, has been pretty fundamentally transformed, at least in terms of politics and the law. Um, and tomorrow is the first time since 1989 that there will not be a candlelit vigil in Victoria Park in, in Hong Kong. And with, with Taiwan experiencing a COVID outbreak, this is actually the first time ever that there will not be any commemoration of the event in the Chinese-speaking world. Um, I guess I'm just using this as a segue to ask you about how you see the role of, of human rights in this discourse of, of progressive internationalism. We, you touched on it briefly earlier, but you know, how can we kind of be, um, how can we be sensitive and, and sincere when we're talking about the domestic situation in China, which let's be honest, has demonstrably kind of become more repressive in the past 10 years. Uh, how do you kind of uh, approach that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, before I, took any interest in these sort of foreign policy questions. Um, my work on US-China actually started with uh, uh, labor solidarity. Um, like I was trying to help build um, a sense of solidarity and relationships between um, labor activists in China within mainland China and here in the United States um, and help like organize uh, a tour of some Chinese labor activists uh, in the Midwest um, that was um, uh, just an amazing experience. Um, 
And uh, I, I started to be able to do that work in 2018. Uh, but during that very same time, um, the space for doing that kind of thing was rapidly closing up uh, as nationalism, anti-China nationalism was increasing here in the United States. And then nationalism in China was also increasing. Um, and there were just very severe crackdowns on activists of all kinds. Um, and um, uh, Hong Kong seemed like a bright spot at the time that you could still maintain some relationships through Hong Kong, like you could build relationships with activists in Hong Kong, and then they could maintain relationships with activists within mainland China. But now that's getting wiped out too, as the Chinese government cracks down on Hong Kong. Um, uh, it is, it's now dangerous to work with activists in mainland China, and now becoming, again, dangerous to work with activists in Hong Kong as well. Um, so um, for me, this, this is like really devastating, not just in terms of my political work, but also this like personally, um, um, uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, just a very difficult thing to process emotionally, um, uh, the, the impact that this is having on, on people over there. Um, but the, 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 the folks that we talk to, um, you know, they're different, people have different opinions in Hong Kong, people have different opinions in mainland China, but the folks that we talk to, um, they see the escalating US-China tensions as bad for them. Like the increase in, in China bashing in US politics is bad for them. I think uh, there's a very good argument to be made that the deterioration in the US-China relationship um, actually weakened the position of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong and made it easier for the Chinese government to crack down on them, right? Um, one way that has played out is uh, an important role that Hong Kong has played in, in the past decades is, is an intermediary between the Chinese economy and the US economy. But if leaders in both parties in the United States are talking about how, you know what, we need to like disassemble the US-China economic relationship, and now we're going to go on attack against the Chinese economy, um, Hong Kong starts to lose its important place, and then that weakens the leverage that activists in Hong Kong have. Um, and uh, it makes the Chinese government think that, you know what, if the Americans are going to come for us anyways, then why should we... Um, concede anything to the demands they're making on behalf of Hong Kong. Like what is in it for us, right? Um, so I think what progressives need to do is to um, uh, be very clear about these human rights criticisms of China. Like those are, there are real criticisms that we need to make. We cannot shy away from them. Um, it is actually strategically dangerous for us to allow right-wing demagogues to dominate that stuff. Like when Marco Rubio is leading on discourse on human rights in China, that's, that breaks my heart and it is strategically dangerous for progressives. Um, but we need to clearly separate the critique of human rights in China from this zero-sum competition, from this idea that the US needs to uh, undercut and undermine the Chinese economy and we need to keep China down. These are two different topics. They get mushed together in a way that's, that's not productive and in a way that I think hurts the cause of human rights in China ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. That's so well said. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Great power competition between the US and China is not the vehicle for improving the domestic conditions of Chinese people or human rights. Um, I think that's that's totally right. So we don't have, oh, we've just got one minute. Um, <laughs> damn. Uh, I want to close by asking you kind of given all that we've said um 
how can we build international solidarity with people in China at this point, given how difficult it is to do activist work in collaboration with people inside China? Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that most Americans, most British people, wherever you are in the world, most people will have more in common with ordinary Chinese people than they do with our respective ruling elites. Um, so how can we go about building some bridges? Maybe it starts with education. I don't know. What, what's your approach? Yeah. So like I said before, because of how severe the crackdowns have gotten, building direct solidarity, direct relationships is, is very difficult to like basically impossible now. Um, I think uh, education is a, a big part of it. Like the uh, progressives in general um, need to learn a lot more about China and the Chinese economy and Chinese politics and the history of the US-China relationship. I think that's crucial. Um, I think um, uh, we need to move US politics in a way that's gonna over time create more space for building direct solidarity. And I think that means a couple of things. One is trying to resist efforts to um, move US foreign policy in like a, a very hawkish direction, which is the path that Republicans and far too many Democrats are taking right now. Um, another is to emphasize um, the, the potential for US-China cooperation around shared challenges like the pandemic and around climate. And that can be an important counterweight to the anti-China hawkish uh, policies that are getting pushed. Um, and another thing is, um, you know, we can't build transnational solidarity with China right now, but um, we can do something similar uh, with um, um, some of the diaspora from, from China and from Hong Kong uh, here in the United States. Um, I think uh, like Chinese international students are a, a key population here, I think. Yeah. Um, and those are ways to build, if not relationships with folks who are there, folks who are from there and are here right now. Yeah, great. Okay, so we're just about at time. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Didn't get to everything I wanted to ask you, but maybe I'll, I'll bug you to come back. Please, um, <laughs> please bug, bug away. Uh, We'd love to have you come back yes. at some point. Um, how can people find your work? And is there anything you want to point people to? And also give us your Twitter handle, please. Yeah, uh, my Twitter handle is TobyTac, TobyTac, T-O-B-I-T-A-C. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, you can also follow uh, my project, Justice is Global, at Justice is Global. Um, and you can go to our website, justiceisglobal.org, um, and uh, sign up uh, for our email list and uh, ways to get more involved. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate all your work on this on this topic. Thanks so much, Grace. Great, great job, Grace Jackson. I'll see you Friday night around 8 o'clock for Office Hours and Hours. Grace is also one of the co-hosts of Literary Hangover, one of Professor Ben Burgess's favorite podcasts. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Tobita. Please come back. Let us now go to Michigan, where Professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He is the author of the brand new book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. He's the host of Give Them an Argument and author of Give Them an Argument. And he joins us today, I think. Are you in Michigan? Yeah. You are. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, We didn't have time last week to talk about your column in Jacobin entitled, Want to Be Your Own Boss? Democratic Socialism is for You. 
Millions of U.S. workers dream of being their own boss, but that kind of autonomy is impossible for the vast majority of the population under capitalism. Under democratic socialism, things could be different. I really want to talk to you about this. Yeah. Are you prepared to lose another argument? I don't even know where the argument is because I agree with you. Uh, sure, but uh, but I'm, I'm sure I'll lose something along lose the way something. of the discussion. At so. least your dignity for just showing up here. <laughs> Fair enough. Baked into our system is democratic yeah. socialism. We don't have to change anything. This is my, my thesis. We cool. just need better citizens. We need to pass the For the People Act, get democracy going in all corners of our country and our marketplace, that democracy is more powerful than capital. And we can actually take over corporations because corporations are chartered by the government in Delaware or South Dakota. And you can get shareholders to use their power as voters and turn GM and turn IBM, turn my BM into a worker-owned corporation without changing anything. It's already baked in there. Pension funds, right? Our pensions... We don't invest our pensions. We turn them over to fi financial advisors who invest that money against our own interest. If, if We should be using our pension funds to buy the companies that we work for. It's all there. We don't have to have a violent revolution, right? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about a violent revolution. I, I hope those aren't the only two options that... Um, sort of let the marketplace play out without any sort of political intervention or um, uh, or have violence, uh, I think you could also, a third possibility might be uh, peaceful, you know, political change. Uh, but uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you want to back up a little bit and talk about what, what the article says? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that. Let's talk so, about owning our own businesses. How does that work? Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that, kind of inspired the article is that there's this whole thriving genre of self-help videos about uh, starting your own business, becoming your own boss, that like if you type that phrase into YouTube, you get a zillion results, lots of them, you know, many, many, many views. Do you mind speaking um, up a little? Do you mind talking louder? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, actually, I think I just, so we just got back to uh, Hoden Lake from East Lansing, and I think I, f I forgot to uh, put in the uh, the microphone. That's my fault. But that's uh, all right. We're have, having we're having uh, audio problems today too, so it's okay. There, there's continuity uh, on today's show. This is good. Yeah. So what what I was saying is there's this vast um, there's this vast genre of self help videos and self help other things about starting your own business, being your own boss. And when I started to to look at some of these videos, what really struck me about it is that most of them aren't about how uh, you'll you'll make a zillion dollars and have a pool of gold coins like Scrooge McDuck, you know, and all that stuff if you uh, if you become your own boss. Some of them are, but most of them aren't about that. Most of them seem to be about something else, which is the uh, the lack of autonomy 
uh, that uh, that most people have at work. Uh, and in the article, I, I talk about a really striking example from a video by a Canadian businessman named Kevin O'Leary. Uh, I think he was one of the guys Shark from Tank. Uh, Shark Tank. Yes. Uh, and he, uh, uh, you see him at the beginning of the video speaking kind of like Jordan Belfort at the end of Wolf of Wall Street to a, uh, a group full, a room full of very hopeful would-be entrepreneurs. Uh, and he's in the beginning of this inspirational speech that he's giving them. He starts talking about uh, a job he had as a teenager that he says was his first real job, but it was also uh, his last uh, job where he was, he was, he was working for somebody. Uh, and he, uh, he said uh, he was supposed to scoop, uh, scoop, you know, he was hired to scoop ice cream. Uh, but then like on a second day or something, the woman who owned the place told him to get down on his knees to scrape some, uh, some, some gum from between the Mexican tiles on the floor. I said, well, you hired me to scoop ice cream. I shouldn't have to do this. And she said, look, I own this place. You know, you'll, you'll do what I tell you to do. Uh, and uh, there was a girl watching him from like the shoe store across the street. He didn't want to get down on his knees to scrape gum in front of her. And so he said, look, I'm not going to do it. And she said, well, you're, you're going to be fired if you don't. And then as he tells the story, at least uh, he was, he's then fired. And then when he's reflected on this, he says, um, best thing oh, that ever happened to me. Yeah, it's the best thing that happened to me because that inspired me to go to business for myself and, I, I, I don't like working for other people. There's nothing wrong with being a worker. But if you want to control your own destiny, you need to be an entrepreneur, which I thought was super interesting because this is somebody who's presumably a big, big fan of capitalism. Uh, but this could be a speech delivered by like a revolutionary communist uh, that, uh, you know, that, oh, under capitalism, the vast majority of the population right. is unable to control their own destiny. They have to work for bosses. They right. have eight out of every 16 hours uh, they're awake, and it's only eight because of past victories of working class struggle. Uh, they uh, they have to uh, submit to the rule of somebody else. They don't get to control their own destiny. Uh, and what, what really strikes me about this is that if you take seriously the things that these people, these entrepreneurship gurus say about how bad it is to work for other people, why it's so important you be your own boss, then we have a big problem because as long as we have this system, uh, at least the way it looks like now, we could argue about which strategies like you're bringing up could, could alter this, right? But at least the way that things are economically organized right now, most people can't be their own boss. I mean, you, you could, you know, there are... There is a tradition of saying, okay, like uh, Abraham Lincoln in his 1861 addressed Congress, uh, the one with the famous lines in it about labor and capital says uh, uh, that there's no such thing as a free person fixed for life in, in a condition of, uh, of, of a laborer. Uh, and Lincoln wasn't a socialist. Uh, you know, he, what he was saying uh, was that's okay, though, because unlike slavery in our free northern system, you know, you can... Uh, work for a little while as a laborer and save up money for to buy land or tools. And then you go into business as a small farmer or, or a shopkeeper. But of course, even when he said that, that was probably a little anachronistic. Uh, and now it's wildly anachronistic. Uh, we could not have uh, however many adults there are in the United States right now, 200 million or whatever. We could not have 200 million uh, independent businesses 
uh, and and have a, a functioning economy where nobody worked for anyone else. I mean, that's that that's that wouldn't work. And so my question at that point is, if you accept the premise that it is important that people control their own destiny, and which again is the basis of this whole thing. And it seems like a lot of people do because they watch these videos and they take these seminars and they buy these books and they dream of becoming their own boss. Well, if you accept that starting point, then you should want the economic system to be organized in a different way because under the one that we've got, most, you know, most people definitionally can't do that because as long as, you know, there is a boss, uh, they, you know, like most people, are not going to be in that position. I mean, just structurally, right? Not every cheerleader can be on top of the pyramid. Uh, and uh, and most people- Well, it's about uh, blaming yourself for being unhappy. I don't have the entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. All I need to do is quit this job and take a chance, and then I can be happy. As long as I'm not willing to do that, then I deserve what happens to me. That's- that's part of the control that these people implement on us. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, that line, uh, man, it's a good thing that the, uh, well, I hope, uh, I hope, I hope Grace is, uh, has stepped away from her computer so she doesn't hear me admitting that I don't remember who said this, but, uh, some, um, some famous novelist, right. Says, you know, the problem, the reason that, uh, socialism and take hold in America is that we're uh, that we don't have uh, we don't have proletarians. We only have temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Temporarily, uh, embar- yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't know the uh, uh, what's that? Just say Dreiser, and she'll be impressed. Okay, say Dreiser. Say, when in doubt, say sure. Dreiser. That's the or Dreiser so memorably said. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain that's not it. I think it's one of the Johns, you know, Steinbeck or one of the other Johns. Okay. But uh, in any case, um, yeah, like. That that's that's something that okay yeah Steinbeck uh, I I know uh, I know how you feel about this but I did glance at the chat and somebody says Steinbeck yeah how do you know uh, it's true though you're gonna trust how, you're gonna trust the chat room they say Steinbeck <laughs> they're here to sabotage you Ben Burgess okay so so they're probably lying to me but that actually sounds right more I mean, money is being made selling the idea of entrepreneurship than being an entrepreneur. It's the same way the gold rush, more people made money selling shovels and Levi's to the the fools who were digging for gold than the guys who actually found any gold. That's what, yeah. So how do you get a worker-owned business going you're 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 talking specifically of being your own boss a worker-owned business doesn't necessarily mean yeah well, you're so, your own so, boss you're yeah, you just so have if, new if assholes to answer to yeah so it seems to me that there are people who've options, been empowered right? who've never had power before do we really want to give power to our co-workers uh it depends on your co-workers uh but uh, but I think that the, the question is, like, okay, obviously, if we're just asking what's best for you individually, clearly, uh, what's best for you individually is just being the boss. Yes. Right? You know, that, that you that there are other people who who are employed by you and, and you uh, and you don't have to share power with everybody. And right to senor. 
Right. It's, it's good to be king. Yes. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why we libertarians who I debate will sometimes say things like, why can't we just, uh, you know, worker owned businesses are so great. Well, no problem. Just like start a bunch of them under capitalism and wait for to compete and all that stuff. And I think one of the many problems with that is that uh, if the incentive for doing that is supposed to be um, not, is the incentive for doing that supposed to be ideological or is it supposed to be just trying to get a better life for yourself? Because if you're just trying to get a better life for yourself, uh, then uh, then obviously it's it's going to be a hard sled either way. But uh, but under a system that allows you to just be the boss, uh, clearly the thing that's most in your interest. It's like the prisoner's dilemma, right? The thing that's most in your interest is just being the boss, right? Why not just try to be like a traditional entrepreneur and, and start your own business rather than sharing power, as you say, with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of coworkers? But just real quickly, just wrap you know wrap the point. The uh, so okay, the best thing would be just to be the boss. But if the worst thing is just to be a uh, a worker that you know somebody else is the king, uh, then if we can't all be our own boss, we can at least collectively in control of our own destiny, which is what you have in models like uh, the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, you know, a giant federation of worker cooperatives or similar things that exist in the Emilia Romana uh, region of Italy uh, that have been, uh, that seem to uh, to have worked pretty well. I mean, if, uh, if, somebody, uh, if somebody has to scrape the gum from the floor, uh, at least the decision about who will be asked to do so under what circumstances uh, you know, can can be collectively uh, hammered out, which, by the way, uh, even at a unionized uh, shop that still has a boss, you would at least have a union contract that would specify which kinds of tasks you can be asked to do at which time. Uh, and a worker cooperative is like a union shop, except that there's no boss to negotiate with. You, you just uh, hammer out the operating agreement among yourselves, the equivalent of the contract, and, you know, and, and vote on it. Uh, like happens at uh, at Mondragon, uh, so I, I think that uh, that if out of those options, if we're worried about people not being able to control their own destiny, you know, the one that's viable that gives the most people the most control over their own destiny uh, is to have some form of uh, worker control of the means of production. Now we could argue about the details of what that could look like, or as uh, as as a uh, you know the old lefty from way back would would, would put it how we're going to get there, uh, but that's the but that's the sort of central argument of the piece. So, working with others, the David Feldman Show has something called Office Hours. Grace yeah. Jackson, uh, Hannah, Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Joe in Norway, and I met last night to go over Office Hours and Hours which is this Friday at 8 p.m. And we've come up with community guidelines that we want ratified by the people who attend office hours. It is a beautiful statement. They took a lot of time to write this out, how to talk to one another, how to show respect, how not to interrupt, how to listen, how not to accuse somebody of being something, but perhaps behaving like something. It is not just guidelines for office hours, but it should be guidelines for a car ride or a relationship. It's right. really a, 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 
a work of art. I had nothing to do with it. Well, getting this thing ratified mm-hmm. by office hours has been a pain in the ass. Sure. Because we've thrown it before the, the group of people. And I have a dream of office hours creating worker-owned businesses that I have no part of. Right. You know, just do whatever you want, uh, just as long as you're not hurting people mm-hmm. or hurting the right people, hurt the right people. Sure, sure, so sure. we've thrown this... This, this community guideline document before office hours on several nights. And the reaction I got was the same reaction I get from my cats when we're changing the cat box. This panic, like change. What is this? Like, you know, what, what is going on here? I'm just, give me a sec. They're so afraid of change. And at some point I realized I'm going to have to say, and this goes against everything I believe in in terms of socialism and democracy, you're going to ratify this. this These are the terms of service. These are the community guidelines. You know, you're not going to interrupt. You're you're not going to behave bad. We're not voting on it. This is it. And then I thought, well, then I'm foolish. I already am foolish, but... But even trying to start a work, how do you get people, especially lefties, to shut their mouths? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, like, I mean, this is basically the line that, I don't know, Matt Leck tells me that Oscar Wilde didn't actually say this, but that supposedly Oscar Wilde. I think it was Dreiser. I'm pretty sure it was Dreiser. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. That, uh, that Theodore Dreiser said and was somehow attributed to Oscar Wilde uh, about how the problem with socialism is that it's too many damn meetings. Uh, and, and I get that. I mean, I, f- I feel the force of that, that objection. I mean, I've, I've had, I mean, look, in, in my life when I had full-time academic jobs, like most of them um, weren't even like this, but I mean, I, I, there were a couple of years when I had to go to faculty meetings regularly and uh, every time one of them lasted for more than an hour, I felt like shooting myself. So I, I, I certainly get the, uh, the objection. But I'd, I'd say a couple things about this. One, that democracy at work doesn't have to mean everybody's going to constant meetings any more than political democracy means that absolutely everything all the time has to be settled by, uh, by like town meetings of, of everybody. Uh, that. I'm I'm fine with a certain degree of representative uh, democracy that you know that you can uh, especially if people are recallable, you know that you can uh, elect uh, elect management. Which again, in I mean I'm not sure. I'm sure in a lot of smaller co-ops, uh, a lot more is de- directly democratic. But in places, you know, big co-ops that actually exist like Mondragon, uh, you know, a lot of. Uh, a lot of day-to-day decisions are made by elected management. Uh, so in a worker-owned business, and if you could speak up, please, I would appreciate oh, it. Oh, so, sorry, yeah. yeah in uh, a worker-owned business. A lot bu- of day-to-day decisions are made by elected management. And you can still have, again, uh, like the same way that at a, nor- a regular capitalist business that has a union, uh, that, uh, that you've still got a process by which uh, workers will vote on a contract uh, you can, uh, you know, every however many years, uh, you can have a process by which workers, uh, worker owners uh, vote on an operating agreement uh, once every uh, however many years that would function like a contract 
except uh, it's actually fewer meetings because you don't need to get the boss to agree to it. You, I think it's in canceling comedians while the world burns, which everybody yeah. should buy. Go by canceling the comedians, canceling comedians while the world burns. I'm pretty sure it was in this book and not give them an argument. If you come out of a meeting with lefties and say, everybody's in it for themselves, nobody can agree on anything, I might as well give up on socialism and, you know, government is bad and regulation is bad. And I think it's in canceling comedians. You say, no, that's the reason if everybody's greedy, if everybody's inherently out for themselves, that's the reason you need regulation, government. Right. I think it's in canceling comedians. You wrote that. How do you forgive people for ruining meetings by only wanting to be heard? It's almost like a relationship. I'm going to get into a lot of trouble for saying this. You do know you're married, right? You do know it's a cliche, but your wife just wants to be heard. She doesn't want a solution. She just wants you to hear how she feels. And that's good enough, right? I have heard this, yes. Well, but we can't. We're not allowed. That used to be a great thing for a man to say up until about a year ago. Wow, David is so sensitive. He really gets women. Now it's a horrible thing to say that men try to solve problems and women want to be heard. You know, the ground is shifting underneath my feet. But just between you and me, I kind of believe that. uh, And 100 people uh, watching this right now. and uh, I should be so lucky. 3,000 people, let's do it later, yeah. I should be so lucky. So the, uh, but it is kind of true. Let's just say this. There are some people who just want to be heard. Not necessarily women, right? There okay. are some people so who so just want to be heard. They don't want to solve any problems. They, like me, they just want to, they want to be, some people have to cut themselves to feel alive. I need to be heard to feel alive. Hopefully the people who are listening to me are cutting themselves to, to, to make it stop. Isn't that the problem that there are too many people like me who just want to be heard, but don't want, don't want to solve anything or fix anything? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't, uh, I think that there are a lot of things that sweeping systemic uh, change to the economic structure can, can do for us. I think that we can uh, get rid of, of poverty and, uh, and, um, and gaping sort of economic inequality. Uh, We can stop people from dying of preventable diseases. We can stop having, you know, imperialist wars that are, you know, egged on by, you know, companies like Halliburton. But how do we do that with everybody, with everybody discovering that I'm witty? It has to be, it has to include me being witty. One thing that I don't think that changing the economic system can do for us is have it be the case that meetings are no longer annoying because some people want to talk just to be heard. I mean, I think that's just a reality that we're going to have to deal with in any system. But somehow, right, like we still, um, like every city in the country has a city council and every single one of those city council meetings, uh, there, there are uh, annoying people with too much time on their hands who will sometimes come and, and talk too much in the public comment section. And it's like, it's, it's an irritation. We have to deal with it, but it's, it's much better than any of the alternatives. And so we deal with it. And I would say the same thing 
about economic democracy that if we uh, that if, if if you and I worked for a company uh, where there were um, you know management elections and you know things like that uh, there would probably be times where I don't think we'd have to go to meetings every day I wouldn't sign up for that but you know but I think that uh, that we would have to probably have like a assembly once a year, once every couple of years to elect management, to agree on an operating agreement. And we probably have to sit through some really annoying meetings, but I think that's okay. And you're an alpha male. Is that fair to say that you like to win arguments? Uh, you I like mean, to be the I, top. I, I haven't liked losing the 200 arguments I've lost. I know, I know, but, but you know, you like to be on top. You do. So isn't okay. that the problem that People care more about being right than getting something done. They, they, they'll drive home from, like me, I stopped going to Writers Guild meetings because I'm an asshole. And, and I, I would go to the meetings and I, <laughs> I, I don't, or go to PTA meetings. It was all about me. And I thought, I am toxic. I don't belong here. This is just an excuse for me to vent. I don't care what happens. I'm, yeah. People like me are the. At least I can recognize that and back off. Right, let me ask you one final question, Professor Ben yeah. Burgess, author of "Give Them an Argument: Logic for the Left," and your new book is "Canceling Comedians While the World Burns." We've only scratched. The, this is a great book. This is a fantastic book. Buy the book, and I'll tell you what: if you don't like it, I will keep the book. And I will mail you a check that will bounce, but it will be a check in the mail to reimburse. No, seriously, if you don't like this book, I'll reimburse you. It's a great it's it's a great read. Very readable as well. You debate libertarians. And over the weekend, I came up with a theory about libertarians. Yeah, this is and, and I'm being serious. A libertarian, for the most part, is a baby boomer or a millennial who thinks they're going to inherit their mother or father's home when they die. So they don't want to pay property taxes or inheritance taxes. They also don't want to work. What they're doing is they're living on credit. They have their, you know, they're just, they're kind of maxing out their credit cards, betting that, their parents will die soon enough so that they can inherit the house, take a little uh, home equity loan from the house to pay off their credit cards and uh, live happily ever after without the government bothering them. That's basically what a libertarian is, right? <laughs> I'm sure that describes uh, some libertarians. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, Honestly, I think that there are plenty of people running around now who have good politics now, who voted for Bernie, who maybe even joined the DSA, who were libertarians at one point. I think that there are probably more people like that than, than we would imagine because, you know, because you go through a point where it sounds, um, you know, it sounds good uh, that, you know, maybe like you really emphasize the, the, uh, the smoking pot and not being spied on by the government, you know, parts of libertarianism. It sounds very internally consistent. So it appeals to sort of strange nerds like me who are suckers for internal consistency. Uh, so I, I think there's like a path by which people become libertarians that's, that's maybe uh, better than that. But yeah, I think it also 
I'm sure sometimes what you're saying is exactly right. And I think sometimes people are either small business owners or to circle back to earlier in the conversation, think that one day they might become small business owners uh, or dream of it at least. Uh, and uh, and I think it's just, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the natural ideology of the the small business owner that they, uh, they, they don't necessarily like, um, you know, big businesses that get rewards from the government, but they really don't like doing anything that would make them pay more taxes since they're already operating on a very small margin or would, would force them to treat, you know, the few workers they're trying to squeeze every penny of, you know, better. So I, I think that's part of it too. But um, I know that the, uh, the, the Hershey cells are here, but, but, but I did just really want to quickly want to say with regard to the last thing you said before that question uh, that I think this is actually a good illustration of my point that, um, even though people like David Feldman exist, uh, the Writers Guild still does a lot of good. Oh, absolutely. And, Despite me. Right, exactly. So I think that the same would be true of, uh, of, uh, of, of economic democracy in the future, that you'd, you'd have some annoying meetings, but it'd be much more about good than bad. Yeah, and, and they do agree on, like the Writers Guild was able to agree on a lot of things, like David Feldman not coming to any more meetings. That's... It was unanimous, including me. Professor Ben Burgess is the author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. His podcast is on YouTube, as well as wherever you get your podcasts. And it's called Canceling, not Canceling, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. That's the book. Uh, I, I'm, I'm being distracted. I'm, I'm trying to do this by rote, and I'm touching buttons that I shouldn't be touching because they, they're going to, I'm getting going blind and there's fur on my hands. I'm going to stop touching these buttons. Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin. His latest piece is entitled, want to be your own boss? Democratic socialism is for you. He is the author of the brand new book, canceling comedians while the world burns. Listen to his podcast, watch his podcast, give them an argument Thank you, Professor. All right. Thank you, comedian. Thank you. All right. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Let us now go to, I think, I, I don't know where they are. I think Dr. Hershenfeld, a Freudian psychoanalyst, is somewhere in New York. And I think his son, Ethan Hershenfeld, the son of noted psychoanalyst, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and comedian Ethan Hershenfeld. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. David, what you said about what's that group of people who want waiting for their parents to die so they can get Libertarians? Libertarians. Libertarians, right. It reminded me of a remark what I once heard from a very smart psychoanalytic teacher, which is that communists are people who could not accept that they were locked out of their parents' bedroom. <laughs> hmm. Think about it. And so capitalists enjoyed the primal scene. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Uh, um, good evening. Um, Dad, it sounds to me like your finger or a coffee cup is over your mic, or is that just me? You sound a little muffled. I mean, you're still clear. Yeah, you I do just... sound a little muffled, but we've been having yeah. audio problems. Oh, okay. But it's fine. Yeah. Dr. Hirschenbell, is there anything covering your 
But now he's playing with us. Now he's now he's pretending. Now he's torturing. Okay. Uh, Um, I was going to make a a joke about. I was. was, By the way, this was a good week, Doctor Hershenfeld, because my mother and sister only raved about Thug Thug Jew once. Wow. I'm serious. The dog is already. The dog is talking. The dog is with okay. I'm going to mute and put them inside. Sorry. Bye. So I wanted to ask you about machines. Yes. And that the source of so much of my aggravation and unhappiness comes down to whether or not my machines are working. If my computer isn't yeah. giving me what I want and I have to be on the phone or some software isn't working... It is the same feeling I get, uh, you know, it's like generalized anxiety or depression. That's not what it is. I have the same thing, by the way. It's people with no patience, with a very short fuse. When something doesn't work immediately, they get enraged. They want to throw the machine out the window. I'm one of those also. The people who can master this stuff have infinite patience and they could just sit there and fiddle around and play with it. And they eventually learn how to do it. And in the next life, I hope to come back as one of those people. But we're talking, I'm not one now. We're we're talking Ethan about how when I have, like I've been having audio problems today, Uh, you might as well be telling me that, you know, she left me. Yeah. Just, you know, I, I, I feel the same way. I get very frustrated. But if you're having audio problems, I, it could just be wax. <laughs> Have you tried a Q-tip? <laughs> yes. It, and it, okay. it, it's pushing it in. Uh, yeah. The, the Is there a sense of entitlement that some people... Like, I think, as as egalitarian as I claim to be, when I'm inconvenienced by things that I consider... Uh, beneath me mm-hmm. this is a terrible thing to say like like the one thing like i live in new york city so i shouldn't have to deal with anything i'm living in a closet basically i need water food hangers you need hangers, I need hangers and air conditioning and that frees me to live the life of the mind Right. That's that's what you, you give up to live in Manhattan. You say, OK, I'm going to live in this closet, but I don't have to worry about spackle and lug wrenches and my joists and what joists and whatever joists are, you know. Yeah. 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 James joists. James joists. I can just read the Dubliners and not have to fix anything. Yeah. So is is it wrong for me when I, so I, I get completely bent out of shape because I feel like I'm a an aristocrat when I have to deal with, you know, a broken machine. I shouldn't have to deal with it. I, I made a deal with New York that every but little I have will work. Yeah, I know that feeling. And uh, I also I'm all thumbs when it comes to fixing stuff. Um 
I can fix a like I can fix a game. Like if you're betting on something, I know how to talk to people. <laughs> I can get them to throw a game, but I can't like I can't fix anything. Do you ever so then say you're really at the you're really at the mercy of of any any mechanic or anyone who tells you what's going on? You really are in a position of complete uh, you're gullible. You're you're weak. You can pretend to put up some defenses and ask questions, but you don't know. You Did you ever know. hire an exterminator? Hire an exterminator? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I they, do. They, they I, make it sound very scientific until they show up. Yeah. And then it's Tom yeah, and, and Jerry. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I, I, I watched a Tom and Jerry cartoon. It's yeah. Brillo pads and foam. Yeah. And a flashlight. Where do you want the poison? Where yeah. do you want the poison? That's all it is. Yeah. But it, I, it was, it, he might as well have been giving me quad, quadruple heart surgery. I, I had a crazy exterminator story uh, just six weeks ago. So I was away for almost a year. And um, when I got home, like uh, some some neighbors, I, they were reporting that they were seeing some very big rats around the garbage outside our building in Brooklyn. I mean, big, like dog size. And so I called the exterminator. I said, how often are you coming? And he said, no, no, we, we spoke last March uh, 2020. You said don't come anymore because you're away. I said, what, what, what are you talking about? I didn't say, don't come. I said, you know, we, we had talked about maybe changing the schedule or whatever. I looked up the email. Sure enough, I didn't tell him not to come. He just, for a year, he didn't come. He was still getting the automatic payments. He was getting the check. Wow. Every, yeah. So then I was like, well, didn't that tip you off that maybe we had a deal that you would I'm still pay? Yeah. So I hired, also, I hired a vegan exterminator. Oh, wow. And uh, I'll show you what they do. It, it's quite remarkable. Keep talking. I'll, yeah. Um, I actually, with, with the exterminators, I, I, I am loath to have them killed. I always try to see if there's a way to, you know, if they can convince the mouse to leave, bribe them, hypnotize. hypnotize. Yeah. Hypnotize the mice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is. Uh, That's are... from a Tom and Jerry cartoon, I think. Oh, hypnotize. Yeah. This is this is my vegan exterminator. He just plays with them till they die from happiness. This is this is actual footage. He he sets up a little basketball game for them to wow, play. That, it was a slam dunk. Yeah. Oh, they dunk every yeah. time. They dunk. It's like wow. you and your dad playing basketball together. As yeah, kids. they don't really. They don't have a, a a hook shot, a jump shot. They only have the dunk. They don't even have to jump. Look at that, and they and they, and they, and they just oh, die cute. from happiness. Okay, the reason I showed that to you, those are mice playing basketball. We figured that out. Yeah. Okay, but my, I have people listening who don't get to see that. What is going on, Dr. Hershenfeld? How smart are mice that they can be trained to do that? Well, every animal that has ever evolved has to have a great deal of intelligence in order to survive in the world. Um, so they're smart enough. And so but, the, the, the ones in New York, they, they know which apartments to go into. There's some kind of oral tradition, because if you kill one, somehow they know which... It could it could just be because they leave a trail of piss. <laughs> it's not it's not it's not necessarily an oral tradition. Um, so I think that that's <laughs> there's an anal tradition much, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, by, by the way, they may, they're smart enough to play basketball, but they don't play chess. No, they don't. Not yeah. well. Not well. Not. I'll bet you there's somebody out there who's taught mice to play chess. I read somewhere that a rat is one of the marvels of evolution. A rat can swim a quarter mile underwater. He can fit any hole that's big enough for his head to go into. He can wiggle his entire body through that hole. They are, if, if they didn't have those beady little eyes and little snouts, we would love them. Like I, And I happen to love them because, as I've told you before, I support this organization called Hero Rats, and they train the rats to sniff out landmines and to sniff out tuberculosis from sputum samples. It's really? an actual company because this guy, Bart, who figured it out. It turns out the rats, dogs have... Uh, senses of smell, many orders of magnitude more sensitive than ours, like a hundred times more powerful. And then the rats, another hundred times more powerful than the dog. They have super noses. So um, they're, ma they're magic. Rats are magic. Can you do psychological studies on rats and mice? And are they accurate? I know that they can study rats. That I think, I'm not being trying to be funny, I think rat vaginas are very similar to uh, human vaginas. How would you know this, David? I don't know. Maybe this is something I dreamt. And if I did dream that, what does it mean, doctor? That a woman's vagina is a lot like a rat's. No, I read that their uterus, you can study uh, my mother's uterus and it's just like a rat's. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I didn't reveal anything just now, did I? I feel like I, I don't want to engage on that particular thing, but I think that mammals, as mammals, we have a lot of things in common with each other, so you can study them, and uh, they're, they're, they're similar enough. Psychologists, the, the whole field of psychology, which I'm not a psychologist, I'm a psychoanalyst, in two different departments, but, but much of experimental psychology has been done with rats, and then they extend some of those insights over to human beings. I'm not sure I always buy that, to tell you the truth. One study I remember was that they took mother rats and they would separate them from their pups. So there was this intense desire to go back to the pup. But then they would give them either heroin or nicotine as a way of balancing off whether or not they would go back to the pups. And if I remember correctly, they would still go back to the pups for and miss a nicotine, a, a heroin fix, but not miss a nicotine fix. Yeah, I've read that. I, I've read that nicotine is harder to kick than heroin. That, that's what I've read. Uh, I I've heard that uh, if you put a mouse or a rat in a maze and you let them get close to the cheese, the cl but the 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 farther away from the cheese in the maze, the more calm and less violent the, the rat is. 
But if it gets close to the cheese in the maze but can't find it, it becomes very violent. And, and that's why we should never, that's why we shouldn't walk through first class, that, that people who are flying coach should be forced to enter from the back. Why do they let us, why do they show us what we can't have, Ethan? Yeah, I actually, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I haven't flown in a year, but I, I, I really prefer exiting the plane and, and yeah, the rear, that's how, that is how it should go. They should always have that going. Um, and if you're flying first class, if you've been bumped when, up. When? Please, when? Have you ever been bumped up? You're too young to remember when they used to bump you yeah, up. Yeah, no, I, got, I had a few vouchers from American Airlines back in the day. For an extra hundred bucks, they'd put you up front. Yeah. Your father and I are old enough to remember that, they, you know, that, that there would be a, a flight attendant who would look at you and say, you... You seem exhausted, Mr. Feldman. Let me bump you up to first. Has that ever happened to you, Dr. Hershenfeld? I never look exhausted. <laughs> I, I've gotten bumped. As a comedian, I would be so bedraggled. They would feel sorry. This was 20 years ago before everything had to be monetized. Yeah. Are, are you doing stand-up now, Ethan? Have you, I, I, I told you about him last week. I haven't done since last week after I had that that voiceover gig at the end of last week I, I came back up here to massachusetts and um why'd you say I what a, a week you, you said what a week like something oh i just felt like kicking it off in a, in oh. a spirit of drama and excitement um i did want to tell you one tale though um which is that i think i told you last week that i, I had had this audition for the role of a rabbi opposite pacino right. in that hunt nazi hunters so they didn't book me for that but then they said we want you to audition for the the waffen ss officer <laughs> so you know that I, I couldn't tell whether that was a compliment or an insult. Um, I haven't heard back, so I think I didn't book that. But I did. I got an audition today, which again, it's just the jokes are, I guess, writing themselves because it was an audition for that show, um, The Walking Dead, which I've never seen. I've never seen The Walking Dead, but uh, it's a popular show. Um, but I started reading the audition, and among other things, it said must be fluent in French, my character. So you know, I can I can make that work. Then it said, it said, note, this, <laughs> this character is only seen in silhouette. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's it. No face. We cannot. Um, so I told my agent, I said, that's good because I've been told that silhouette is my best angle. <laughs> so, um, but you enjoy, I don't know. You enjoy the auditions. What's that? You enjoy the auditions. I do enjoy the auditions. It's true. So I have uh, it's, the it's, weekend to prepare this French silhouette. Dr. Hirschenfeld, it's a, it's a special type of personality yeah. to enjoy the lack of control. To embrace an actor has to embrace the fact that it's kind yeah. of like being an Uber driver. You have no idea <sighs> what the next ride is going to be. And, you know. I, I would, I, before you let the doctor answer, let me just say, it, you definitely don't have to enjoy it or embrace it. You have to be able to withstand it. Because that's not the part of the, that's not the part of the, jo the job. That's the joy. It's, uh, that's, the tr that's the trial. Uh, but, but yeah. Please, I've heard doctor. actors describe auditioning as the real work. The money and getting the part is the gravy. But the, the real work is in getting the sides, getting it. And, yeah. and showing up. It's true. I mean, that's realistically, that is 90% of what you're doing. 
So that's right. Could you yeah. live that way, Dr. Hershenfeld, not knowing what tomorrow will bring? I think we all live that way, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. I don't. You know what's going to come tomorrow morning. I'm going to wake up, look around and go, this again. Even the the idea that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning, (laughs) you don't know that. It's a, I pretty much I, I I it's a form of control. I like to believe that I know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. but I, I saw Peter Falk on Inside the Actors Studio last night. It was from 1999, and he said, "I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to do nine to five. And I, I remember, and they are the it was in the Actors Studio, and they all cheered, mm-hmm. and I thought. Nine to five is pretty good. There, there's consistency. It, you know exactly what's going to happen. Nothing. Yeah, that was a really good Peter Falk voice. Very subtle. You just nailed it. Wow. Well, I, he's a great actor. Wow. Yeah. Um, I also had that feeling. That was clear to me. Excuse me. One more, I could, one more question for your father. Yeah, one just more, one more question. I don't mean to interrupt here, but yeah. you know, I was talking to my wife, Mrs. Colombo. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, I, in Germany, when you turn on the TV, at least 20 years ago, that was frequently on. He was a, he, that show was so popular in Germany. He's the, be- he's the best. Yeah. yeah. What about Wings of Desire? Well, I'm sorry? Wings of Desire. I've been well, that meaning to. That's a German oh, yeah, yeah. movie with Wings him, of right? Desire, right. It's a really yeah. serious movie. Yeah. About angels and wings, and, and, and Peter Falk was in it. I could never figure out what the hell was he doing in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, big celebrity. Yeah, that's your father's voice is fading, right? It's not. It's my... fading. No, it's it's something with his computer. Yeah, it's something with his computer. Yeah. I watched The In Laws two nights ago. Love it. The first time I saw it when it first came out, and I must have been smoking something. Uh, what a masterpiece of comedy that is. That is. Just and Peter Falk is is just amazing. What are you reading, Doctor Hershenfeld? It's the, summer's approaching. It are you going to take August off? Last August, you didn't take it off. I'm taking it off. I'm reading some Philip Roth, and I'm just starting to read it in, in Natalia Ginsburg. I, I don't you know, know her. No. No, well, you want to. Well, who is she? If you were an intellectual, you would know who Natalia Ginsburg You're stalling. Tell them who she is. One of the greatest uh, 20th century Italian writers. She wrote some great stuff, including Family Lexicon. That was probably her greatest book. She was an anti-fascist. She was um, she, she and her husband and three kids ran away to Rome to hide from the fascists. Uh, the Nazis caught him, tortured him to death, and on and on. And, uh, and she wrote some magnificent stuff. So comedies. Comedies, essentially, yeah. Hmm. What, are um, you, what are you reading, Ethan? I, I'm... I'm Sorry to say, I'm really. I've just been reading the news obsessively. I, it's a terrible habit that developed over the pandemic, and I haven't been able to break it. I need a good novel, honestly. So I started today 
yeah. reading the news and I wanted to, all right, we're going to talk. And I started reading about Fauci and Wuhan and the emails yeah. and did he know and could he have done that? And I thought, I ju- not today, not, you know, not this week. I can't do it this week. That whole obsession, I, I have to say, there, there was an article also about, and I've thought about this in the past, whenever there's a mass shooting, there's a, there's this scramble to talk about what was the guy's motive? And right. they're going to read every every scrap of paper and every paranoid note that he ever wrote and look at his emails. And on some level, I would always think it doesn't matter. What matters is that he shot all these people. It doesn't matter why he did it. And I, I kind of feel that way a little bit about, about uh, COVID. Maybe it came from this, maybe it came from that. We know what we have to do about it in either way. And we, you know that these labs have to be safe. I don't care that much where it came from. Although I will say, people are saying it, it came, from a, came from a lab but I really think it came from a poodle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Hershenfeld, should we care where the, the virus came from? Does it? Well, if it helps prevent the next one, which it may not, uh, there's, there's some uh, articles now about the fact that a fungus is gonna be the next big pandemic. Um, but, but as far as news, I find most of news is speculation. And who needs speculation? I can speculate all on my own. Guy, you have to speculate that. I went, yes. I, yours is better. <laughs> um, I, I, we need, uh, actually, we get an assist. You needed yeah. a speculate. I think we I needed. Yeah. You uh, needed a bridge from that to that. Yeah. But by the way, when you said uh, uh, fungus, I thought of maybe the first joke, one of the first jokes I ever wrote back in the Excuse late me, 90s. For one when second. I was briefly Excuse doing. For, hang on for one second. I, I, doing stand-up and I, I said you know i thought the athlete's foot was just a terrible name you know you don't want to name a shoe store after a fungus <laughs> that would that would be like naming a lingerie brand crabs <laughs> <laughs> I think, victoria's crabs victoria's crabs i think are you, are you doing that no, I haven't done that joke in 30, uh, 25 years. But is, is the athlete's is athlete's foot still open? I don't know if you can still do. Yeah, that's like doing doing a joke about Herman's sports. It's Herman's sporting <laughs> goods. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. You can tell Ben Burgess the next time you see him. But there is a way to shorten meetings. And this was studied. And they tried all sorts of things. But they, they studied it on rats, so it doesn't necessarily <laughs> apply. People. Only one thing worked, and it worked 100% of the time. You remove all the chairs from the room. And if people have to stand there much quicker in their deliberations, and they don't spout off and off, and they just say what has to be said, and they adjourn the meeting. That's what Winston Churchill taught the Queen, that when you have your weekly meeting with the prime minister, he should remain standing. There's nothing that a, your prime minister has to tell you that should make his feet hurt. Mm-hmm. It should be short enough so he can not have to s- sit down. That's interesting. But what about Zoom? How do you speed up a Zoom meeting? Good question. It's funny. Yeah. The It sounds like a fast meeting. It's called Zoom. Yeah, it should be fast. Uh, bef- um, go, go ahead. No, um, I was just someone asked about that 
a certain joke, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it offline. I, it's, it's something we already, we, we talked about before. Um, um, what do you, how reading? about you? Di- Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I, I try to take a, a news diet. I, I, this week I thought I'll, I'll do the shows. It's the Memorial day week, but I just can't, I start reading this stuff and, and I can't, it's not healthy to start getting angry and worked up over really important stuff. I'd rather get angry and worked up over nonsense. Oh, th- this I wanted I'm gonna to be say. Angry and worked up, I, but you may. Uh, on the subject of news, I was on a group text with some friends of mine, and one of them just kept s- sending memes and and this and that about about Israel and and Palestine, and I just finally had to say, look, let's. Uh, Let's exclude that topic from here. Let's. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to argue about it. I don't want to. I don't want to ignore it. But if you keep putting this in there, we're going to have to. Anyway, the person didn't take it well. We we then had a back and forth offline, and we 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 kissed and made up. But but yeah, I think uh, the whole news thing and all that it can be uh, it can be toxic. Well, the 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 stuff on Gaza and Israel. When you got to be careful who you're talking with because yeah. Uh, a lot of people uh, know everything, and they have an abs- They have these absolute convictions, right. and yeah. then when you politely ask how this, like, how do we do this, uh, they they'd rather just remain on the, their high horse without right. thinking this. Thinking things yeah, for too. me, for me, the reason I realized today, it came to me why the topic is is impossible for me to engage with anymore. Um, and I realized that my feelings about Israel are similar to my feelings about my brother, which is that it's both of them I identified with a lot, had great respect and almost worship of, and loved them, and then they behaved like such unadulterated, raging assholes <laughs> that. That's then I could, I just have to just completely cut them out of my consciousness. It's just so upsetting when something or someone that you care about a lot turns out to be a beast. You're talking about Israel? Yeah, to me, they, they've behaved in a beastly way for, well, for, uh, for decades. Uh, yeah. I, I, I still, but I still, and yet I still have, uh, the analogy isn't perfect, but right. I still have an attachment to the place and, um, you know. Just like with my brother, I don't believe he should cease to exist, but I can't have anything to do with someone that behaves that horribly. Yeah, but I think walking away and not using your influence to, it's still. No, but at a certain point, you have to cut, you have to say, I've tried. You can try and try and try. You can beat your head against the wall. So I disagree with you. I think you keep fighting for, I mean, Netanyahu is a problem. Yes. And he may not go peacefully. There's talk that he will pull another, you know, January 6th. No, he's very. And also, let me let me repeat that the analogy is not perfect. Um, If you judge, um, if you you judge all of it, excuse me for one second. Yeah. yeah. What Israel is doing, Netanyahu is an absolute pig. I think we can agree the settlers in the West Bank are horrible. uh, And Netanyahu is a disgrace. 
but you can't lump all Americans in with Donald Trump. And no, Matt absolutely. Gaetz. I'm and, talking about, though, uh, consistent decades of, of a policy that have been a complete failure. You're talking to about America the or most Israel? Critical question. You're talking about America or Israel? No, I'm talking. I'm talking about Israel not dealing with this problem that right. was born in many ways uh, in '67, the year before I was born. So my entire life, they've had my entire lifetime, over half a century, to to take stock and deal with what is an existential problem, and they just refuse to. The same and way America has not. I'm not saying I'm not you, you're you're uh, but you're to walk of, away uh, saying from what about you're what abouting me. I'm no, not, not talking what about you. I'm just saying you yeah. it, it's not easy, but to, they no, it's want not, but Netanyahu I don't live there. Wa- Netanyahu wants you yeah. to roll to go. I, I can't. That's what they want. Well, wants I still support. Away. I support peace now and I support B'Tselem and I, I support efforts to, to make peace. But uh, but I'm just talking about the, the government overall, if I can. Who am I to pass judgment? But, to, I, you know, in, 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 in toto, it's been a disaster. And, and by the way, Netanyahu, people are saying, oh, he's been in power for 12 years. He was also in power in the late 90s. This has right. been going on for 25 years almost. And the people, not, the people replacing him are yeah. no better. Although yeah. there are, there's labor and some Right, Arab, yeah, to have this, this right-wing maniac, right. this maniac settler, even briefly as a prime minister, it's a fucking disaster right you're talking about bennett yeah right yeah. well yeah. i i one of the first people i interviewed on this show was tom hayden the great the, the man who invented many say who invented the 60s with the port huron statement and he said never give up because that's what they want you to do they they want to, they, they have, they're really good at wearing you down and getting you to say, well, I tried. I'm too old for this. That's so you got to you know what's right. So, Dr. Hershenfeld, I'm right, right? We, we solved the Middle East problem. <laughs> we solved it again. Did you like this bumper that I built? Hang on. Let me show you. Where's I the, like it a lot. She's Yeah, hang on. People love these segments. Look at this. I, I just like that. The Hershenfelds. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, I like that it, it makes no sense. That's what I really... No, the, I this it. is a man. He's stressed out. He can't take it. He's been listening to my show for two hours. She can't take it. And then, oh, the Hershenfelds are coming on. Oh, oh I thought it was the suggestion somehow that one of the two of us or both of us were like psychic mediums. Like, <laughs> no. They, oh, they, okay. They're both listening to my show and they're miserable. And she opens wow. her eyes and says, oh, it's the Hershenfelds, not David Feldman. Dr. Hershenfeld, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you send me a copy of that, I will paste it on my front door. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, Before you go, uh, okay. Thug Thug Jew is the name of the Uh, album. John Ross wanted to do the news with you. If you, oh yeah, maybe on Monday or something. Yeah, let's do it. That would be awesome. Great. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And uh, this is a very exciting moment because coming up 
is Jim Earl, Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer. He hasn't been on the show for a while. A lot of people have written in and said, what happened to Jim Earl? And he took a little break, uh, but he's back, and I can't wait to, to talk to him. But first, let's go to Kenny Bunk, Maine. I believe uh, Jim Earl's uh, gonorrhea tests are Is that No, I think... I don't know what that is, but it isn't. Pre- uh, please welcome the senator from the great state of Maine. Please welcome Senator Susan Collins. <laughs> welcome, Senator Susan Collins. From greetings, Maine. greetings, and thank you, David. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. David, I want to wish you and all the other toothless monkeys listening to your podcast (laughs) a big, hearty, happy National Hot Dog Month. Oh, thank you. David, thank you. Did you know, David, that in celebration of National Hot Dog Month, the Portland Sea Dogs are changing their name to the main red snappers? The, the Portland Sea Dogs? You, you mean the baseball team? Our proud minor league baseball team with a big main appetite for big red snappers. <laughs> Did you ever have an appetite for a hot wiener, David? Wait, wait, I'm confused. Uh, are, are we talking about wieners or snappers here? Oh, get your mind out of the gutter. Don't be such an asshole, David. (laughs) Big main red snappers are wieners. And to celebrate the launch of the main red snappers, I'll be giving out my free big red snapper box (laughs) to all the staff at the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital in Snapper Box, Maine. In Snapper Box, Maine. Where exactly is Snapper Box, Maine? Smack dab in the middle of Cornhole (laughs) County. Why? (laughs) Cornhole County. How are the roads up there? Always muddy and and with lots of cracks. Why? (laughs) Well, I was hoping to take a road trip this summer uh, there. Is the state of Maine open for business now? Of course it is, David. June has traditionally been the month that Mainers bring out their big red snappers in eager anticipation of wide-eyed vacationing New Yorkers. Yes, yes. I still have fond memories of my dad driving the family up to Maine just to see all the big red wieners. You can say that again. Okay, I still have fond memories of my dad driving the family up to Maine just to see all the big red wieners. Why do I get the feeling you're taking something perfectly innocent and turning it into something unspeakably dirty? Having an inquisitive mind, I've always wondered, why are your big red snappers so red? Well, as you know, David, fresh beef is red because myoglobin 
molecules bind with oxygen. Once dead, your meat is deprived of that oxygen, turning your once proud red meat wiener into a sad, unappetizing pale gray. Hmm. Then what makes Maine's red snapper wieners so red? A menacing cocktail of cancer-causing chemicals and friction. Wait, you mean when New Yorkers nibble on a big Maine red snapper wiener, they're risking cancer? And ADHD. Attention deficit disorder. Yes, Dave. The University of Maine is home to the world's largest 3D printer. And I'm proud to announce that in conjunction with the Maine's lobster industry and the Department of Defense, we have just printed the world's biggest lobster using shredded Stephen King novels and reconstituted alpaca anuses. Wow. I can't go into the science behind this project, but rest assured, it will only be used to benefit a few people before falling into the hands of Elon Musk. Well, thank you so much, Senator Susan Collins, for the updates on your state's big red snapper situation, as well as the breakthrough in printing the world's largest lobster made from shredded Stephen King novels and reconstituted alpaca anuses. Anything else you'd like to say before you go? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) That about sums it up. Okay. Oh, wait. I almost forgot, David, the pandemic has caused an unprecedented rise in mental health challenges. Yes, it is. Thank you for bringing that up. And I want people to know the great state of Maine is here to help. If you or a loved one is struggling, call up some other fucking state because we've run out of phones. (laughs) You've run out of phones. Okay. We've run out of phones. Uh And happy National Red Snapper Wiener Month! Thank you. Red Snapper Wiener Month! Big Red Snapper Wiener Month. Thank Big you, Red Senator. Big Red Snapper Wiener Month. Ladies and gentlemen. Happy National Big Red Snapper Wiener Month. Martha Previtt. Follow. Follow. Follow Martha Previtt on Twitter at Diabetic Fury. On Instagram at Martha Previtt. And subscribe to her Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash Martha Previtt. I'm going to speak with Dan Frankenberger and we'll figure out uh, when I hope uh, we'll do one this month, the Diabetic Fury. Thank you, Martha. Please welcome. Thank you, David. Please welcome to our microphones. Let's go back to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer and FBI informant Jim Earl is standing by. Please welcome Jim Earl. Hello, Jim. Okay. Goodbye. Hey, Dave. Hey, what happened to you? I'm uh, my camera is uh, is is. Oh, you know what? I here now. I have to turn your video on. There you go. There you go. That's a beautiful piece. Who is that? That's uh, me in high school. Yeah, it's, you were so young, and 
so can we see your face? That's it. That's I know. It, now we know. see your face and we see your wiener, but do you want to turn your video on and we can talk? Hey, now you always got to bring it down to that level, and I don't understand that. But All right, talk to me about Wuhan, because I, I have the week off. I'm doing shows, and I saw the Fauci emails. Well, what's going on with the Fauci emails? You want to talk about Wuhan wiener? No, what? I want to talk about whether or not Anthony Fauci gave us uh, COVID. Because I can't, I just, my flat line when I start reading about this. Personally, he gave me COVID. Uh, Are we going to see you? Story. Are we going to see you? We dated. Are, are you going to turn your video on? No, that's it for me th this week. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I've, I've had a hard week. Uh, my hair is a mess. Uh, I had, I was mauled by a bear. Hmm. Well, that would be fun to see you. All right. And Martha, are you going to turn your video on? I was mauled by that same bear. You were David. mauled by that Sorry. same bear. Okay. Uh, let me show you. Or do you want to comment on the, the, the Fauci emails and bring us up to date? Myself? Yeah. What's going on with the Fauci emails? I, I think it's just showing that he's kind of an indecisive schlub and... Uh, the, which I, I kind of suspected from the very beginning, you know, he's, 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 did, and, did, as, and where, did, for the, where did the, where did the virus come from? In a, a, a tube of exploding Prell concentrate. And that's what you said from the beginning. Yes. And I stand by my theory. Right. Because, you know, you ever seen one of those explode in your shower, you know what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. And are you still an anti-vaxxer who thinks we should get the vaccine? No, you idiot. I'm an anti-faxer. Oh, I don't right. think I don't think anybody should be getting faxes <laughs> this day and age. They're not safe. No, they're not safe. And they take too long. And they just, it's an utter waste of time. And a lot of diseases came into our world once we started faxing. Did you notice but, that? Yeah, AIDS, AIDS didn't exist. AIDS did not exist before faxing. Right? Uh, you know, uh, it may have, it may, I don't know. That's uh, some research that you should, we should get look, into. We Maybe should look should into one. it. You have like 28 professors on your show. Yeah, but I agree. I'm an anti-faxer as well. I, I think that when the story is told about faxing, that a lot of climate change might stem from faxing and uh, and people are still still faxing. It's still going on. Well, yeah. And, you know, people are requiring that the government requires it in many, many, many government agencies. Uh, your agents, if you have one still, probably requires you to fax something back and forth. It's always some idiotic thing, you know? It's just, we gotta get up to date with this. And who owns all the big faxing machines? Hewlett Packard, which is part of Silicon Valley. They want us to fax because that's how they keep track of us. It's a complete uh, loss fax, of personal Faxcom owns. What, I'm sorry? Faxcom. Faxcom, yes. Well, would you like to talk about important children? You know, I always believe that we should take it easy on, on the children of 
important people because well, you can't pick your parents, right? See, that's where I disagree with you uh, right away. I don't think there are any important children. Right. Can you guess who this is? You see that? That's... Uh... Do you know who that is? Isn't that Hall Hall or Oates? <laughs> Martha, would you like to venture a guess? That's Susan Collins' Moose Merkin. <laughs> it looks like Susan Collins' Moose Merkin. No, it's the daughter of a very powerful, influential American who is dedicating his or her life to making our lives better. And there she is. You know who that is? That's that's Vice President Harris's stepdaughter. She's a fashion model. The she's the Emoff girl, and we're very. She looks like the new host on Jeopardy. Yes, she's Ella Emoff, and she just got her first Vogue cover celebrating the return of the mullet. This is you know we we make fun of the Biden administration and and the Vice President. She gets cover of Vogue. And, and, you, and do you know who didn't get cover of Vogue? Who Melania? At all? Who Melania? Just Melania. Right, but you know you criticize the Biden administration, Jim Earl. But look, look at the the vice president's stepdaughter graduated from uh, the New School's Parsons School of Design in New York City, and is devoting her life to fashion. Her father's Doug Emoff, the the Hollywood attorney. These are the values mm-hmm. that, that we need to share with the rest of the country. This is why Biden won, because Doug Emoff and, and Kamala Harris instill the importance of public service into their, their children and stepchildren. Well, I, I think Joe Biden won because... Uh, Donald Trump and his government killed half a million people. But I also attribute that to the mullet as well. Yeah. I think the mullet has contributed to the deaths of many Americans. This is a serious family, the Emoffs from Los Angeles, who married our vice president. They are concerned. They're worried about us. They wake up every day, as we can see, by the daughter going to the new school's Parsons School of Design now, her, her stepmother is the vice president of the United States. She could travel around the world. She could join the Peace Corps. She could have access to all the great things that our government or NGOs are doing to make people's lives better. And she's, you know, working for Vogue magazine, celebrating the mullet. These are good people. This, this is, is the very, future. It's very sexist of you. No, I, I'm yeah. very proud to be part of the K-Hive. I think Doug Emoff, the Hollywood attorney, married to our vice president, uh, I think his record as a lawyer, when we find out what he's been doing as an attorney, I think people are going to fall more and more in love with our vice president. And you know, I, he, see, he works in Hollywood. I bet he uses the facts, too. I bet he uses the facts, and I bet he's pro-union. He's a corporate attorney in L.A., and I guarantee you when we start doing the oppo research, we're going to find out that he turned down a lot of, lot of uh, 
clients because they were, you know, trying to do movies and television shows in non-union states. I guarantee you Doug Emhoff is a friend of the unions. Now, you know who this is? Is that uh, Madonna? No, that is Pat Sajak's daughter, who's going to law school, Pat Sajak, and his son. This is from uh, probably uh, two decades ago. This is Pat Sajak, and that's his two children. And look, he's got, you know, Pat's got kind of a top mullet thing going on. Yes, there. he does. And his son just graduated from medical school. Sajak, the host of Wheel of Fortune, has a, a daughter who is, is a lawyer, and his son just graduated from medical school. What kind of values is that? What kind of parenting is that, Jim, to have, have a, a, a kid? With all that's going on in the world... Yes. Yes. Why would you ask your son to go be a doctor when th there are mullets that must be celebrated on the cover of Vogue magazine? This is why it's important that celebrities stay out of politics. Somebody like Pat Sajak, he doesn't have the right values like Doug Emhoff and, and our vice president. You know, every horrible weekend, parenting skills to have a, 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 a to raise a kid to be a lawyer or a doctor. These, you know, these every every weekend, hosts. Martha, every weekend, Martha and I go out to Goose Rocks Beach here in Kennebunk to yeah. dig up mullets in the sand. I, I think those are mollusks. Oh, no, there are a lot of decapitated people. All right. Off um, of Walker's Point. Yeah. Hey, I was reading about Pat Sajak, and it turns out two years ago... You're obsessed ago, with this man. You're obsessed with no, the game show host. I'm just saying, why does a, a game show host uh, have better parenting skills than Doug Amoff and uh, Kamala Harris as a stepmom? Are you resenting people who get an education with their father's multi-millions? Multi no, no. I, I the point I'm making is that Pat Sajak has done a better job. A game show host has done a better job as a parent than uh, Doug Emhoff, the vice president's husband. That's I, what I'm, I'm saying. Like, I don't know. I can't make a value judgment. I can. On the if you're going to use the name and trade off the fact that your stepmom is the vice president, do something important with your life not celebrating the mullet on the cover of Vogue magazine when uh, something like half this country can't afford rent and is, is facing an eviction crisis. And, and your stepmom is, is the vice president of the United States and you're mm -hmm. out on the cover of Vogue celebrating the, the, the mullet. What kind of values, what kind of home did this kid grow up in? Well, what... What exactly did Kermit Roosevelt do with his name? He served in World War II. Yeah, with oh, a name no, no. like You're, Kermit. And then he overthrew the Shah of Iran and joined the CIA. Kermit Roosevelt. Yeah. It's not easy. Well, and he was, I'm telling you something, Kermit Roosevelt overthrew the Shah, but he was an environmentalist and he was working for the oil companies. As Kermit said, it's not easy being green. 
Kermit said it's it's not. We're not getting a laugh for that one. I'm not getting, getting a laugh for that one. No, no, let's go back to trashing the children of the powerful. I just want to trash children in general because I'm sick to death of them. To tell you the truth, I've I've had it. You know, I'm not for. I, I I'm I'm serious here. The the reason this country has turned to shit is we don't have uh, rich people willing to pay taxes because they want to save it all for their idiot kids. You know, to get, get rid of the estate tax. They want to bring back primogeniture in this country. Everybody who has money is trying to pass it on to their idiot kids. Well, your kids are not worth it. Maybe if you're Pat Sajak, Pat Sajak, Pat Sajak, Vietnam vet, by the way, uh, conservative, served our country. He's raised, he's got great parenting skills. Not Doug Emhoff. The Kennedys raised, you know, as much criticism as I have of the Kennedys, at least they, they instilled public service. Hunter Biden? Jesus, have you seen those pictures of Hunter Biden smoking crack? I took them. <laughs> of course I've seen them. We had a great time. Have you, you know, and have you heard what, what the you conversations will. that Hunter Biden has had about his drug addiction? He doesn't tell you how to get help for drug addiction. There you go again. What you're doing is you're sowing division in the Democratic Party and you're helping Donald Trump's uh, get to a second term. And this is why we had Donald Trump to, in the beginning, because people like you were pointing out how horrible the Democrats were and how everything they stood for was a joke and what serial liars and corrupt criminals they were. Jim, and Jim that is just sowing division. I'm sick of you being an apologist for, for Vice President Joe Biden and President Harris or whatever they are. You, you have you, <laughs> you all you do is look the other way when it's your side. Hunter Biden, we're supposed to feel bad because Hunter was addicted to crack and was making porno videos with with prostitutes. But, you know, Hunter has this book tour in America. You can't see these photos of his meth teeth. You can't see any photos of Hunter Biden smoking crack. They exist around the world, but not here in America. You can't see those those photographs of Hunter Biden smoking crack. And and you would think if you're the president of the United States and your own son is a crack addict, you would dedicate the rest of your life to providing free treatment on demand for opiate addiction, for, for any drug addiction. You're the president of the United States. Your own son is a crack addict. Hey. You would you would devote the rest of your life to free treatment for drug addiction in america i don't want to hear or free porn or free because, porn. yes because i i don't think i don't think hunter would have turned to crack if there had been free porn okay don't come on my show jim and and defend joe biden because it, it's getting tiresome okay i'm not defending joe biden but i'm defending hunter biden's lifestyle i'm all for it i think that guy's lived a lifetime none of us can dream of and from now on, here on, he's, he's just coasting. Yeah. How many of us, especially the people out there in the, your audience right now in the chat room, I don't think there's a single person in that chat room who wouldn't give a million dollars to trade places with Hunter, Hunter Biden and his teeth and his porn background. So you think 
you, you think Hunter Biden is qualified to, to work for Burisma, to get these jobs for, for Chinese venture capitalists. You think at the height of his crack addiction, he deserved a job with Burisma and, and a, a Chinese venture capitalists. You think he was up for the job? I'll go one step further and say I think he's qualified for his father's job. You think Hunter Biden should run for president? Definitely. Definitely. He's a he's an American success story. He has uh, weathered the storm of addiction and adversity. And he has written a, a, a book selling book. And that's how you cure crack addiction, by the way. Write a best selling book. Because that seems to be the answer from the Biden family. They don't talk right. about free treatment on demand for drug addicts. It's just write a book and, you know, open up about how bad your life was. And that that will cure your opiate addiction or your crack addiction. Just just give an interview to Oprah about your depression in America. And that that solves the problem. We don't need free mental health care in this country. Jim Earl, go ahead. You get the last word. I disagree with you. You're you're a Biden apologist. I'm sick of it. You get the last word. Okay, I may be a Biden apologist, but I'm also a traitor. So don't forget that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Jim Earl, FBI. Proud of both. Proud of both. Jim Jim Earl, FBI informant and traitor. Thank you for coming on the show. Martha, we'll talk next week. Over the weekend, we'll plan. Thank you, David. We we will plan the uh, next Diabetic Fury. Thank you. See you in court. See you in court. Let's go to... Washington, D.C., I suspect, where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by for nearly a quarter of a century. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn ran Americans United for Separation Church and State. Besides being an attorney, he's also a barrister, as well as a member of the Supreme Court Bar and an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Please welcome Barry W. Lynn. Thank you very much. It's good to see you here. Now, good to see you. It's amazing. Sorry, that was, that's your theme song. Yeah, this background is fake. That's there's, fake? There's no place like this in Washington. Really? No, there's none. Okay. It's just a scam. Oh. I just wondered how long I could pull it off, and I finally decided after listening you know, to Jim and, and Martha, that uh, I should be honest for a change. Yeah. Unlike, yeah, so. unlike Jim, who will defend the Biden administration. If Jim, for Jim, it's just a sporting event. And it's his team. <laughs> as long as his team is winning, which is the Democratic Party, he's fine. He doesn't care. Who are the Federalists? Not, not, well, not, not George Washington. The Federalist Society, you're a lawyer. Who are the Federalists? Yeah, the, the Federalist Society is an ultra-conservative group of uh, both lawyers and law students uh, who believe, among other things, that we have, we're living in the midst of, an, of a horrible cancel culture where conservative law students can barely get a word in edgewise before they're shut down by the monstrosity that is the legal establishment, including law schools. We'll get to the and law schools. We'll get to the I mean, law schools. It's one of the most effective organizations. They are doing so much better at recruiting young law students than any of 
the progressive counterparts. Very powerful. The three Supreme Court justices, Gorsuch, Barrett, and uh, and the rapist. The, uh, Kavanaugh. The rapist, I said. Yeah, the rapist. <laughs> they all were approved and found by the Federalist Society? Yes. And, of course, another justice, Sam Alito, just gave a speech recently to a Federalist Society convention in which he talked about cancel culture in law schools and what a terrible thing it was and how damaging it was to the future of conservative law students. And the Federalist Society, if you're a Federalist, as opposed to somebody who is into federalism, like federalism is the tension between states' rights and the federal government. Correct. But the Federalist Society, their, their name is deceptive. They believe in states' rights. They believe in dismantling the administrative state, getting rid of Social Security, getting rid of Medicare, Medicaid, pretty much storming the Capitol and setting it on fire. They, they don't believe in the federal government. Is that a fair statement? I think it's a fair statement. So they should be called the anti-federalists. Correct. And there are a few, and, including one who's made quite a name for himself at Stanford Law School just in the last week. But we'll get to him in a second. Okay. So would it be fair to say that if you're a member of the Federalist Society, that that you preferred the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution? I think a lot of these uh, lawyers and law students associated with the Federalist Society would like to do that. Now, when you're as a member of the Supreme Court Bar, when you sit down with these people, you talk about gun control, you talk about whether or not Obamacare should be upheld by the Roberts Court. Do you ever ask these people, what is it that you really want? What, what, what in a perfect world, if you could get all nine justices to be your picks, you can pick all nine. What would you like to see Washington look like in 20 years? Would they tell you? Would they be honest enough to tell you? No, I mean, the, the most honest uh, answer to that question was from a longtime anti-tax activist who said he wanted the government to be so small that you could drag it into a bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. So he's for the government providing running water. <laughs> Only if you pay for it. Yeah. So, you OK. Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist. And... They're not against the government giving him money, right? They're for largesse from the government as long as it's going to their friends. Of course. And we saw that during the uh, loan program during COVID, when not only did he, but Ralph Reed and all these other people who claim to want limited government and don't want the government to give people money were so happy to take the money themselves, not dissimilar to all the people who voted against the last COVID relief package and now are promoting the pieces of it that help their states. 
even though they never tell the voters they voted against the passage of the last relief bill. And so if you sat down, you know, we've had, uh, I don't want to mention any names. I I do have a couple of conservatives on this show, uh, and I don't want to mention any names. Will they admit that they want to see each state to be a laboratory of democracy. And then once that happens, each city, they don't want any government whatsoever. They they honestly believe that a government creates a nation of dependence and, and, and the government robs you of freedom and individuality. And the less government we have, the more freedom there is. That's what they believe. No, that is absolutely what they believe. And I think many of them would actually say that. They would, but then they would say, but, and then they would say, but of course, on the national level, we do have to defend the country. And if you start talking about a 5% reduction in the defense budget, even a 5%, you know, I, I think we should have a, at least a third cut in the defense. But they will say, well, no, we can't do that because you never know what's going to happen next. You'll never know. So we have to be prepared for everything from a military's perspective, but nothing else. And their nothing definition else. of freedom is what? Because left to their own devices, the rich, and I would assume the Federalist Society is really in the service of the rich, of the Koch brothers, not really in the service sure. of the, the the 10th Amendment, as they claim. They, no. They're really, you know, working for their money. Uh, I would assume that their idea of freedom is not paying taxes, because I don't have any freedom. If you don't have any money, if you have a job, And they're against the minimum wage. They're against the 40-hour work week. They're against child labor laws. So what is their definition of freedom? When you sit them down and say, so kids who can't uh, afford to live with their parents should go get a job, how are they free? Like, what is their answer to that? You know, Newt Gingrich in 2012 talked about getting rid of child labor laws. So... What is their definition of freedom? But he would say, I've talked to him a couple of times. He would say it's all up to the market to decide so that if companies want to give a minimum wage, that's fine. If they want to provide child care, that's fine, too. But they don't want the government to force companies to do much of anything. Right. So yeah. I, ha- I have an, uh, I'm living in an apartment in, in Manhattan. I have a closet and uh, I have uh, a rodents. You know, it's Manhattan. You get rodents. Sure. They're they're more successful on Wall Street. But uh, yeah. here. Uh, and so. I'll talk a big game about, you know, trying to be a Buddhist, be a vegan. But when it comes to rodents and insects, this is my shithole. And you're yeah. and I'm I will I will say and do anything to keep these rodents out of my life. I know they exist, 
You're never going to get rid of rodents. If you have to kill them, kill the rodents. I don't want to know about them. I'm lucky. I'm a human being. They're rodents. I I won the genetic lottery. They didn't get them out of my life. My view towards the rodents in my apartment is how the Federalist Society, after a couple of drinks, views the 99%. Rodents. Yeah. Right? I mean, yes. right? No, they, it, yes, it, it, that is correct. And they... they so how uh, do I become one of those? How can I start looking at the 99... What's the key, Reverend? So I don't have to deal with rodents I want out of this. I just want to be part of that. And I want to be rich and successful and look at other human beings as rodents, which I really do deep down inside. So why can't (laughs) I look at everybody, not just the 99%. I look at everybody as a rodent. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I get a TV show. Yeah. And make a lot of money and don't pay the people that work on the show with you much of anything and then and take all of their money and call them and rodents. You too. And you can you can call it fair. You can say, I just want to be fair. I it's took like the risk. Jeffrey Epstein used to say to the lawyers who were suing him uh, before his untimely death or murder, he would say, I just want to be fair about this. I just want to be. Fair. You can say the same thing. I just want to be fair. And then as far as the, the rodent thing, you know, Janists, uh, I, I think I only actually know one person who's a Janist, but Janists believe so much in the sanctity of life. They literally sweep the pavement in front of them oh, you're talking in the room to avoid the possibility that they'll step on an insect. You're talking, these are, they live in India, right? Yes. And they have like rat, they have like temples they believe that their relatives come back. I'm being serious. As rats, right? Yeah. Well, as, as something, yes. Uh, I know my relatives they, they came, believe, came back as rats because they started they that way. Reincarnation, most of them, yes. And they believe, and they, and they worship the rats, right? They bring offerings. To, I don't think they worship rats. I think they do. I think they have. They bring offerings to rats. I think there's a, there's a oh. rat temple in India. And they like votives and they bring treats and they go, let's go see grandma and grandpa. And they feed rats. I'm going to be looking into that. Hmm? You look into I'm going to be looking into that before next week. I'll have an answer on the do they worship rats question. And I here's promise. my and we'll get to Stanford because this was yep. all leading up to the big question. I, I all this line of questioning, your honor, was. To, to lay at the feet of the Reverend Barry W. Lynn blame for, for my situation. Now, we have just established that there is a religion where you can get people not only to believe that their relatives come back as rats, you can get people to pay to build a temple to rats, pay to travel to the temple, pay to feed the rats, and believe that those are their dead relatives. And yet, for five years, you've been promising to write up the papers for the Church of Feldman, and you still won't do it. We could, if you can get people to to pay to feed their dead relatives because they think they're rats, or rats because they think, 
I, I'm sitting on a gold many, mine here. How many times have I told you, you don't have to do anything but declare the Church of Feldman's existence. You don't have to file paperwork. Churches just get the tax exemption and all the benefits That's what I've been asking. with I, it. I've been asking you for you five years. You don't have to years. do anything. David, don't do anything. You just, just write out a piece of paper as soon as this show is over at like five in the morning and just write and say, I have decided to form the Church of Feldman and I will be accepting donations. That's all you need to do. Will you be, don't have to file it with anybody. Just write it up. And, and I'm not going to pay taxes. To be a religious it. institution. And I don't have to pay taxes. No. And what do we worship? We worship tax-free donations. That's exactly right. We, we, well, don't say we. I, I got my own church. You have your own but church? Your church, the one that I'm going to help you with, is your church. The, it's not called the Church of Lynn Feldman or Feldman Lynn. It's just the Church of Feldman. You about, deserve it. You've worked hard to maintain this. And, very hard. And we, and, and we worship tax-free donations. That's, that's how you get into heaven, by donating money to the Church of Feldman so I don't have to pay taxes. All right, Stanford. Yeah, that's Stan- pretty much Joel Osteen kind of did that. Like, give me money, I'll fly around the world, and uh, I'll get you into heaven. Okay, Stanford. Yeah. Stanford University. Very conservative college campus. Pretty conservative. Firing line. The the papers, Bill Buckley left the firing line papers and tapes to the Hoover Institute. It's where Condi Rice came from. It's where the military-industrial complex set up camp to build Silicon Valley. They have a law school. Yep. Tell me about their law school. I understand there was a graduation, or there is a, there's going to there's, be a graduation. There's one coming up, and uh, everyone was going to uh, graduate except uh, one man named Nicholas Wallace. And Nicholas Wallace uh, only found out about a week ago that he was under investigation by the law school itself for violating a conduct code it's set up within the law school. And his offense was he sent out a flyer that um, I, I, just, I want to read you what it said. The flyer was promoting an event called the Originalist Case for Inciting Insurrection. It said it was sponsored by Stanford's chapter of the Federalist Society, and that it was going to discuss uh, how it was that you could from an originalist, constitutionalist perspective, support the idea of taking over the government by force. And it's specifically mentioned the qualifications of people like Senator Josh Hawley, who, of course, was one of the insurrectionist promoters himself. And um, so he got, got, um, uh, Mr. Wallace was accused of uh, violating the ethics code for the students by putting out this false and inflammatory, defamatory flyer and sending it out on a listserv about politics. 
So they were going to stop him from obtaining a diploma, which he would have needed in order to take the bar exam in the state of Michigan, where the guy lives. And uh, this was festering over the last 48 hours or so. And then just recently, just within hours, they've Stanford having gotten a complaint from an organization that protects the free speech rights of all students. They said, you can't do this because this is obvious satire. No thinking person would believe that this flyer was actually coming from the Stanford chapter of the Federalist Society. And they said, because there is a California law that says private universities need to adhere to the principles of the First Amendment in order to function in the state. And of course, satire is protected by the First Amendment, by the free speech clause, because uh, no small measure because of a successful lawsuit by Larry Flint, noted pornographer against Jerry Falwell. Larry had put an ad, a fake ad in one of his magazines uh, based on that Campari. Campari was a popular drink for about 10 minutes. And uh, it, it had a campaign called The First Time, and it was basically supposed to talk about the first time you had a Campari and soda. But he put in this ad, the first time, claimed that Jerry Falwell had sex for the first time with his mother in an outhouse. Right. It was great. The original the, the original Campari ad. The original came into Flint before the Supreme Court argument in that case. And uh, he was very high on winning, which he did. And of course, this was in a, 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 a great movie, actually, with Woody Harrelson playing Larry Flint. Right. But satire is protected speech. Right. And so that finally, Sanford Law School, as if it was trying to prove that it was as good as Yale Law School, decided the other night, uh, we changed our mind. Mr. Wallace can graduate and get his diploma. So they saw the light. But why in the world would a somewhat prestigious law school like Stanford, even for a moment, think they could penalize one of their students for putting out a satirical, obviously satirical piece about the Federalist Society. I'd say they should go back to school, study the First Amendment, and then not make a mistake like this again. But now you say that these are the same people who bemoan the cancel culture. They all, of course they do. They they believe that they are put upon, that they are But didn't they just cancel refused. somebody? Weren't they just canceling somebody? Yes, of course. Right. But they've been canceling people forever. See, that's the thing about cancel culture, which I'm, I'm not against cancel culture. I am for comedians and other people. And, um, you know, I like what, what Professor Burgess says about that. But as far as political decisions... I think some people ought to be canceled. I think it's perfectly appropriate for people to look at the history of someone, their political history, and decide, I'm not going to hire that person because she worked or he worked for Donald Trump. I'm not going to hire such a person. I think that's perfectly reasonable. There are people who change, like myself, who used to be a very conservative when I was in high school, but then you grow up you change your mind. But if you're out of law school, for example, and you're looking for a job and you got a job for a while in the Trump administration, I don't think you're going to change. 
So if you just say, that's not a qualification I'm looking for, so I don't want to hire you, that's okay. Now, I you, mean, uh, let's say there was Twitter back when you were a conservative in high school and you were tweeting. What kind of tweets would come back to haunt you now? Because if you're a conservative in high school now, I'm going to say there's a 90% chance that you will have some tweets that will get you canceled for saying horrible things about gays, blacks, Mexicans, Arabs, Jews, right? Yeah, I don't. Isn't that what it means to be a conservative now? Hmm? Isn't that what it means to be a conservative now, to, to, to be a racist, yeah, but to be a misogynist? You can still have black friends. You can say, yes, but look at Alan Keyes. He's black, you know, and you, as long as you can name two or three African-Americans that are conservatives, then you can say, so, so I'm not a racist. I love Alan Keyes. I wish he was still at the United Nations serving as our ambassador. When you paint an entire party with such a broad brush, is yes. that unfair? As I just did, I'm saying that if you vote Republican, you don't believe in small government. You either have a lot of money or you hate somebody, some group. Is that fair? I, well, I think it's accurate. I think it's accurate. You know, we, we've created, and by we, I mean like the CNN has worked so hard to create the impression that there are this group of grow, a growing number of Republicans who are really hardcore, decent people. Look at Liz Cheney. Look at Adam Kitzinger. Look at... Governors, they love Mike DeWine. They love the governor of New Hampshire, Sununu's, of course, John Sununu's son, uh, as if they're promoting these people to make it exciting when they try to figure out in the next election cycle what's going to happen. I mean, if Sununu runs for Senate in the state of New Hampshire, he's very likely to take out the incumbent Democrat because he's so popular and People have been convinced because he's on CNN so often. He's just one of these moderate. He's the old fashioned kind of Republican, but he right. isn't. He's an ultra conservative. And what does it mean to be an ultra conservative? Forget Republican. What does an ultra conservative mean now? I mean, you were a, a you person, were a conservative as a as a teenager. What did you believe in back then? And what would well, you? I, I believed in extreme individualism. In other words, that your responsibilities really were just to think about yourself, maybe your immediate family, but that you had no responsibility to um, to the community. And, and I believed that literally until I, I, and I think I talked about this once on office hours. I went to a debate between Bill Buckley and Norman Thomas, who was then very old, very frail the founder of the Socialist Party. And at the end of that debate, when Norman Thomas was talking about how important it was to think about the community and your responsibility to it, that I realized that I, I couldn't honestly go to Sunday school, hear about being 
uh, of use to the least of these among us and still have this kind of individualism that Buckley was promoting and which he promoted in such an extraordinarily singular fashion in that debate I watched as a high school senior at Lehigh University. It literally changed my life. Now, we talk about Bill Buckley a lot on this show because he is the father of, well, I guess at one time, modern conservatism. And you debated him countless times on firing line? Yeah, four specials and a bunch of other times. Okay. I have been watching, I I watched John Henry Falk the other night Mm. debating Bill Buckley about whether or not to get rid of the House on American Activities Committee. John Henry Falk, by the way, was falsely accused of being a communist, and he was blacklisted, and he hired Louis Neiser and sued the people who were doing the blacklisting, and he won only to discover that the people who were doing the blacklisting had no money, that they were right. they were a fraudulent organization. Correct. And once again, I watched Bill Buckley thinking this is going to be an interesting debate. And once again, I found Bill Buckley. And I'm not saying this because I'm a lefty. uh, Incoherent. Vicious. And not that smart. He, you know, a lot of. uh, What does sesquipedalian mean? I have no idea. Okay. Like, that's the kind of thing he would say. (laughs) And, you know, hateful, hateful human being, but kind of like Reagan and George W. Bush put a pretty face, uh, put a nice intellectual patina to racism. Right? That is correct. No, I mean, he was a, um, he he made lots of mistakes. He was, in his own way, um, the kind of person. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, most people, you know, think I was a close friend of his, and I and I wasn't because I I thought he was sloppy. He would make a lot of errors in his publications and his the kind of casual mistakes that he would make. Christopher just Hitchens. having a conversation with somebody. Hitchens. And, uh, but Bill Buckley was the exactly the same way and much more dangerous. Christopher Hitchens had an important, a small but important following. Buckley was the father of conservatism in America. And he was was CIA, openly so. Correct. Oil money. He got his money. His father was in oil. And he was not about to bite the hand that uh, got him there. Yale and... He was in the service of the ruling class. He was vicious. And he literally said black people are not ready to be given the vote in, in the 1960s. This is what. The, so rugged individualism is. Are there any honest conservatives you can name? Is there anybody who. Well, honest conservatives that people might have heard of. One of my very frequent uh, debate opponents in after you know Buckley was long gone was Jay Sekulow, who is now the law, a lawyer, right. a private lawyer uh, for uh, president, the, the president who's coming back in August, yes. Donald J. Trump. He took, he took and, a couple and months Jay, off. But Jay is in favor of he, he, anti-death penalty, 
because he believes that governments should have limited power. And that certainly means they don't have the power to kill you. He's, um, he's for Medicare for all. Many people found that surprising. I, I suspect if, uh, if he had a chat with Trump about that, maybe he wouldn't be the lawyer for Trump anymore. But I mean, I think he is an honest broker. I mean, you could have a conversation with him and he would tell you what he believes and he would uh, surprise you about the clarity of some of his positions. Right. But beyond that, most Alan Keyes, I mentioned, who was Reagan's you know, ambassador to the United Nations, a, a total, totally terrible person. And most of the religiously connected right wingers with the people with which I'm most familiar, um, I, I wouldn't give them credence for being anything but opportunists. Yeah. Well, speaking of opportunists, speaking of horrible people, Benjamin Netanyahu is the longest serving prime minister, 12 years in a row, I believe, uh, yep. in Israel. And then in the 90s, he was prime minister, right wing and horrible guy. On Wednesday, eight parties in the Israeli parliament, parliament of the Knesset formed an agreement to work together to form a new government. And Bibi Netanyahu is urging the right wing to block this, maybe a January 6th moment. And we're going to go to, I hope, we're having technical problems. We're going to go to Dr. Arnon Degani in Tel Aviv, I think. Uh, the sound quality may not be great, but we'll, we're going to try doing that in a second to discuss uh, Bibi Netanyahu. What's your solution to the Middle East? I think you asked me that two weeks ago. I said, I'm going to leave it all up to Jared Kushner. Yeah, the Abraham Accords. I, I have no, you have know, you been to? Of, have you been to? I've never been to the Middle East. I have never been to Israel. I have never been anywhere in the Middle East. Right. Because. Uh, I, and you've never read the New Testament. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I have read the New Testament. So you told me before the show started that you were able to go through law school and divinity school without ever cracking a book. Is that true? How do you do that? Yeah. I was too busy going to the movies, <laughs> which, by the way, uh, I mean, uh, before your guest gets connected, I, I wanted to just follow up briefly on cicadas, which yes. came up last week. You're talking about the sex habits of cicadas. Um, I think there's been a, a marvelous decision made by Hollywood in the last month or so to glom on to the cicada phenomenon. Not only is the four hour and 12 minute version of Justice League of America you know, directed by the guy who sadly lost, lost his, his, his daughter who, who died when he was putting in 2017, the original Justice League widely panned, but they have these uh, things called um, the kind of what are they called? Parademons. They look remarkably like cicadas. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe they're kind of playing off of the cicada thing. And then just last night, they opened the American Film Institute back up here in, in Washington. And I went to see A Quiet Place Part Two. I hear that's okay. It's terrifying. I mean, it's, it's really one of the most terrifying movies 
I've ever seen. Really? Because Yes, because they don't have to deal with all the stuff you learned about these uh, space aliens in the first movie. They just start, they give you a little five-minute summary where you learn, you're reminded of what the rules are about how these things engage. And they, too, are very insect-like. Hmm. Yeah. So, Justice League, parademons, look like cicadas, this insectoid thing that's in Quiet Place Part 2. It's another link to the cicada isn't it? And is, so it's phenomenon. worth watching, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's okay. very clever. It's very well edited. And, and it's uh, it's got some, you know, jump moments. You know, if you're one of those people that jumps, something flies out. Okay. But it's just, it's just very clever. All right. I yeah. will I will uh, feel guilty for not seeing that based on your recommendation. Yeah, well, it's a, look, maybe you can... Maybe you can borrow a copy of it, you know, six I live from now when it comes out. And if I want to see insects, I just need to turn the light on where <laughs> I live. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was too short today. I want to do the go to Tel Aviv. I hope this works. Uh, right. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation Church and State. Follow the Reverend Barry W. Lynn on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Go to his website. I believe it's barrylynn.com. It's barrywlynn.com. It's just been renewed. I mean, we just updated it a few days ago. So there's a couple more Videos. things you can tie into. And some sermons. If you go to barrywlynn.com. doesn't cost you anything to get there. And you could even get on mailing list. I might send you something every six months. And I might be going to Washington, D.C. soon. So you can... Really? Take me out to a very expensive meal, and I'll start drinking again and order a great bottle of wine. And I'm just, <laughs> yeah, you're well, gonna let me know that you're on your way. <laughs> so you Will can, you be bringing um, a dog puppet with you by any chance? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to meet him. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Reverend. Thank Reverend you. Barry W. Lynn. We didn't have enough time this, this week. We're right. heavily booked. Uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And please go to my website and sign up for office hours and hours. Uh, we're going 24 hours Friday night starting at 8 p.m. The first Friday of every month, office hours is 24 hours. Well, when I come back, we're going to try to go to Tel Aviv and uh, find out the latest on the elections. They have a new Israeli president and they're supposedly going to have a new, a new, uh, new prime minister replaced BB Netanyahu. We'll be right back. I hope it's time right now for the David Feldman show. He's talking politics a comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. Yeah. 
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Is Bibi Netanyahu through? The longest serving prime minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, may no longer be prime minister. Joining us in Israel is Dr. Arnon Degani. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he is a researcher at the MOLAD, the Center for the Renewal of Israeli Democracy. His area of expertise is the history of Jewish and Arab relations within Israel. Welcome back, Dr. Arnon Degani. Hi, David. Nice to be here. Without going into the weeds, because I don't understand how your parliamentary system works. I don't think anybody really understands. Does anybody really understand how you form a government in Israel? Well, David, it's not that complicated. I mean, I think it takes longer to explain to other people the, the, elect, the electorate, uh, the college, the electorate the college. Electoral college. I think it's yeah, the electoral college and, and and your senate. All right, so you had four elections in the past two years. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, was on. You had Trump, though. You had Trump. Yes, we had Trump. Yeah. Four elections, and Bibi Netanyahu was never really able to form a coalition. But he's still been prime minister. He kind of cobbled together something, but now there seems to be a new prime minister and a new party in charge who will be the new prime minister the new prime minister is set to be naftali bennett who is actually in terms of policies and and temperament is to the right of netanyahu was he Uh, his chief of staff at one time he was not chief of staff he served for a brief period as minister of defense under Bibi Netanyahu. So yes. he's going to be the prime minister, but he's going to share that term with whom? With uh, the person who actually uh, assembled this coalition, Yair Lapid. And he's uh, he's the, the dead centrist uh, party. He's from, from the radical center, center. And labor is involved with this coalition. Yes, there are actually a lot of parties involved in this coalition. 
all the way from um, the an Arab party, which is uh, the Islamist Arab party, all the way to two parties that, in terms of ideological temperament, Likud it doesn't have really a, a platform, but in terms of how much they care about certain right-wing issues, they're to the right of Bibi. The, so this is a very the Arab broad... Party. The Arab party is to the right of Bibi? No, 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 no. The Arab is party is to the left on most issues. I mean, left and right works a bit different in Israel in terms of... Uh, LGBTQ you even rights. Read, they you are, even read from right to left. I mean, just that's a good point. Thank that's you. That's a good point. That's one for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it looks like this is going to hold. This coalition will hold. There's a week. We have a week to find out whether or not it holds. I'm not an expert on this, but it seems like um, the. Uh, chair of the Knesset, this is the parliament, and he controls the agenda, like you can say speaker of the house, sort of, he can uh, prolong this uh, process of swearing in the government by a few days. And if, and, and, and there's some more room for uh, Netanyahu to, um, uh, poach some uh, defectors from now, a lot of coalition. people have compared Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu to Donald Trump. They say he's a malignant narcissist. They say he's exhibiting signs of delusion and he's lost his faculties and is claiming that somehow it, Israel needs him as the, the Messiah. Will he go gently into the night? Are we looking possibly at another January 6th, but one in Israel? Do you, do you see his supporters storming the Knesset, which is your parliament? I don't think it will be like the January 6th, but there could be violence, um, especially from from uh, individuals um this is precedented in israel it's what coming from it's precedented did he get rabin shot netanyahu is it common consensus that rabin would still be alive if bb netanyahu had toned down his rhetoric rabin was the um, prime minister who gave us the oslo accords and benjamin netanyahu was running against uh, Rabin for prime minister. I think this was 95. And, and Netan Netanyahu one of Netanyahu's supporters assassinated Rabin. Netanyahu was not the chief um, instigator of, uh, of this uh, poisonous discourse. Um, some people say he was. I mean, Rabin's wife said he Robin. was. Yeah. Uh, I look, Netanyahu. I'll give you the 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 um, long the the short version. Netanyahu is a right wing uh, uh, opportunistic uh, leader, but he wasn't the worst 
um, uh, for someone who's on the left. He's, uh, he was very cautious in, in implementing uh, military actions. And he, while he had the Oslo process, he did not completely stop it. He did show some um, um, uh, mutual, uh, he did show some um, mutual mistrust between the two sides, but he wasn't the worst. And wasn't the worst in terms of the of a right-wing, right-wing military. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he, and he was cautious when it came to, and, and he was also not um, annex, annexationist. We're not, we won't get into it, but people, you know, there's the territories, the Palestinian territories, and, and, and there's a thrust to annex them into Israel, which is what Bennett, the, the to-be prime minister, is much more known for. Okay, of, let, let's, uh, let's, position, let's position you first. Did you vote for Benjamin Netanyahu? Did you vote for his Likud party? No, I, I, I'm. You've been very critical what, of Israel. You've called it a colonizing power on this show. It's a, it's critical in the, you know, I've called it a settler colonial nation, which is uh, very similar to what the U.S. is. But uh, the, the, the criticism I voice as a scholar is uh, not necessarily on the same plane as the criticism I would voice as a citizen of Israel you know, that sees Israel as its home and, and has some solidarity, feels some solidarity ties with Jews all over the world, except you. I, but, uh, I'm a, an objective. I, go ahead. So, so, so who did you vote for, uh, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, so uh, I don't mind chipping. I, I vote for the furthest leftist parties that are still considered Zionist. Uh, I voted the last election. I voted for Meretz. They had uh, two uh, Arab candidates in their list, but um, they, they, I mean, they, they are. Uh, they're considered very left, but um, a lot of colleagues of mine from academia despise them because they don't, because uh, they're still Zionist. They're still Zionist, um, which means what? What does yeah. Zionist mean? Uh, well, how much time do your viewers have? Uh, I, Zionism is, is, you know, it changes with time. Uh, um, different streams of uh, uh, so it means uh, there there needs to be a homeland for the Jewish people essentially yeah I think I think uh, now I think uh, people that uh, forgo the forgo a state and say a homeland instead of state these people have left the Zionist tent or you know uh, consider themselves to have left the Zionist state. I still think that the title state, Jewish state, is something um, that can be defended morally. Uh, but, you know, France is a state and, uh, and Arizona is a state. So, Right, but so they're not religious. Even the, even the content of what having a state could change. They're not religious states, though. 
They're not. They haven't been carved uh, no, out. I mean, they haven't been carved out as a haven for a specific ethnicity or religion. Actually, they have. They have been carved out for white settlers. So, France. Oh, France. But what, what were you? Uh, what, what were you talking about just now? Arizona. Oh, right, right. Yes. Okay. Let's get back to the elections. Was this at all about the plight of? the Palestinians in Gaza, or did Netanyahu use Gaza to solidify support? Because a lot of his supporters didn't vote in the last election. Was this war in Gaza? Did he trigger a war in Gaza to get the vote out? No. The, the Were there accusations Gaza, of that? Were there accusations no, no. of that? The vote in Gaza was post-elections, but um, no, no. I'm talking about the prime minister, the the, the election. You're talking about the the war in Gaza was post-elections, right? Right. But the the uh, assemblage of the of of an alternative government, um, they were nearing a deal, and then and then. Uh, flames rose from the Gaza And strip. how much of the rocket fire from Hamas was because of the Palestinians jump-starting their electoral process? Aren't there, isn't the Palestinian Authority, aren't they beginning to hold elections in the West Bank and Gaza? N no, uh, the, there was an, a, a canceled election that was way that's way overdue. The, um, the excuse by Abu Mazen. That Ma Abu Mazen is he's the, the president, president of, the of the Palestinian PA. Authority, right, and the head of the PLO, right. So Abu Mazen, once uh, Israel um, refused to allow residents of East Jerusalem to vote, then that was a perfect pretext for Abu Mazen to cancel the elections because Hamas would have probably won, won them handedly. Even in the West and, Bank? Even in the West Bank? Yes. Yes. Is there, and, a, is there a Hamas presence in the West Bank? Yes. It is subdued by Israel and the authority, but it exists. And, and the Palestinian Authority, those are that's the PLO. Those are that's uh, Abu Mazen or uh, Abbas. His other name is his two names. Uh, his actual name is Mahmoud Abbas, and right. Abu Mazen is is a sort of a nickname. It means that he is the father of Mazen. He is the Probably heir. Firstborn. He would be the heir to Yasser Arafat. In terms of politics, he he inherited Yasser Arafat's stature and role, right. and he is the person who America and Israel recognize as the leader of the Palestinians. But right. the Palestinians are becoming more and more partial to another party, Hamas, which America and Israel calls a terrorist organization the same way they used to call the PLO a terrorist organization. So, right. Do you follow the the politics 
in Gaza and the West Bank? Do we do we know who the leader of Hamas is? I keep reading about this leader of Hamas who agreed to a ceasefire. Isn't he ultimately going to get assassinated by Israel? Is there an actual leader of Hamas? Um, yes, uh, the, the the supreme command is in um, Qatar. In Qatar, but the, the country yeah, of Qatar but, is where Hamas is headquartered. Yeah, where yeah, where the I think general secretary. I think that's the title he goes by. And do but, you know who he is? Yeah, his name is uh, Khalid Mashal. And what is the relationship that Israel has with Qatar? Uh, uh, Does it have diplomatic relation? Yeah, I mean, maybe not. It has. It has. It 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 has uh, definitely um, um, coordination. I'm not sure on the level. I'm I'm pretty sure there's no um, official. Uh, um, permanent uh, uh, mission, a bilateral mission, but there's, I mean, the, the two countries talk. And the allegations against Hamas are that this is what I've read. I don't necessarily think it's true. What we're being told is that the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Palestinian Arabs who live in Israel don't want to come under Hamas rule because they are religious fundamentalists. This is what we see in the American press. If Hamas is in charge, good luck if you're a woman or gay. Is that propaganda? No, it's it's not propaganda, but it's not really um, on the table as well. Uh, What's not on the table? Look, Hamas taking over Israel. Well, I'm, okay, but what about their taking over the West Bank? What about Hamas running the West Bank? West Bank. What if Fatah loses in the next election and Hamas is in charge? What happens to gays? What happens to women? I'm not sure the gays have it great under uh, Fatah or um, or the PLO or the Authority. Uh, under Abbas, to begin with, um, kind of the the, the uh, LGBTQ uh, persons in a lot of in in, in not in some Arab states uh, they they have to to um, uh, use the closet in 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 creative ways. How is it for, and how is it for the LGBTQ community in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish settler states? You know, the, the parts of the West Bank where they're, where they're settlers. Can you, be, can you be gay if you're a settler in the West Bank? How are the women treated? No, no. The women, uh, the, the, the settlers in the main represent the equivalent of what is known in the U.S. as modern Orthodox. And so men and women um, are somehow fluent in, quote-unquote, modern culture, modern professions. 
They're not what is known as the ultra-Orthodox. It's very superficial, and, and there's a lot of overlap. But uh, um, except for um, uh, w- women in, in, in that uh, sector of Israeli society, the modern Orthodox, are generally, um, are generally in the public uh, sphere, you know, holding on to uh, serious uh, positions and even represented in politics. And the LGBT the Haredi, community? Uh, so, so some parts of the modern Orthodox um, sector in Israel are, are rather homophobic. And, and there's kind of this adoption of, of American Protestant values when it comes to uh, these issues, so there's so that there is that there is genuine homophobia and anti-LGBTQ sentiment. Uh, there are more liberal um, parts to the to the modern Orthodox um, community, which that are tolerant, but there's you know there's no advocacy for complete equality and, and marriage equality now the settlers, but, the, but there is uh, the settlers in the west bank we we agreed that there are about a half a million of them right now right about yeah that. okay mostly orthodox yes they're no mostly mostly you know are they what? and are they american I'm are they all sure. from brooklyn no, no, not what, what, How many of them were born in America? Uh, I have a good, uh, I have a good colleague that wrote a book recently on them. She could tell you the numbers more accurately. I, I, I'd be, I'm hesitant to answer. Okay, but, Was Benjamin uh, but, they, born but in... they're prominent. Bennett, Bennett, uh, Bennett's father was from is from the U.S. Bennett has uh, has. Uh, um, rather good English accent, American English accent. Right, he, and he's going to be the new uh, prime minister. Uh, it, it would seem, yeah. And uh, Benjamin say, Netanyahu... Well, I'd say 94. Benjamin Netanyahu was raised in America, but was he born in America? No, I don't think so. No. But he sounds like an American. Yes, uh, yes. He has a bit of an accent, but yeah, he has. Is that a yeah, plus when to, you're and, running for prime minister in Israel to sound American? I guess it is. I guess why? If, if you're why? Well, you know, uh, U.S. happens to be a pretty significant state. Um, culture from the U.S. is consumed uh, almost almost uh over any other country here in israel um movies i mean there's people go more to american movies than they go to israeli movies and um you're the beacon okay who are yeah so i'm guessing so i'm guessing that's benjamin who much like trump is facing a prison sentence, especially in Israel, you actually lock up 
your politicians. Olmer, is he still behind bars, the predecessor? Well, Olmert. Olmert, what did I say? I, I heard Olmer. Olmert Netanyahu's predecessor yeah. was right. locked up, correct? Yes. And you have a president in Israel who, is he still serving time for rape? No, he's out. He's out. Netanyahu, it's this. It, this is a real possibility that Netanyahu can go to prison. You've never had Correct. a sitting prime minister or president get locked up, but ex-presidents and ex-prime ministers get locked up in Israel. So he needs to stay in office by any means necessary because he's looking at time, isn't he? And his wife? No, um, no, his wife isn't indicted, but she's definitely implicated in this. But she's not facing any time. The, 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 and the trial is going on right now. Yeah. The, the, here's an interesting anecdote. Back in 2007, 2008, when, when Olmert's legal woes started um, rising, the Netanyahu, the head of the opposition kept repeating or at least there's there's a, a clip of it that's that's repeated endlessly about how a prime minister that is suspect uh in all these different uh, uh illegal affairs cannot be uh expected to function uh professionally right and 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 there's always a risk that Netanyahu says it in his own voice there's always a risk that uh, certain uh, decisions will be made uh, with this uh, criminal, uh, uh, with this suspicion hanging over the prime minister's head. And so it's better for him to resign. And Olmert resigned before he was even indicted. When he, he resigned, when, when it, um, the police recommended Oh, uh, um, indictment, or maybe sometime a bit before, sometimes a bit, sometime a bit after. But he wasn't even indicted, and people were were hoping that Netanyahu waited would at least be would at least have the decency to do exactly what he told Olmer to do, and and um, and. Um, Resign once the indictments came in, which he didn't. And what is he and being so he's allowed? He's allowed to serve as prime minister while under uh, while in trial. But uh, so what is he being on. accused of? Bribery. That would be. There's three, and the, the most severe one is bribery, and it's it's not a slam dunk. I, I'll be the first to say it's not an easy case to try. Uh, I don't think they would have indicted him. I don't think I don't believe in a deep state. I don't believe in a conspiracy against him. So, so the decision to indict him, I imagine, is, is warranted. But on the face of things, it's not an easy. Um, it's it's not a very simple uh, thing to prove to begin with bribery because you have to to tent and you have to have the two sides. Uh, being aware of what is being given, but uh, it has to do with him 
um, demanding positive uh, coverage in a in a on a website that's that website that that was you know ra- rather uh, uh, popular, but still website, and in return he gave regulatory favors to the owner of that website, and, right. uh, and who. who made a lot of um who, who really benefited from that in the in the tens of millions maybe even more right so um, and we have limited time and I, I really do want you to come back more often because uh you're a great guest and you know your stuff dr arnon Degani is a postdoctoral fellow at the hebrew university in jerusalem you have your doctorate i believe from ucla is that correct Go Bruins. Go Bruins. You were originally on this show as a critic of Israel. I've noticed something different, and I want to know if you reflect the the sentiment among Jews in Israel right now. When I had you on the show last year, you called Israel a, a, a post-settler colonial, what, what did you call it? I'm actually trying to write something about it because the term settler colonialism exploded recently. Okay, um, so but you've been very critical of you've been very critical of of Israel, and I still am. You you still are, but, but you also seem a little spooked by the four thousand five hundred rockets that got fired into Israel. You you. You're you sound a little more conservative than you have in the past. Is that because of what just took place in Gaza and Israel? No. Look, these are tough questions. Um, I'm I'm I I think things should radically change but there is okay let me say something a bit controversial 60 67 children died in gaza right it's not to be taken lightly but there is some sort of discrepancy between the way the um um american western progressives describe what's going on in Gaza and the way Gazans talk about what's going on in Gaza. And the Hamas terrorist, not a freedom fighter, I'm open to the, the that interpretation. But they're also, they don't see themselves as 100% the victims themselves. They're fighting. They, they are militarily challenging Israel. It's true that Israel is so much stronger that uh, that uh, um, that it is not capable, that, that Hamas is not capable of, you know, occupying parts of Israel. But um, nevertheless, uh, Israel, they've got, uh, they have their own ability to... Uh, instill some deterrence in Israel. And one of the tools that, uh, that uh, Hamas has in its arsenal, legitimate or illegitimate, is something uh, um, 
philosophers can discuss, is a higher tolerance for casualties than Israel has. And so they're using it in their struggle against Israel. So I'm not placing, trying to... Placing rocket... Uh, and, uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking that piece of... Gaza is the most densely populated area in the world, I think. And so uh, um, if you're if you're firing a missile uh, uh, from an uh, F-16 at a building in order to destroy it, you're taking into account that uh, uh, people that are uninvolved will uh, will get hurt. Okay. Um, so it's it's um, the the narrative of victim and victimizer. I'm not saying that it's that if, if the potty count sh- sure sure suggests that is the case, but. The Palestinian narrative, to begin with, is of uh, um, steadfastness against Israel and and heroic um, martyrdom. And I don't see that as evil, and I don't condemn that. Um, uh, I'm just not... I'm just a bit more cynical, I guess. Uh, and uh, I know that there's a dual dynamic here. The, the, the more you zoom in on the events of the few weeks ago, the more you kind of narrow the time frame of analysis, the more agency Hamas has the more ability it had to stop launching rockets and then Israel would stop killing kids, right? Right. But it's sort of, um, it is a uh, uh, superficial uh, narrowing of the scope. The context is that Israel controls the entire area. Israel is the only sovereign. And so, and so, and Israel isn't attempting to maneuver to, to to somehow scale down the violence, um, prevent these cycles from continuing, and because of and and so and so Israel, I think, bears more responsibility um, to these cycles flaring up. And in any case, and in any case, whether you could ever quantify who has more responsibility. I'm an Israeli, and as an Israeli, I see my, and as an Israeli who's maybe a bit more informed on issues of history and and is being paid to sometimes think about these things, I see my uh, audience uh, um, to be other Israelis of what we can do to change things, and I would, uh, you would, you wouldn't find me saying, um, telling the Palestinians what they should or shouldn't do, even though, even though obviously things are not working that well right. for them. So, but, but it's not, it's not, I don't see myself as, as this being my role. And maybe, um, 
So, so maybe sometimes you're getting, so sometimes you're hearing more of the kind of aloof scholar, if I may say so, or and sometimes you're getting um, the Israeli uh, dissident. Okay. Let's do this next week. And we'll okay. br- we're going to bring on more guests who uh, may or may not agree with you. Dr. Arnon Degani joined us today in Israel. He is a postdoctoral fellow at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and a researcher at the MOLAD, the Center for the Renewal of Israeli Democracy. Thank you so much for staying up, and we'll talk to you hopefully next week. It's time right now, I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey. To 34,020 But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way, I'm on my way I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there. Yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never Uh, sorry to keep everybody waiting. Uh, we, we had some technical problems. It's time now for the professors and Mary Ann. Are you, is everybody there? I, I apologize for keeping everybody waiting. And I know that Professor Hussein has a busy week. Uh, thank you all. We do this once a week, the professors and Mary Ann. And you can hear me, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, joining us is Professor Adnan Hussein. He's chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and he's very busy. He's the host of the 
Mudgeless Podcast and Gorilla History. Professor Ian Faluna is a professor of atmospheric science. Jonathan Bick, Professor Jonathan Bick, is a uh, political scientist. And Landslide Cummings is with us. The Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist, and she was recently reelected as a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. And I, again, I apologize for keeping you all waiting. Uh, I just wanted to make a correction because I've been doing some reading. I, I was, uh, well, anyway, any responses? If did anybody see the my conversation with Doctor? Argani and I caught the tail end of it, and I thought it was a very interesting perspective because uh, leftists sometimes tend to infantilize or, you know, be condescending to people who are under genuine stress, and they don't acknowledge that they actually have um, agency. I guess is the word we use now. And that was very similar. I used to read a feminist. Her name was Bell Hooks at Zeta Magazine. I don't know what's happened to her, but I loved her perspective because she was a radical feminist, but refused to regard women, even in women in, who were under duress and in trying circumstances, as victims as such. And she didn't like that word. She said, we just are, are citizens for whom grave injustices have been done to, and we're, we're working to address them. So I like that perspective. It was interesting. The thing that was- Degali. Uh, yeah, what was- I would love to hear more from him. Yeah, I'd, in fact, I'd love to uh, bring him on with you guys or some, mm -hmm. but the uh, thing that I found disconcerting is he had been on the show several times last year and offered up a full-throated condemnation of Bibi Netanyahu and Israel and the colonialism and the exploitation of the Palestinians. And uh, and I don't have anybody on this show who's going to defend Israel. I'll, I'll do that. You know, if anybody, I don't need people on the show to def defend Israel. Uh, and I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to defend Israel. I will give the other side. Uh, but I found coming out of he was a little different after the what happened in Gaza. I thought that was kind of uh, the kind of spooked by the war. So uh, it, it it hardens a, uh, a leftist heart sometimes. Um, by the way, the Israelis also hide their weapons among civilians and station their uh, military and their, it's very cramped quarters. So when they say that the, uh, the Palestinians always hide their weapons in hospitals and in apartment buildings, the Israelis, uh, I was just reading an article in Haaretz that the Israelis also do that. I will shut up. I apologize for the sound quality. We're, so uh, let, let me start with Professor Hussein, because I don't know how much time you have. So I don't know if you can, and I kept you waiting, and I. Uh, so it's, it's all good, David. I'm 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 here for the duration of the professors and Marianne. Okay. I wouldn't miss a minute <laughs> of what my colleagues have to say. Any thoughts on that conversation, or should we go right to? Oh, I didn't really catch much of it. Okay, I just caught the very very end. So I I don't know exactly what his perspective is, but I'll listen back and. Um, Here's what I like about him: he cares. Uh, he, he's not trying to show off 
what he knows. He's not trying to prove anything. He is really searching and struggling with this issue. And I'm not interested in anybody who... Uh, Glib sort of, yes, you know. Yeah. Yes. I, I, not welcome here or in my life. You're either looking for uh, a way to make everybody's, you know, keep everybody safe and improve people's lives. I'm not interested in uh, your verbal gymnastics. No place here, especially when people... Oh, God, I'm in trouble. Not... Oh, anyway. <laughs> well, let's go to a more cheerful... There's always good news coming out of Canada. I yeah. always think, you know, whenever I think we... Medicine, COVID, if only I lived in Canada. It's such a tolerant tar place. Sands. I'm sorry? Tar sands. Tar sands, yeah. That, that Mass has graves. Be. I'm sorry? Right. Mass graves. Yeah, that's what we were yeah. going to talk about. That's right. Uh, yeah, we shouldn't joke about that. I oh. apologize. Oh, that's a bad. Go. I, I, flags are at half staff. That you people are doing. Is it truth and reconciliation? What are you going through? Well, we we had truth and reconciliation, but clearly not enough truth because uh, this wasn't known. Um, you know, there were suspicions because there are so many children who have just gone missing, just as the, you know, there's so many indigenous women who've gone missing and um, have been found to be murdered. Uh, and similarly with children uh, who have disappeared in the system, whether it's the sort of children's aid system during the 60s scoop, which is really from the mid 50s or late 50s into the 80s where indigenous children were removed from their families and put into foster care and ultimately sent for adoption, sometimes without the knowledge or permission of their families um, in any capacity. And that is just the kind of more recent version, you might say, of an institutional approach towards indigenous children that has been designed to suppress their identity and forcibly assimilate and convert them. Um, starting in the 1860s, uh, up until the last residential school was closed in Canada in 1996. So we're talking over a century and in all of our memories, you know, really, uh, that the last residential school existed. And in fact, it was developed as a system, the idea for it came from Canada's George Washington, Sir John A. Macdonald, who is a native of Kingston, Ontario, the town in which uh, I am at present. And there are statues of him all over this town and plaques all over this town commemorating his residence. He slept here, that kind of thing. And um, he was the author of this kind of system that was considered so successful uh, you know, that it was a model for similar sorts of programs in other kind of Anglophone settler colonial societies like Australia, New Zealand. Um, and I believe something a little bit similar, you know, some, some practice like this happened in the U.S., but just not as extensive and as organized. And what they believe is that 150,000 or so children were removed from their communities in this mandatory system of residential schools uh, mostly run by the Catholic Church, but there were other churches also that that um, uh, had some some of these schools, and in them, 
they were forcibly assimilated, prevented, you know, they were forcibly converted, um, prevented from speaking their indigenous languages. And the goal was to remake their identities. And yet they were so incredibly mistreated that you would think if there was this plan to uh, assimilate them, that they would then become, you know, treated like, uh, you know, children uh, that had now become part of Canada's identity. But of course, they weren't because there's a hatred uh, that's involved in that project to begin with. And there's, of course, a guilt uh, involved in the dehumanization of these children. So they, um, several thousand of them have gone missing. Uh, they believe that this 215 child mass grave is possibly just the tip of the iceberg. And I guess what is so disturbing about it to me, in addition to just the toll, is how it was just the end point for a life of utter dehumanization, sexual abuse, um, almost starvation and malnutrition. Um, also, uh, you know, many children uh, died clearly because they were denied proper medical care. They were just absolutely treated like garbage and then thrown out into a dump, basically. That's what this mass grave is, is basically over time, there was just some spot where they disposed of the bodies of children that they regarded as just so much trash. And this is what uh, has caused such a outpouring of grief um, and a campaign, uh, Every Child Matters, and call that, that's the sort of, you know, uh, slogan under which um, they're uh, organizing. There's a hope for a national day of mourning to make sure that this history isn't forgotten. But to be honest, in 2015, that Truth and Reconciliation report um, was published and it documented some of this history and it did characterize this system of the residential schools as a kind of cultural uh, genocide. But one problem is that the reckoning has never really gone very far. So once this happened, they had the Truth and Reconciliation report. It wasn't completely comprehensive, but it told a, a, a major story. The then um, conservative Tory prime minister, uh, um, uh, Harper, um, Stephen Harper, did, you know, issue some kind of an apology. But, you know, it wasn't part of an actual attempt to repair the harm. You know, uh, there were some small initiatives but, you know, the real truth has not really been told. There's so much more history that needs to be documented. And it's absolutely vital that we do so because so many people after the Truth and Reconciliation Report thought, well, that's done. We've apologized and, you know, we've had our, you know, um, you know, uh, admission that there was something that was a problem. And now we just have to move on. And it's this moving on that is never really that different from what was going on, because as I pointed out, you know, there was the 60s scoop. Um, but even now, if you think about it, uh, there's such a vastly disproportionate number of indigenous children who are in the Children's Aid Society and children's social services who are taken into, you know, government care. And it's essentially the same kind of uh, thing that's happening. It's just that it's rationalized as protection of the child's welfare and so on. Instead of asking, well, why are those conditions still being perpetuated on reserves and in 
the indigenous community where 50% of children grow up in poverty. You know, if you want to solve the problem, it's not remove the kids from the families, it's put the resources into the families and into those communities so that they can live in decent lives. You know, there's still so many reserves that don't have potable clean water to drink. It's an absolute scandal that decade after decade, everyone knows that the water has been polluted and there's no infrastructure in place to try and clean up the, the situation and ensure that the very basics of life, it's just like Flint, Michigan. And in fact, actually, as somebody who's from the US, who's now come to Canada, I would say that um, for the US, it's, you know, um, you know, black uh, people struggle against a racist system uh, um, from slavery to Jim Crow and, and so on. Uh, for in Canada, the really big, you know, uh, consequence of settler colonialism, the really big racist uh, structure has really been that that targeting the indigenous. Well, we did in America. We also targeted. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's just that, you know, there's much less evidence of it, whereas in Canada, there still are large, you know, indigenous populations in B.C. and the prairies and so on um, and up north. Right. So there's just a larger population that is still bearing the brunt of that racist system are they allowed i would assume they do vote right they're, they're given the vote they're yes, citizens yeah they're yeah yeah they, uh, although you know it's very interesting in the united states not you know I, I, listening to um you know we heard from uh uh i think it was on on monday's uh show dr fraud mentioned that it was only in the 60s that the last state gave and franchised um you know, indigenous Native Americans, um, you know, with the vote uh, as full citizens. So, you know, th there have been obviously problems with that. I guess the last thing I just wanted to say about this is that um, there's such a long history in some ways. This is a there's a deep history, you know, of this. Um, it really reminds me of the policies of, uh, you know, 1492 in indigenous kind of narrations of history is, of course, that momentous time where the beginnings of settler colonial colonialism and settler colonialism begin. And it makes me think of that being such a pivot point, uh, because what happened in 1492 is another trajectory of a kind of colonialism, the conquest, uh, you know, of Granada, the end of sort of Muslim presence uh, as political power in Iberia under Ferdinand and Isabel is very soon after by 1502 1503 there is an edict that we have to forcibly convert these Muslims um, much like there had been forcible conversions of Jews in the Iberian Peninsula in the 1390s and so you have waves of forced conversion revolts taking place against this and over the course of the next century and a half basically you have the suppression of the, of their uh, religion, obviously, but of language, no longer allowed to use Arabic and speak Arabic or use Arabic in writing. Suppression of hammams, that is the Turkish bath, as, as you know, that was the, uh, the women veiling that was banned in Spain during this period. And what did they do as well is they had an edict of attempting to remove Morisco children from their families 
and have them educated in special schools by priests and nuns so that they would be assimilated and truly converted. It's a very similar kind of policy that is part of this kind of colonial approach. And when the Moriscos were expelled in 1609 to 1614, they expelled the Moriscos, but they kept children under 10 because they were still a human resource, you know, that could be, they thought, assimilated. So get rid of their parents, get rid of that community, because they felt it was um, not possible to assimilate them, but they thought that they could assimilate the children. And we see that kind of a logic extending from 1492 and beyond in Spain, and we see it in the, in the New World. Anybody want to respond to that? Or we can... We could move on. Um, by the way, Andy Brown, who runs our Discord channel and uh, is one of the uh, elder statesmen of office hours we were meeting yesterday, is on an archaeological dig in Minnesota right now as we speak. And they are looking at 1,500-year-old, no, 2,500-year-old uh, remains of uh, indigenous Americans and he and the professor were telling us that they're on the site of where, and I get the names wrong, where the tribes would meet and have, uh, different tribes would meet and have like a jubilee and a party every year and like a trade fair and exchange uh, gifts, ideas, and genetic material. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll leave, yeah, it, leave it at that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's fascinating. And, um, you know, these are histories we should really know. This is our history of this land. You know, this land's history is of these people. In fact, it reminds me of Nick Estes's book, Our History is the Future. Uh, and uh, if people are interested, he's Red Nation. He's a professor at University of New Mexico. And um, he has the Red Nation podcast and website, uh, Indigenous Left uh, Activism. And it's a great book. I recommend it. And if you would like, you can listen to our episode interview with him on guerrilla history. Wow. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thank you, Professor Hussein. What is on your mind, Professor Ian Faluna? Oh, well, um, I finally found the word that the Canadians say like Americans. It's like it's homework and brigade, but it's potable. Did not realize that. You say that just like an American. <laughs> you know, she did, the woman who wrote the Canadian dictionary just passed away. Do you, did you did you know her, uh, Professor Hussein? I, I didn't know, but I know that there is a Canadian English you know dictionary. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anything else? No, I was gonna. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna talk about Europa. Since we talked about the origins of life uh, on this planet, in galaxy possibly, uh, there was a report that came out uh, this week about a study. Now, it's just a modeling study, so there's no new observations. There is a uh, NASA's planning a trip to Europa that's going to launch in a few years, and it won't be there until the 30s. But Europa is one of these large, large moons of Jupiter, covered in ice, but Scientists think that there's a, a humongous, vast ocean underneath the ice, which could, in principle, support life. 
And so what this study um, worked on was that you know, the question is, how do you keep it uh, relatively warm? And so there is some there is some radioactivity in there that's that's warming the center like there is on Earth, but not not that much. So what they did was they studied how the actual gravitational mechanics would force what's called tidal heating. Tidal so it's just light. like you know you use a, a Vitamix, you can mix something up and you can warm it up. You can convert that large scale mechanical motion into small scale thermal energy. And so through billions of years of these tidal forces acting on these giant oceans under the ice in Europa, they think that could have significantly heated the interior to where the bottom, the seafloor, is actually volcanic. So that they think that this could be a, a wild place where there's all this interesting chemistry and heat source where life could have originated, could originate and have developed in the preceding life. And life and on Earth, life on in this because you know you probably remember from high school you learned that all life was the result of photosynthesis at its at its foundation. Right? That's what fed the whole the whole food chain. And um, in, in the intervening fifty years, they discovered that there are actually little organisms that are at the bottom of the sea in these hydrothermal vents on Earth actually photosynthesize the light from the radiant magma in these hydrothermal vents. I mean, it's just like science fiction. And so, and they found all this wild, diverse life on these, under these, under the ocean, right? Like 10 kilometers beneath the ocean, immense pressures, very cold temperatures. And these thermal vents were this repository of all this wild alien life, these large tubes, these large tube worms. You may have seen some pictures of them, but it's a fascinating place. And they think there's some theories that indicate that that could have been where life originated on Earth. One of the hypotheses, competing hypotheses. So they think, well, that could that could also be somewhere else in, the, in our even in our solar system. So the question is, you know, is there life in the universe? It seems like probably right, but is there life nearby? Um, so I just wanted to. Yeah, mention that. It, it reminds me how uh, uh, narcissistic I am uh, in terms of, well, even on this planet, life exists where humans cannot thrive. The Absolutely. ocean. And again, 50 years ago, you would have been told there's no way you're going to find life in these, like in the Yellowstone, those hot springs um, where the chemistry is wild, the temperatures, they have these extreme thermophilic bacteria they found there. And everywhere we go on Earth, we find life. It's just an amazingly resilient, much more durable thing. Are they all carbon-based? I mean, what do they all have in common? Yeah. I would say carbon-based. Right. That's the commonality on this planet. But so it is conceivable that there would be an ocean of something like octopus. Is octopuses? Octopusi? <laughs> Works. Calamari. Yes. There would be a lot of calamaris up there. Uh, <laughs> any responses? I like talking about UFOs. That's always good. We could get to the Earth people if, if there's alien life forms, uh, you know, underneath I mean, the ocean. It, why didn't the there have to be well, the Earth I people? Would, I would really be interested if anybody found a form of life in these extreme environments on planet Earth 
that did not replicate using RNA or DNA. That would be that that would change the perspective of you know the possibility of life on other planets. Well, uh, I uh, saw a fantastic exhibit in 2015 that really gets at some of the things Ian is talking about that just completely stretched my mind. Uh, was um, at the American Museum of Natural History. Mm -hmm. uh, it was Life at the Limits, Extreme oh. Creatures. And I just saw things that, you know, like this tardigrade, which is looks like a, it's like this microscopic, uh, looks like a teddy bear in an inflatable, like, you know, spacesuit that can just roll up and kind of go into a sort of hyper native sort of state to survive like 50 years of absolute extreme conditions and then pop up. You know, once conditions are appropriate, it's like the meaning of what is life was being stretched because it's like are you living you're kind of in a suspended state for 50 years is that you know being alive but you know is is amazing so you know uh, maybe we call them gap conditions if, if of other country uh, other uh planets maybe there you know there could be just weird forms like this that I, you just would never expect is 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 observable life but it's teeming around all all around us well, Obama, I know Hillary four years ago was saying, gee, I, first thing I'm going to do when I'm president is, you know, uh, find out what the story is with the UFOs, because I forgot to ask Bill when he was in the White House. And Obama is now saying that he that if he talked about religion, that if we make contact, it would change It'd be entirely new religions built around making contact uh oh i think the catholic church would adapt just fine i think in one of one of uh arthur c clark's novels there was like a uh a strict group of christians known as cosmo christers oh that character no that one character wasn't so bad like jews for jesus yeah <laughs> right right professor jonathan bick what is, on yes, your sir. what is on your mind, uh, sir? Yeah, I, I would agree with uh, Professor Marianne Cummings there about religious institutions. They seem... you're, you're running a little, we're having audio issues tonight. So you're running hot. You're running a little hot tonight, uh, but it's better than uh, some of my other. I apologize to everybody that? for the audio tonight. I, I mean, we create religions around pedophile rings, right? I mean, religious production, I think, is just a natural state of human affairs. Storytelling is a natural, is, is basically what we do. So right. you know, yeah, religion is kind of an outshoot of that. I think it's always good, though, to be able to tell the difference between a fictional story and a non-fictional one. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to go into that. Um, Do I need to take the gloves off? Yeah, man, we're going oh, to get at it. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> UFOs, Earth people shouting and screaming. This is how we get, this is how we make money. Good. I was going to talk about, um, rather than new life, uh, a, a threat to existing life, if that's all right. Um, we seem to be having a... Uh, 
a surge in gun sales in the United States. And, um, you know, it also seems that we've returned to our uh, quota of uh, mass shootings, about one every week or so. Um, we had a bit of a reprieve during the lockdowns of the, you know, the rolling lockdowns of the pandemic. Um, but now the, uh, the killing machine seems to be in full gear again. Uh, many times we see these, these uh, gun purchase spikes, you know, after elections, like when Democrats are elected to the presidency, because uh, the gun lobby and Republicans say, oh, they're going to take your guns away, but they never have. Um, and, uh, and after mass shootings also, you know, people would say, would think that, well, maybe the government's going to finally get it together and uh, put some serious regulations on gun sales, but that's never really happened either. Um, so Americans have been on a buying spree uh, that's been fueled by the coronavirus pandemic and the uh, protests uh, during the summer. Uh, in March last year, federal background checks, which could be used as a rough proxy for uh, gun sales, um, hit a, hit a uh, they topped 1 million in, in one week which is an all-time high, was an all-time high. And the buying continued at high levels for a year until it broke a record this spring at 1.2 million background checks in one week. And the reason why these are sort of a rough proxy is because uh, we don't know how many guns are actually sold every week or every year. Uh, and also, it's probably an undercount because private gun sales in this country are completely unregulated. So, you know, sales from one individual to another, there, there are no restrictions on those and no background check is required. So Northeastern University uh, has done a large uh, uh, research study and they found that um, uh, gun sales are becoming more diverse. So maybe that's something to celebrate. Um, <laughs> the new owners are, are less likely than usual to be male and white. Half of new purchases of guns in the last uh, year or so uh, were women, a fifth were black and a fifth were Hispanic. As for gun owners overall in 2021, 63% were male, 73% were white, 10% were black, and 12% were Hispanic. Just to kind of put it into perspective. Um, and overall, the data from the study show that 39% of American households own guns, which is up from 32 percent in 2016 because it used to be just one redneck in kansas who owned 350 million guns that's right he had a really big house though right nice yeah. guy too very but it was supposedly it was like one guy buying up all the guns and you know not one guy but i didn't know so many 
people now are giving up and just buying guns. That's a surprising statistic. I mean, uh, because the actual percentage of households owning guns has been steadily decreasing for at least 20 years. And that that over the last year has gone up by 32 percent. Well, it's been really uh, since uh, 2013 that we've seen a turnaround. So uh, ownership's been going up. Uh, It really started in the wake of the uh, Sandy Hook school shooting. Uh, You know, people thought, well, you know, 20 white first graders getting murdered. Well, the Sandy Hook, I mean, the Sandy Hook. School Sandy Hook School, didn't I say? What did I say? I don't know. I thought you said San Diego, but I'm. Oh no, Sandy the Hook. Is coming in Connecticut. Very weird, yeah. So. Um. So, yeah, it's been going trending up since then. Um, some of the possible reasons for this, uh, you know, besides you know the yeah. anticipation or the propaganda saying that the government's going to take your guns away. Uh, I, I think fear is a big motivating factor, uh, fear of the future, uh, fear of the pandemic, fear of demographic changes, uh, the disintegration of the fabric that holds our society together. Um, there's been a reduction in trust generally in government in each other. Uh, the splintering of our society into the ultra wealthy and everyone else. Uh, Americans have also developed different realities, uh, due in part to the split in the media, you know, this sort of um, uh, polarization uh, ideologically in the media, uh, and the rise of conspiracy thinking, such as QAnon and, you know, other crazy uh, conspiracy theories. And many gun store uh, owners and workers are reporting that in the last year, they've noticed different types of buyers uh, coming into their stores. Starting around March of last year, they noticed more white collar professionals um, and that new buyers were not necessarily conservative. And they, they, many of them had never handled a gun before. So uh, according to this uh, study at Northeastern, which was a survey of uh, 19,000 people conducted in April, researchers found that 6.5% of American adults bought guns in 2020, or about 17 million people. That was up from 5.3% in 2019. And about a fifth of them were first time buyers. So, and, and this, but the share of new, time, uh, new gun buyers was about the same as the previous year. Suggests, and that suggests that it didn't start with the pandemic, hmm. uh, but the pandemic seems to have accelerated this trend uh, in, in rising gun sales. According to the Trace, which is a news outlet that tracks gun sales, purchases have been rising steadily over the past decade, again, with a jump around the beginning of 2013. Um, 
So, and of course, uh, you know, many different research studies have shown that higher gun prevalence is associated with higher rate of uh, gun deaths, including suicides. According to the uh, FBI, um, there, there has been a sharp rise in homicides in the last year. Uh, I don't think these two things are coincidences. Um, and almost three quarters of those murders are by guns. Two thirds of murders by gun are by handguns. So you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, limiting, uh, what do you call those things? Uh, AR-15s. Uh, assault weapons, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think would be a good thing. It did help when they were uh, uh, illegal in the, in the 1990s for a while, but um, most murders are by handguns. And uh, yeah, and just to give you an international comparison, this is according to the World Population Review. Uh, Firearm-related death rate in the United States is 12.21 per 100,000 population per year. Uh, Canada, by comparison, is 2.05. So the U.S. Is six has six times as many deaths per capita by gun as compared to Canada. Uh, Germany, it's one per 100,000, which is about the same as Australia. The U.S. has 12 times as many per capita deaths as those two countries. In the U.K., it's 0.23 per 100,000. Uh, the U.S. has 53 times as many. In Japan, uh, the U.S. has about 200 times as many per capita deaths as in Japan. Um, the only countries in the world that have a higher per capita death rate from guns are in Central and South America, countries like Honduras, Brazil, Guatemala, Colombia, Venezuela. And those are societies under enormous strain and, and dysfunction. Um, the U.S. loses about 40,000 people to guns every year. And uh, about two-thirds of those are suicides. With the international figures, what role do you think the military-industrial complex plays in the proliferation of guns in America? We have to have guns. We spend a trillion dollars on weapons, and we need gun manufacturers. A lot of countries, I believe, was it Norway that, uh, outlawed uh, assault weapons after the, that shooting by the crazy conservative. And it it's my understanding that places w that outlaw guns and have strict gun control don't have a gun manufacturing sector the way the United States does. And that there are pressures, not just from the NRA, but from the military they, they want our gun manufacturers flush because we need guns for our military. And I believe the U.S. is the uh, largest uh, supplier of small arms outside of the United States. 
uh, which you know leads to escalation of conflicts and around the world and of course shootings in different countries yeah yeah supposedly the hedge funds were going to stop investing in the man these companies they had name checked all the hedge fund managers who were making money investing in these ar-15s and they promised to sell their stock but a lot of them haven't yet go ahead professor marion no, I, I was just going to ask John um, uh, the uh, two questions. One, the, the survey on gun ownership. Who who did that survey? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, the uh, that was a collaboration between uh, Northeastern University and uh, Harvard University. Okay, that might actually April. be. I mean, Hugh, actually, I, I got the article out that I you know, remember reading a couple of years ago, and it's, it's actually kind of different between the Gallup survey and the General Society survey on gun ownership. But there were a couple of things that you said that did make sense of something else. Um, uh, the, the number of handguns, the number of murders in this country is primarily handguns. When uh, Michael Moore made his movie, uh, Bowling for Columbine, he, one of the uh, statistics he quoted was the per capita ownership of guns in Canada, which was higher, actually, than the U.S. at the time he made it. But I thought that he, did, he left out a very critical distinction. Those are hunting guns. Those are, he did not uh, break out the number of handguns, which I think was a very, very important distinction, which your, the number you quoted brought out. Yeah, yeah. And I will also point out that uh, Canada has about twice as many per capita gun deaths as uh, most countries in Europe. Yeah, okay. So it does have an effect, but, uh, you know, it's nothing close to the United States, obviously. Yeah. And, and that is a good point that you really need to look at handguns because they seem to be, you know, the, uh, the prime generator of suicides as well as um, uh, homicides. It's too damn easy. I mean, you really know, have to know how to gut yourself to commit traditional Harry Carey. I mean, Harry Carey, yeah. Harry Carey. You, yeah. you need to, like, get into somebody's inner sphere and look at them in the eye to, like, you know, kill them with your sword or your knife. But, you know, handgun, way too easy. Way too easy. And the thing about using a handgun for suicide, it is a very effective method of accomplishing that right. act. Uh, many other uh, forms of attempted suicide are not successful or they have a much lower success rate. Uh, so people, you know, many times will attempt it once, survive, and then never attempt it again. So when you have an availability of handguns, you're going to have a much higher rate of successful suicides. Can I take a, a, a two-minute detour? Because uh, on the, the previous episode, I was trivializing all the celebrities who say, if you're feeling depressed, seek help, but they don't tell you where to go because there's no place to go. And I felt bad saying that because... If somebody's in distress and they hear that there's no place to go, it adds to the hopelessness. And I, I just wanted to clarify that uh, if you're feeling suicidal, there are numbers to call. I don't have them in front of me. Uh, 
What's your number, David? I, I yes, call this <laughs> number and you know. Uh, but I, I would recommend that. Yeah, that would. Uh, <laughs> it's not how to commit suicide, though. No. But I felt bad saying that this country doesn't will tell you that we need to be, you know, open about our suicidal thoughts or open about our depression, but we're not willing to give anybody free treatment for their mental health issues. Uh, they're more concerned about the stigma of uh, mental health issues than actually treating it. Uh, what is your suggestion? So if, if somebody's in distress and they're, you know, it's... Uh, you have Michelle Obama's low-grade depression, but not her access to the funds that she has. What do you do? Where do you go? How do we help people find help? Well, I think there are those numbers, and and those hotlines are you know can be effective in talking people down from any immediate action they might take. Right. Uh, but for the longer term, you are right. You know, this country needs to do a lot more to uh, provide free access to mental health. I mean, it, it's essential. And so uh, Hollywood celebrities who. Well, they're they're probably doing what they feel they can actually affect, you know, that they. So they should shut up. Uh, they should shut up. Hollywood celebrities opening up about their depression should shut up and just say Medicare for all. Well, that would be better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oprah's not helping anybody. Prince Harry, Meghan, the girl from Frozen. They're not helping anybody by just saying. Well, they, they may be thinking, look, uh, you know, I'm a celebrity. I have the same. You, you would think my life is, you know, all peaches and cream. But I, I have the same issues as you. Um, don't feel bad about it. Just go get help. Maybe, you know, that's yeah. what they're thinking. We, and, and, and shut up if you're a celebrity. The whole point of your being a celebrity is to perpetuate the myth that your life is different from ours. You're not supposed to open up about your mental health issues. We're, you're, you're, you offer up hope to us that, that it, you know, anyway. Uh, Professor Marianne. What yes. is on your mind? Uh, Emil, we're running 20 minutes behind. Okay. And it's um, I just my want fault. To no, I, I just want to, Emil, um, I apologize. We're running 20 minutes behind, so I apologize. Go ahead. Okay, um, I just went and saw the Sistine Chapel exhibit. It, you know, it's a big digital display that they have set up, and I thought it would be, you know, kind of chintzy. I've never been so enthralled by a museum-type exhibition in my life as looking at these. These are panels that you you know, that were up on the Sistine, that are up on the Sistine Chapel. And recently, like within the last 20 or years or so, were cleaned. When I was there, when I was in Rome in the 1990s, they were, half the Sistine Chapel was shut down. They were doing massive, like- And they found that it was God handing a, a, a joint to Adam when they finally <laughs> cleaned it. That's I have a picture, I got, I, would, I should have sent it. But it's like one of the panel, which was the uh, Eve taking the apple on one side, and it's a beautiful symmetry. You see a snake who got who has breasts, and it was like a woman handing Eve the apple. And then the other side, Adam and Eve passed out. But there is this hand at the very top, and it's cut off, and it looks like it's doing this. It's like the hand of God 
giving us the finger. But really? This part is cut off a little bit, but it's goddamn. I mean, it's like God was giving us the finger. Is amazing. Anyway, see it. So um, the top is cut off. It's I like Rahm Emanuel giving discussed, us. Get it back to politics. I don't know if you've discussed uh, the latest in the Biden administration um, uh, negotiation techniques, negotiations with the Republicans. They're posing as a compromise. Uh, that uh, the the tax rate on corporations be down to fifteen percent lower, than, oh. but that you know that will close some loopholes. So at least some of these guys will pay some tax. And I'm going that has got to be the worst debate, you know, uh, negotiation techniques in the history of ever. And even so, we have some of the progressives tweeting about it. Of course, Pramila uh, Jayapal was tweeting and like. Don't they, they never seem to learn from history? And I'm, you know, had to like reply, uh, you guys don't seem to be learning from history. This is what people like Biden are always going to do. If you guys were thinking you could push him left, you're just going to have to tell them we won't vote for this bill. Period. You just have to make that loud and clear. Because if you're back to, well, we have to vote for this to get something you're going to get such a minimal bill that it will be meaningless. So yeah, it's the usual frustration. So I, I think say, Joe Manchin is driving Kevin. them all nuts. Huh? I think Joe Manchin is starting to drive them all nuts. Well, you know, you don't have to even, you know, you, you don't, don't worry about what Joe Manchin does. Figure out where you guys are going to draw the line in the house and the progressives in the house that, as Ilham Omar said, in principle, five brave progressives could be setting policy from the Democratic side. And you start there. And at least you may not get what you want, but at least you will be at the bargaining table. But the uh, White House just is behaving as if they can completely disregard anything from the left or the progressives. And uh, I would say they're right at the moment. Right. Yeah. The, the solution, if you ask me if I could wave a magic wand, it's for the People Act. If we, if we can't, if you look at what's in the For the People Act, as we have, I think Jonathan, Professor Bick went through it. I think you did. Uh, somebody should just get cinema and mansion in a room and say, if you don't get on board this, we're going to make up shit about you. Well, you have to make them pay the political price. Yes, yeah, somebody in the chat just said, well, they'll just become Republicans. And I said, well, what's the difference then? Right. Then you, you have to shame them. You have to make them pay a political price. And uh, they don't make them pay the political price because I don't think the Biden administration is particularly, I mean, I think the Biden administration is going to get what they want, or at least what their donors want. And... Cinema and Mansion provide them with an excellent excuse, so they are still in the service of power. So, no consequences, bad ones are going to come to them. Right, right. I, I think you got to bribe them and then implicitly threaten them. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think Joe. I think Joe Manchin might respond well to a pistol with him. That seems like that's the kind of ads he runs and things. I think he might really respect that if you just. Yeah. Uh, I'm all for destroying their children, like Manchin's daughter and the 
the millions upon millions she made off the EpiPen. Just go after their kids. That's the answer. Uh, we have to wrap it up. I'm sorry to keep everybody waiting tonight. Uh, you're very generous with your time. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist, and she was recently reelected as Aurora, Illinois Parks Commissioner by a landslide. Professor Jonathan Bick is a political scientist. Thank you. Professor Ian Faluna is a professor of atmospheric science. And Professor Adnan Hussein runs the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And listen to his two podcasts, The Mudgeless Podcast, as well as Guerrilla History with uh, Henry. I, he's gone. Did he, he left for Germany, right? Yeah, but he's he's on the internet, so uh, right. he can never really disappear. So, yes, uh, do check out our episode with Nick Estes on guerrilla history. Now's the time to be thinking about uh, you know the consequences of that history. Check out um, uh, an episode I did with Isaac Murdoch on Night Rule, where we discussed the news of the mass grave uh, on the day the story uh, broke. And look on forward to Monday when um, our episode with David Schmidt speaking with the author of a new biography of Edward Said comes out on the Mudge List. So that's uh, coming up Monday. Fantastic. Thank you. I hope to see you all for Office Hours and Hours, which starts Friday night at 8 p.m. The first Friday of every month, Office Hours goes 24 hours and i hope professor ann lee is going to be there we we need to figure out how to get a segment with professor lee uh we'll figure that out before we go to emil are you there dan frankenberger hi emil sorry to keep you waiting uh do you mind if we just go through a community billboard did you send me pictures dan yes i did oh okay uh when <laughs> when uh, within the hour prior to the podcast starting really oh it was yeah. it okay it's been a uh well you saw what happened there well, were, yes well, there. I, got, I got i have a, a couple of uh, activist announcements while you're good there. okay i have the pictures um for listeners in pennsylvania march on harrisburg needs your help next week they're going into direct action mode to confront crooked lawmakers who refuse to call a vote on legislation that would ban legal bribery. If you're able to attend in person or offer support from home, please visit giftban.org. Wow. Okay. In RSVP on uh, June 9th or 10th. And that is from uh, Randall in Harrisburg. Great. He's a lobbyist, I believe. They have some uh, some bribery troubles in Pennsylvania, and Randall yeah. is stepping up and trying to do something about Good it. Good for him. That's awesome. Yes. Very quickly, uh, let's look at Frankenstein. Am I looking at the right pictures? Yep. That is from uh, Tom Weber, and this is uh, he calls this his cartoony style Frankenstein. It's a playful pen drawing of Frankenstein mon monster, and he imported it into his iPad and added some uh, digital highlights. Wow. 
So that's awesome. That's amazing. And how can you buy his paintings? You can go to tomweberart.com. In addition to that, you can go check out his, uh, his concerts on Facebook. Great. And hopefully he'll be at office hours and hours Friday night at 8. Yep. And there's another painting, another drawing of his, right? Yep. Charcoal. Charcoal, charcoal painting of an Orthodox monk. That's what he named this one. If you go to tomweberart.com, he's got it really uh, nicely segregated into a bunch of categories. Great. Beautiful. Yeah, it's awesome. Who are these happy fellas? Uh, this is from Glenn Costick. The glass blower. He is the glass blower, and these are, uh, he just called them glass faces. They're, they're beads that you can put on a necklace. And I think the next, the next slide is some uh, really ancient ones that are Phoenician glass that are 2,000 years old. This, this isn't, he doesn't own these. These are from, this is a picture. Of, these are something the stole from the museum, right? Yeah. Yes. But we were, big, you and I were part of that heist, I believe. I'm not sure what you're talking you're about. You're the master of disguise, as I remember. But I'm winking at you. Oh, okay. Okay. And I hear the bullfrogs <laughs> in the background. Yep. The tree frogs are going nuts. Oh, those are tree frogs. Yep. All right. And let's look at some food. Uh, that is Glenn's fruit, fruit salad from uh, three or four days ago. Wow. Fresh cherries, apricots, white grapes, black grapes, raspberries, blueberries, peach, clementine, and nectarines. Very fresh. Very fresh. I could look Very at that. Very fresh. I think this is going to be problematic for our next guest. What is this? Oh, this is beef and broccoli. It's got well, I can't even tell beef. that joke anymore. Go ahead. <laughs> beef and broccoli with mushrooms from Glenn Costick. And we had, we had one more... Um, activism thing that i wanted to bring up that uh john hayes sent to us okay and that was that uh, june 6th will be the 11th annual national animal rights day great and this yearly event has grown over the years into more of an international animal rights day and it takes place in numerous cities around the world and for more information you can go to the nard.org that's national animal rights day great the nard org and our friend joseph yep joseph brinton jewelry.com if you want sex you gotta pay for it through jewelry it's that joey, simple joey b joey b <laughs> he's you know he's amazing just buy his jewelry and you do have a sopranos quote i would assume right yes i do okay well, very, this is lane's painting his drawing. I think yes. We already saw so, this, but it's still great. We saw it last week, but I wanted to bring it up again this week because I didn't want to be rushed through it. So I'll yeah. bring it up the next show. And it's then, beautiful. And then we'll go through it. It's beautiful. And then um, the uh, Sopranos quote, because Lane wrote some awesome words about that. The Sopranos quote is. Um, now, you know it? that you can't stump me unless you do, but I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good when it comes to Sopranos. I, I have some Jackie Martin things. I'll save that till next okay. time, too. Um, uh, Anthony is a cunt hair away from owning all of Northern Jersey, and I am that cunt hair. Hesh? No. Hang on. Uh, 
You got me. Is it uh, Joey Pants? No. Yeah, go back earlier. Uncle June? Yeah. It's Uncle June. It's season three. Hmm. And is he, who's he saying that to? Bobby Bacala? Who does he say that to? I'm ashamed of myself. I'm not sure, but it was in uh, season three, episode six, entitled oh. University. So it must have been when he brought uh, Meadow up there. And then within, within the following episode or two that he had to deal with that uh, former rat from long ago. I think that was episode one. Uh, season one was where he takes uh, Meadow to look at Bowdoin College. I'm pretty sure. We got, we're got we behind schedule. We'll see you uh, at office hours. Dan Frankenberger yep. in the newsroom. Sorry to keep you waiting. We've been having technical issues all day. Emil Guillermo. I'm sorry, Emil. We're, we're 20 minutes behind. No problem, it's there's no, no problem at all. Now you sound okay. Yeah, we've had audio problems. You know, it's always good to do a podcast with audio problems. <laughs> Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and he is a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Now, the beef and broccoli joke. Yeah, you got me going there, David. You, you're, you're like triggering me, showing me meat. But, but, me- but, but, do you know the 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 beef and broccoli joke that is? I don't know I, if it's I offensive. Do, I do not know that joke. Okay, I'm I, asking. Chinese couple in bed. Yeah. I guess this is offensive. Uh, well, it sounds like it's heading there. Uh, can you make the couple Jewish? No, they have to be Chinese. Uh, well, if they have, if they have to be Chinese, if it's required, then it sounds like you're targeting the Chinese. How offensive is this? <laughs> Do you want to say it now? Do you want, maybe we should talk about it like off mic or something. No, that's a coward's way out. I, I want well, to see yeah, it. but that's the way everyone is now. I mean, you know, I, 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 I mean. It, it would well, be is better. It, is it is is a if the punchline is that Chinese people, the stereotype of Chinese people owning Chinese restaurants, is that a, an offensive stereotype? Well, most of them, I mean, some of them do own their own Chinese restaurant. I mean, if it was owned by white people, it probably wouldn't be very well frequented by by anyone. Right. Even Panda Express is owned by Chinese people. Right. So is it a is it an ugly stereotype to portray a Chinese couple in bed owning a Chinese restaurant? Or is there something that I'm. Well, maybe. All right. They're the owners. Uh, yes. A couple. Well, that's part of the punchline is he asks for sixty nine. Oh, number sixty nine. He says, should we try sixty nine? And she says, you want beef and broccoli. How offensive is that? I mean, that's an immigrant joke, but it's not. Is that would that be column A or column? How B? offensive is that? Well, I, I I'm serious. Would that be column A, column B, or column C? Right. Okay, we have to make sure we have the right. Item. Right. I mean, if you're hitting everybody, yeah. If you're if you're you doing rat tat tat on everybody's ethnicity, yeah. Is, is that a How hateful? About- is that hateful? I'm I'm I'm, I'm not trying to be. Yeah, no, I, I got, look, it's important. We have to have these seminars in like what is hateful. 
I I don't know. I I would think that's fairly inoffensive. Inoffensive. But I might have to turn in my Asian card if I said that. Well, you're making fun. Well, let's discuss this. So yeah, you're yeah. A, a Chinese couple in bed. Husband turns to the wife, says, uh, I want 69. And she says, beef and broccoli. Why do you want beef and broccoli at this hour? So that's the joke. The, the, so the, the stereotype, the cruelty of that joke is that they're immigrants and she doesn't speak English properly. Oh, so I thought they were like college grads. Right. So you're punching language. down at an immigrant, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you made them like MBAs who had decided to, you know, start a restaurant instead of going into venture capitalism. Right. Then, then it would be okay. See, David, this is, this is your genius. We are not telling racist, stereotypical ethnic jokes. We are analyzing them, which makes something that's less funny even less funny. Right, so these jokes That's are... That's your genius. That's your genius. Dave. Right, so those uh, jokes like that have no place anymore in our... Look, you tell me. Uh, look, a lot of these jokes that are marginal and that we set them and they got a little laugh because of the double entendre, right? I, it's, these are double right, entendre Right, and it's also jokes, a 69 right? joke. It's a joke about the not knowing what's... It's right. A, it's a, right. Now, if you, if you said, now, column A, column B, column C... And then C, and then try to make something out of like a C. Oh, that, that, I don't know. You'd have to do something with the, the columns as opposed to the numbers. Right. The, but, you know, Asians love numbers. So that would be kind of like a thing. Okay. They're not necessarily good with words. Well, no, they're great with words. I mean, Amy Tan, Joy Luck Club. But, you know, I think that, that this is important to talk about because we have these bad jokes that we can't tell anymore because of, you know, what used to pass as okay because double entendre, right? Can't do it. Can't, can't do it. And, but we can analyze it. If we analyze it and say, look, this is why this joke is bad. And don't say it ever again. We, we know right. it's bad. It's offensive. And we've done a public service. Right. On the David Feldman show. Right. So the, right. the other thing I've, I know for a fact is if a, if somebody tells you a joke is offensive to them, you don't have the right to say, no, it's not offensive to you. Let me tell, let me tell you why you're wrong for feeling offended. You, you, right. You can't, you can't say that because people right. have agency, right? Right. They, they got, they got agency. So in all seriousness, in all seriousness, a joke, that joke is, Verboten? Uh, I just think that you're going to get more groans now, unfortunately, and you're going to get a lot of people who are going to be, um, I think we're at a stage now where on these double entendre jokes, you're going to get a lot of the double entendre of 69 or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, if it was, just, if it was that, I mean, I, that's why I said, if you made it like, uh, like you have to elevate these people. They can't be immigrants. They got to be like MBAs, right. you know, who decided to drop out of the VC class and start their own. So you can't make fun. The reason that joke is offensive is you're making fun of people who've just arrived in America and they don't speak the language properly. That that, that could be one. Right. But like I said, uh, people people are gonna. We, we have to have a kind of enlightened sense of this. 
and we want to believe in free speech and we want to th this is actually the way to tell a bad offensive joke you say okay i'll say i'll say a bad offensive joke and then we enter into this prolonged very unfunny debate right that that is interminable and people say oh god i wish you hadn't said it and okay. then we both end up saying we should never have said it and then we both learned the lesson but we we haven't gone after each other with fists and you know we've 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 moved beyond the idea of punishment revenge and criminalization for the bad joke which i think is important because everyone wants to dump on anyone who uh, you know, if you say something like, say, take a, a sex joke. And if you say something that's bad, they'll come after you like you're Harvey Weinstein. Or they'll come after you like, you know, you actually, you know, we're doing something that deserves punishment. I think people who are woke need to be woker and go beyond punishment, go beyond revenge, go beyond the criminalization of these things and and try to try to come you know, write a new act. Understand. Write a new act. Oh yeah, yeah. They they could write a new act. <laughs> right, but I don't. I don't want to write. This is the argument. Uh, Ethan Hershenfeld was talking about this last week on the show. That so much of comedians complaining about the cancel culture is their jokes are getting groans, and they're just tired jokes. But they fall back on well, it must. Ooh, they're canceling. They're you know they're they're hissing a joke because I made fun of my. You can't even make fun of your wife anymore. No, times have changed, and people don't want to hear jokes about wives. It's not a, not cancel culture. It's hackneyed. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah I mean, it. That's Ethan Hershenfeld. Right. I agree with him. But it's requiring all all of us who want to delve into this sort of thing where we want to crack crack wise, crack funny, crack a joke. We've got to be better. And the times are changed. And uh, I, I just, I, I was hanging around with some younger people. Uh, I don't mean people in their fifties. I mean, really younger people. And like they, have, 40s. they have, they have different ideas in their about 40s. what's funny now, David. And I, I just want to tell you that it's a, uh, it's opening for me, but but in the name of transformative justice, as long as we go beyond punishment and revenge and criminalization and we try to work together and really have a discussion about this, like I said, telling that bad 69 broccoli joke was not as you know, unfunny as our, anal our analysis of, of that joke, which should get us back on the right let me just say to Professor Harvey K, we had technical problems today and we're running about 10 minutes behind. Is that OK? Oh, and you're having technical problems. Huh? You have to unmute yourself. I feel bad. That's too bad. I was, I was kind of tired, but um, can, can you give us 10 minutes? I can give you I can give you 10 minutes in 10 minutes if you want. I you're, don't want to get in. I don't want to get in anybody's do you way. Mind, we had technical problems. Do you, do you mind coming back in 10, 15 minutes? Uh, yeah, for 15. How's that? Okay, thank you. I apologize. Okay. Great. I'm, That's I'm it. No, no, don't apologize. We've had, okay. tech, we had audio problems all night tonight. Uh, so, hey, hey, David, you know, mentioning the broccoli joke. Though. <laughs> Wait a second. I, I got what I wanted. I, but do you want to? Well, no, I just wanted to say, I want to say, you. 
as you were triggering me with the broccoli and the beef, I kept thinking about how I really am so anti-meat now. It would it didn't used to be that way. You know, you knew me as a meat eater back in the eighties, but right. boy, I was watching the Indianapolis five hundred and I was thinking, would it kill them to make the Indianapolis five hundred vegan? They could easily make it vegan. When when the winner wins, don't give him the bottle of milk. Give him a bottle of oat milk or something. For goodness sake. Do you watch do you watch that stuff? Well, I only I've learned I wish I to could. only watch I wish I the could. last I've learned to only watch the last three laps. You know, I, I the last three laps are kind of exciting because either the race is already done or they're something's going to happen and something someone could win it on the last lap that's when it's exciting but you know what when you know. i one of the things i realized early on in my life is everybody is brilliant everybody is smart it's where they choose to channel their brilliance and i've sat with friends who understood what the what you know what the indianapolis 500 is and i went wow i don't even know where to look and yeah, you, well, you're the brilliant. Indianapolis 500 is exciting. They they go in an oval now. I don't know what I don't. If, but if you if you want to watch real racing, you got to watch those speed speed motorcycles like MotoGP, where where guys are like got this big bike, 300 pounds, like skinny guys like me. They're they're like you know turning around like this and they're dragging. That's exciting, and I don't know how they don't kill each other. But that's more exciting than guys who are actually in a car. Right. I mean, it's a little more sleek than NASCAR. NASCAR is like, oh, it's like driving. Actually, not like driving in L.A. because there's too much traffic in L.A., but driving, you know, on the freeway somewhere. Right. There's a great episode of The Crown where Queen Elizabeth realizes she's an effing idiot. Yeah. And so she brings in a tutor. And the more she's being tutored, the more she realizes that... You know, if you're the Queen of England, you're uneducated and you're a product of incest and you're barely hanging on to uh, your genetic code. You're, you're, you know, you're I, I have a beef with the Queen of England. She sanctions pigeon racing and that's a bad thing. Well, and horse racing. So the and end horse of- racing, too. And this week, the Belmont's coming up. And if you don't believe that it's a rigged race. You know, look at the guy who won the Kentucky Derby and is. Well, we'll get to, to that in a second. The, the point I, in the Crown, the 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 tutor was, you know, he's realizing that the Queen of England is a moron, and he's trying to make her feel good. And then he says he wants to bet on like the Ascot, some race. Ascot, I've been to Royal Ascot, and she starts, you know, giving him a fire hose of knowledge about horse racing, and the message is, you know, we're all brilliant. Some of us are brilliant in some things, and you know, our inbred queen is brilliant about horse racing, which doesn't help anybody. Go ahead. Horse racing is evil. It's evil. Uh, the Belmonts on Saturday, and they, they can't figure out how to punish Bob Baffert, the trainer who drugged his horse, got caught. The, the horse Medina Spirit got the, the second positive. Uh, back. And so there's no doubt the horse was drugged. Baffert did it. Hall of Fame uh, trainer. They banned him from Churchill Downs, but they did not disqualify the horse yet. So 
I don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of people, betters, have sued uh, the Churchill Downs and tr they've, they've sued Kentucky because it makes a big difference. If the horse was drugged who won and comes down, a lot, millions of dollars will change hands. And it may take a suit, and some suits have already been filed. So we'll see what happens. But don't even waste your time with the Belmont this Saturday. Although there might be some protests. I don't know if there should be. Because, you know, something uh, that seems kind of insignificant, like horse racing, this has been a kind of, a, um, uh, you know, the bailiwick of animal rights ever since the SPCA, you know, banned uh, carriage horses back in, the, back in the old days in New York. We still have them. Well, I know they 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 couldn't get them off. What is they, yeah? We're, because we're, De Blasio backed off, right? And they they weren't able to like ban them totally, and now they're back there. So I I'm I'm just saying it's an ongoing issue, and and they're in every city. You go to some place, and you know uh, a city's uh, tourism department thinks, oh, you know, we we should be just like New York and have carriage horses. So you can go to Nashville, and they have carriage horses in Nashville for goodness sakes. Hey, look, while we're let's let's talk about Tulsa and reparations. Well, I want to talk about Tulsa because, you know, I, I drove through Tulsa. I had no idea. In 1989, this is how effective, uh, you know, the Republicans don't have to ban critical race theory. We have ignorance running through uh, our school system as it is. Uh, but I think it's ridiculous that, uh, you know, like Pence tonight calls uh, – did you see he gave a speech last night? He said systemic racism is a left wing myth. Yeah. So he's this is their this is their issue. It's 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 really painful because it comes on the heels of. You know, well, it could be, you know, they were he should know a bunch of white people came after him with a noose. Yeah, so, well, that's so right. He knows I what mean, lynching, they, you know, lynching. It's. It's a real the, thing. Yeah, but for white people more, as well, he almost uh, got lynched. Uh, he he should he should he should know better than to say that there's no racism in America. And also, he, he how dare he say that to when Asian Americans know how systemic racism was from you know Chinese exclusion to the Filipinos got we got dinged with uh, our exclusion act the the 1934 Tidings McDuffie Act um, the internment camp so forth and so on it's systemic racism it's a real thing in America but now see here's here's what's going on we're we're, we're seeing things through this black white paradigm we're forgetting all the other people of color who've been dinged by systemic racism. Look at the immigration laws from the 1924 on, right, until the 1965 Immigration Act. That was certainly systemic racism. And I just think it's, uh, we're, we're asking for another Tulsa all over again when you have these cries saying, oh, let's get rid of this critical race theory idea. No, we need history. We need to end ignorance. I, I just want... The one point about Tulsa, I mean, I want I, I like to talk about reparations, but people people aren't there yet. But maybe they could be for Tulsa because Tulsa is kind of contained there in that that those two days in 1921. But I want to talk about Dick Rowland, the shoeshine guy who uh, kicked off the whole thing. Right. Because they he was they, they connected him to a white woman. It was later, uh, you know, she later uh, recanted. But. It's white. It's this white jealousy. White men got upset because Dick Rowland, the shoeshine guy, 
you know, was supposedly consorting or harassing or doing something with a white woman. You go to Emmett Till, 1955, right? You know, and once again, that's a story that was recanted by the white woman. And Filipinos, 1930, uh, Filipinos, mostly bachelors, working the fields in, in California, consorting, dancing with white women in Watsonville, 1930, Furman Tabera killed in his bunk in a, in, in a field house. I'm telling you, white male jealousy, that's a theme in all of this racism that People shouldn't. I, I mean, this is That's part of the history. Republican Party you know, is consumed by white jealousy, white jealousy, especially white. And, and what are we seeing now? We're seeing white this this white maleness come out. And usually it's expressed with guns. And you look at the San Jose, uh, you know, uh, Valley Transit Authority shooting in San, San Jose last week, a week ago on Wednesday, a white male, 57 you know, two semi, you know, goes off. Uh, two Asians are, are killed, a Filipino and a sick. And if you look at the, all those three uh, big mass shootings since March, Atlanta, Indianapolis and San Jose, those are just three of the many that has that have happened since March. Twelve Asian-Americans dead. And, you know, it, it's just, look, I'm looking at things from an Asian-American lens and I just want to point that out. And this is why the community is concerned. This is why the Asian American community is concerned. Right. So has uh, Tony Hinchcliffe apologized yet? You know, I, I think Tony Hinchcliffe. What is the, what's the story? Why can't he apologize? I, you know, I am not the apology judge for Asian Americans, but if he did come out, I would say, look, he was challenging. He was trying to be shocking and he should, he, I, I would, I would, uh, I would hear him out. I would talk to him, and I would write up what he said. But he hasn't reached out to me. He hasn't reached out to you, right? No, I, I just don't understand saying. why it's so hard. But, but look, people. here's the thing: the reason why no one wants to speak out. I mean, Louis, when he went through his thing, he he made a statement, and then he kind of went away. It's because you can't win, no matter what: racism, sexism, a joke taken out of context or a joke, even if it's not funny, you cannot win in this day because there's no justice, right? We only have people who are looking for punishment and revenge and criminalization. I, I mentioned those three words because it's for real. It's not really the cancel culture. They're looking for punishment and revenge, no matter how small the infraction, because it's all big to people who are. It's because people are suffering and they want to bring some people down well, by any means I necessary. I think, that I don't think some it's a matter people, but I don't think the people, I don't think the misdemeanors, I don't think the misdemeanors destroy anybody's career. Uh, well, I, I, I but, maybe I'm wrong. Know, I mean, you know, maybe we're, we're, that's why Tony doesn't come out. That's why Tony doesn't come out. And it look, if if people were open to and accepting and if it was look if we lived in a world of loving kindness right that would be ideal do i sound like a 60s hippie here like donovan leach look if we were living in a world of loving kindness someone like tony could say what he said and say look i'm sorry uh i didn't mean it and then we could go on right. but we don't we live in this world of punishment revenge and criminalization and 
people are looking to get whoever they can get, high or low. That's the bad thing. And people who are woke should get woker and move beyond. Yes. Move beyond punishment and try to try to how are we going to come together as a as a community, as a as a nation, as a how are we going to understand where we're coming from? But well uh, we're not ready for that woker stuff. No. We're we're like in first stage wokeness, which is like, you know, ravage everything. Yeah, the wrong people are in charge. The wrong people have too much say. That's the problem. Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, but I think I think the 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 lesson with Tony and even with with Louis and all the others who've been it's you know two games two separate things. One okay, is all right, like, your thing yeah, out, and they, one they, is all right. Two separate things. You're right. But the thing with Tony certainly is there, there, you can't win. You cannot win if you come out and say you're sorry. Right. And by the yeah. way, the comedy community is turning on the Peng. Yeah. They're oh, they're turning a, on Dang? He's yeah. a, what's his name? What's his name? Peng, Peng Dang. Right. They're calling him a snitch for releasing the video. Uh, well, you know, a lot of people believe that in, in uh, comedy, like, Hey, you should go to a club and you should be able to say your piece because nothing is ready, right? And you believe this. Nothing is ready until you're ready to put it on a special or put it on tape. But, uh, you know. I think that some things are ready. Some things. I I think it's evidence, right? Here's here's some evidence. Here's some, you know, this guy said it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. But I do know why Tony is not speaking out. It's because you can't win. And anyone who's been in a land or in a, a realm where there is no justice, I mean, there is no ju- people who would listen, who he would talk to. They're not interested in justice. Right. So uh, it's just best to say, to, to shut up and say, okay, um, I'm going to write my next act or I'm going to be like John Mulaney and go yeah. away and then come back. Very good. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And every, uh, yes, go ahead. Oh, and then also people could check out amok.com. I do this live stream. And read them over at ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Did you do your show at the Marsh? I did my show at the Marsh and I uh, talked about... uh, I, I talked about my being a gay driver in uh, Boston in the eighties. A gay you know, driver, I, huh? You you were a gay driver in the. Well, I I drove a, this gay guy in Boston, and he thought I was gay, and I I had to put on a uniform, or at first, and then he saw that I was you know, dark, and he said, "Oh no," because it's usually white guys who took the job, and it was like some kind of fantasy thing, right. and then we drive to the Cape. And then uh, that's where the story sort of goes. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, it was fun. Uh, Monday Night March, I think you can still go. And uh, I think it's still up. The censors haven't taken it down. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. Emil Guillermo, thank you so much. We'll be back with Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky. Thanks, Dave. Harvey J.K. He's got a about Thomas Paine and FDR St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go 
Welcome back to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Well, please let us now welcome Professor Harvey J.K. He is the author of FDR on Democracy and Take Hold of Your History, and Alan, Take Hold of Our History, and Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, and you're with... Somebody I'm somewhere. With, I'm with a group of friends. Can you hear me, David? Yes, you're having a party. I am, and, and this this sitting next to me is actually one of the great activists I know of in the whole country. She's the founder of the DNC Poverty Council, which she had to fight the DNC powers that be to create. Her name is Susie Shannon, and I'm at a dinner party with her. And um, I suppose Susie, say hi. Hi, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Poverty. Affordable housing and to house our unhoused community. Poverty. Profe- yeah. Do you know Professor Harvey J.K.? I don't think Susie does. I do. I've met Harvey. So, Harvey, we've never met in person, have we? No, not, no, no. You're like my best friend of the pandemic, and I've never met you in person. Right. That's why you're best friends. You haven't met yet. Once you meet, and then you got, you got to... Um, I'm having a hard time hearing, so I'll say goodbye to Susie. And just everybody should... You're, now you're muted. You're, I, we can't hear you, Alan. This is one of those days, Professor Harvey J.K. Wow. Okay, you can hear me now, right? Yes. What are they serving? 
everybody should check out the DNC Poverty Council. It is definitely fights the good fight on behalf of everyone in our society. Professor, and really, really, yeah, professor, so it's great stuff. Yeah, Professor Harvey J.K., when did the Democratic Party start caring about poverty and when did they stop? Because nobody talks about the least among us. No, nobody runs for office now saying, boy, you know, they're starving in Appalachia. They have these bloated bellies. You know, the way Bobby Kennedy couldn't believe he saw bloated bellies. Those kids don't vote. But Bobby Kennedy and George McGovern, they said to the Democrats, we have to help people who don't vote. Now it's working families. That's all that matters, not not the poor. When did we stop, the Democrats stop caring about? Stop caring? Um Let's see. Well, let's put it this way. The Democrats really took it on as, a, as an issue in the wake of Michael Harrington's book, The Other America, that had begun as an article, I think, in The New Yorker, possibly. Um, and then uh, so in the 60s, obviously, great, the war on poverty is significant. But of course, the war on poverty is a is a sort of if you like a follow-up to FDR's, FDR spoke of poverty regularly. That, that, that clearly was on his mind. This, uh, you know, the war on poverty. So when did they stop? Um, 1976, maybe, Jimmy Carter? Okay. I see Susie's either agreeing with me or laughing at what I just said. <laughs> Susie, do you get a sense that the Democrats even care about poverty? Well, well, I think it's right because I looked through some DNC platforms from previous years, and I think 76 was when they first put welfare reform into the Democratic National Committee platform. So I would agree that, yeah, it was about 76 that, um, you know, there was this movement away. And then um, with the Clinton administration, um, obviously with the inaction of uh, the, the action on welfare reform um, and a lot of movement away and triangulating, uh, we absolutely, you know, saw a movement away from this. But now we are back on track. Yeah, no. And, and back well, in Susie's the- back on track. I don't know if the Democratic Party is on track to anything right now. Well, Susie, Susie actually had to fight to establish the DNC Poverty yeah. Council. And the word poverty was not being used by the Democratic Party almost at all. I, I wrote for the nation about Susie's efforts to try to achieve the DNC Poverty Council. And um, she was she just stuck with it, stuck with it, stuck with it. She had it. Reverend William Barber spoke at one of the opening events I was at. And it's now embraced because they can't get around it. And also, of course, because poverty is very, very, very real. Well, they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't even put us on the agenda. So I just went ahead and booked uh, a room at one of the hotels, like one of the big meeting rooms at the hotels. So we were going to have it regardless of whether they wanted it or not. So I think they finally just gave in. Yeah, no, this is a this is a true activist hero here, by the way, David. Right. Susie, so do, do you know our friend uh, Joe Sandberg? Yes, I do. No, I drink one thing. Yeah, no. I do. That's like, yeah, a lot of the um, uh, early childhood or, or the um, EITC credit, child tax yeah. credit. Yeah. yeah, he 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 was he was going to enter the presidential race in 2020 simply because he thought not not a one of the Democrats seemed to have poverty on their agenda. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's like over 500,000 people right now who are unhoused in the country, and that statistic comes from before COVID. Um, I live in the homeless capital of the United, of the United States, which is Los Angeles. We have over 64,000 people who are unhoused just in our county. So we've just seen, and there's hundreds of thousands right now who are going to face eviction. Um, it expires this month, doesn't it? has been really helpful so far, but we need to keep it up. And so there's a lot of talk about making a lot of this stuff permanent. And I mean, it really, it took a pandemic for people to understand um, the importance of cash assistance, um, you know, which we saw through stimulus payments, that kind of thing. But yeah, absolutely, you know, we, we need to move in this direction because we've seen um, a massive loss of jobs in our manufacturing base over the decades. Um, that, you know, we're in a lot of trouble here. Um, this, you know, huge disparity between the rich and everyone else. Right. So don't you think, don't you think it's rather bizarre that Biden, you know, the, the Biden folks say that this, uh, the American Rescue Plan is going to end childhood, 50% of childhood poverty? If they can do that, why the, why the fuck don't they end it all? Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Let's end it all. <laughs> we, we really, you know, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We, we really should not have any poverty here. And it's only the disparities that we see between the rich and everyone else that's really exacerbating that. Any coffee, maybe? Espresso, cappuccino? Alan, the audio, is there any way we can turn up the volume a little? Oh, I'm sorry. Why don't you guys, uh, probably not. Um, okay. <laughs> so why don't you guys just talk and I'll chime in when I can. Yeah, and so I, I would Susie. love to have Susie on the show to talk about this because this is, it's the only thing that matters, Professor K. Like, med, you know, Medicare for all and poverty and the people, what, what, what did he say in 33? I see a, a country that's Ill housed, what, what, ill housed, ill closed. One third ill housed, ill fed, ill right, and that was in thirty three. I think it was actually still in thirty seven. He said it. I think I, I see a I, country ill informed. Is all I see. Yeah, ill informed. Yeah, uh, we don't care. I mean, we we don't have any anybody in Congress. I don't think who's poor. Is that? I, I guess they're. Eh, Probably, I, I know Alan Grayson. I don't think I don't think there's. A, I don't think any. They may well be corrupt, but I don't think they're poor. Right, and they don't wear it as a badge of courage. They don't. They, in other words, you don't have anybody running. Like Randy Bryce ran in Wisconsin, and he was a union guy. Oh. Is a union guy, and he oh, no. wore it as a Corey, badge Corey. of honor. No, Corey Bush was. Corey, Corey Bush was unhoused. Um, working a job, living in a car with her children. So she experienced serious poverty. Yes. But now she's a congresswoman. This is, she's a fresh freshman and will you know, she'll find a way, right? To be wealthy. He's muted. You're muted. We used to have politicians with, you know, with holes in their shoes and right. Professor K. Not so much, David. David. Generally, the American political class has been drawn from the upper classes and upper middle classes, professional classes. It's been rare throughout American history. Professor Harvey J.K., are you seeing anything that makes you upset? 
about the Democratic Party. Makes me Party. upset. <laughs> yeah, or you're, you're you're on autopilot and all systems go. Joe Biden, he's the next FDR. I, I, I get a sense. Oh of yeah, that that yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> what is I'm trying, what, to, I'm trying to think of some letters that FDR might stand for other than the president, uh, the 32nd. Is that a 32nd president? Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to find. Let's see, full something. I don't know. Is there anything that you're saying? Actually, you know, it's funny. I did hear I did hear I was in a conversation. I did hear somebody say that I'm misreading what's going on in Washington, that, in fact, his effort to compromise or his willingness to to bring down the tax rate on corporations and all that, that I'm really missing out on what's really going on and what's really going on, I am told, is that he's basically still making it impossible for the Republicans to agree. And now he then can turn to Manchin and Cinema and said, look, I did everything. I did everything. It's your turn now to line up with us as, as Democrats should. I heard Joe, this about I'm, Obama. Alan's shaking his head. No, I, I'm, I'm just telling you. That's what I heard. Yeah. And also, again, I, I'm a bit like a broken record here because I've been doing a bunch of interviews. And I find that Manchin, again, is involved in trying to bring home pork to West Virginia. Yes, he's a highly intractable conservative Democrat. Yes. But cinema, there's not even that logic that's evident. So yeah. how we move her, I don't know, man. We're going we're gonna to have to do a, a, a card trick, a trick of the light or something to get Chris and Sonner to go along with the filibuster. But it's oranges and apples. The, the negotiations around the American Jobs Plan and what's going on are not related to, because they can go to a reconcilable move. Right. Can't do that on the right. social agenda. Yeah, they're 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 moving on that too, I suppose. Yeah. All of the social agenda, the voting rights, et cetera, are completely unattainable yeah. without the right. filibuster being removed. Right. right. Do you and do you see well, I, I'm fully aware N- nothing that I just said is to imply naivete. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, why don't we wrap this up? Because we're having sound issues and this today has been we're gonna chalk today up. Uh, as one for the uh, record books in terms of technical glitches. Uh, what are you well, reading? I feel, like, I feel like a bad kid here. I'm, I apologize for it, but hey, Susie Shannon's great. Check her out on DNC yes. Property Council. Why don't you and Carvey just chat and I'll listen. Okay, and come do the show. What are you reading, Professor K? What am I reading? What are you reading? Yes. For, for... I've been, I, I, may have, I may have said this another time, I can't recall. I'm, I just read two books which is new, actually. I don't haven't read two books lately in right. a while. Uh, one by Josh Hawley. Okay. Yeah. I'm reviewing, I'm reviewing his book, uh, The Tyranny of Big Tech for Jacobin. Right. Okay. But I was, I'm, I was fascinated because I noticed that Amy Klobuchar has a, a book out, similarly on the question of not big tech itself, but on the more general question of monopoly is an anti, the whole operation of the antitrust acts. And I have to tell you that the Holy the book is fascinating because he really wants to be president. And it's, it, I mean, it's not a good book. I definitely will ne- would never recommend anyone read it, but I, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it in terms of his ambitions mm-hmm. and what it's sort of meant to signal. But then all of a sudden I read the, the Klobuchar book very quickly. Um, it's again, I wouldn't recommend people read. It's like, it's a huge volume, half of which is endnotes, And I, you know, it's a typical, it's like a lawyer's writing, but the earlier part of the book is actually 
if she had if she had spoken in the debates in the fashion that she wrote the earlier part of her book, where she recalls her family's roots in the iron range of uh, Minnesota, sort of labor roots. She talks about the struggles of populists and, and others in the late 19th century in the Gilded Age against against literally capitalists. I mean, if she had spoken more like that instead of making it a point of jabbing or taking jabs at, at Bernie, I might actually have thought more of her. But um, it's so it's actually bizarre that I finished reading this book and I thought, wow, if she that other Democrats should learn from her in terms of taking hold of history and reminding people of what uh, what Americans are capable of when they when they gather together in solidarity and struggle against the powers that be and corporate concentration and wealth and so on. It, so I mean, it's curious. I just curious. I just realized something. When I was younger, you couldn't get elected president if you were considered a Washington insider. They wanted somebody. They want you want you had to be a governor of a state to come in and just smash the establishment. You know, Carter, Clinton, Reagan, Reagan. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, they said uh, George Herbert Walker Bush would be unelectable because he was a Washington insider. Uh, w was an outsider. Uh, we wanted outsiders because of people like Amy Klobuchar, who come to Washington purportedly with the best intentions and then yeah. start running as a pragmatist. I can get things done. It won't be what you wanted, but I'll reach across the <laughs> aisle and we'll get something done. It won't yeah. it'll be bad. It will make your life worse. But that's how things uh, that you want an outsider to come in and smash things up like Trump. The Democrats yeah. seem to be fishing f- from uh, the the pool in Washington, D.C. And uh, is it harder now to to be a juggernaut to come to, to take over the Democratic Party than it used to be? Well, you, you, when you have. Look, it wasn't a joke, the Clinton machine. Right. Okay. They came from nowhere. I mean, they they were a juggernaut. They came in and. Yeah, uh, right. And uh, whether Obama was ever a progressive, I don't know. But it was a truly not. I don't even want to use the word disappointing. It was an aggravating administration. The Obama right. administration, not a disappointing. It was an aggravating one. Right. And uh, we have yet to see. Uh, I mean, we know what we, we fear. I f- I'm very, very doubtful that we'll see the kinds of things we need. Look, I mean, what's happening right now is that the the United States is literally hanging in the balance in all this. Okay, it's just hanging in the balance, and I for forty years I figured the Republicans were everything I expected them to be, and the Democrats were truly the worst party, the worst of the two parties, because they were everything they were not supposed to be during those 40 and more years. And then it bre- there was a brief moment where I, I thought, wow, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this Biden administration can do something. But they're neither, they, they don't, he doesn't seem to have, he just doesn't seem to have a minute. He doesn't have it to make things happen. He just doesn't seem to have it, period. Okay. Yeah. 
And but and it isn't just that. I don't I don't know who his advisors are. I mean, we talked on Monday night, and I can tell you that every day that goes by, and I and I see another of his speeches, I want to say, don't ever talk to me again about the soul of America, right? Give me a break, the soul of America, right? Come on. Talk, you can talk to me about the promise of America. That's what I've been trying to do all these decades. But don't talk about the soul of America. That, that's, that's for shit. He doesn't care. Yeah. That, neither one of them, the president and the vice president, they don't care. They don't care about yeah. the poor. They, they well, don't. you know, he, uh, he cares, a lot about, cares a lot about coming across as the, what would you call him, the mourner in chief. Right. If you, you don't have to tell people you care if you actually care. You know, the Republicans are always wearing patriotism and Christianity on their sleeves. They have to remind you that they love this country and that they believe in Jesus because by their deeds, one would think (laughs) they hate America and they don't like Jesus. So when Joe Biden keeps selling himself as this compassionate, caring person, he's... You know, yeah. Yeah. Let's wrap it up. Uh, Professor Harvey J.K., please go by, take hold of our history, FDR on democracy, the fight for the four freedoms. Thank you for doing this. It's Memorial Day week, and everybody's on vacation except me, and everybody's relaxing, and of course. Not uh, me. I've been working. And you've been been doing shows. This I thought we'd, anyhow. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Alan Minsky, have a great meal. Thank you so much, David. See you guys next week. Okay, thank you. We'll be right back to wrap it up. Hit it, Professor, Professor Mike Steinel. Harvey J.K., he's got a lot to say about Thomas Paine. And FDR St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today Harvey J.K.
we're we're gonna do uh, Dave Cyrus next week. Uh, we're having technical issues with our sound, and it would involve rebooting everything and solving it. It would mean not being able to continue to do this live in front of my beloved Zoom family and those of you watching us on YouTube. Should we wrap it up there, Dan Frankenberger, in the newsroom? Are you still there? We have office hours and hours coming up Friday night at 8 p.m. We do this We do this uh, every Friday night at 8 p.m., the first Friday of every month we go 24 hours. And since there's no benefit on Saturday, I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to last longer than 24 hours. It's some of the most brilliant people you will ever meet in your life. Brilliant, brilliant, kind people with a lot to say, like Harvey J.K. as Professor Mike Steinell would say. So we're going to wrap it up. Let me see if I can remember this. I'll do it without Dan Frankenberger. I think he has to get up early tomorrow and go to work. We started the show with me talking about how much I hate my life. Uh, Then we went to Pete Dominic. That was a great, great interview. And then Grace Jackson did an amazing interview with... um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, so I won't do it. And then we had Professor Ben Burgess, I believe, I think. Then we had uh, the Hershenfelds, followed by, I know I'm screwing this up, the Hershenfelds, followed by, that would be uh, hmm, Jim Earl and Martha Previtt and Senator Susan Collins. Then we had the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Then we had Dr. Arnon Dagani, and we had sound problems there. We also had sound problems with uh, Pete Dominic. And then we had the professors, Mary, professors and Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Ian Faluna, Professor Adnan Hussein. Then we had Dan Frankenberger's newsroom. Then we had Emil Guillermo and Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky and Susie from the Poverty Caucus, and we'll try to get her on the show as soon as possible because if we're not talking about poverty in America, we're not talking about anything. It's the most important issue. Why go to Washington, D.C.? Why even vote if you're not trying to help the poor and prevent poverty? The only reason you should be in Washington, D.C. is to buttress the middle class and keep them from falling into poverty and then help the people who are in poverty and pass Medicare for all. Everything else is a waste of time. If you're not doing that, your, your, your life is worthless. If you're in Washington, D.C. And, and you're not helping the least among us, you're, you're on your deathbed. You you will look back at your life, and and realize that you accomplished nothing, other than feathering your own nest, and leaving some money to your idiot kids who are going to piss it away 
If you're not helping the poor and keeping the middle class from falling into poverty and you're in D.C. and you're doing something else, go F yourself. I'm David Feldman. I'll see everybody Friday night at 8 p.m. for office hours and hours. Remember, I'm not going to be able to do it. I was one day I'll be able to do this the way I want to, where it's like slick and professional and people are going to go, wow, wow, he's uh, he's gotten good at what he does. But that ain't happening tonight. Nope, I can't find it. Nope, sorry. Thank you all, uh, as I'm looking for the files, <laughs> thank you all uh, for coming uh, uh, to the Zoom room. I can't do this without you. You lift me up, especially on days like today where I'm... Uh, I could barely get the show produced. So if you'd like to join us in the Zoom room, go to my website and fill out the form. And if you'd like to attend office hours, also go to my website uh, to to attend office hours. And uh, while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. All right. Thank you all. Let's see if I can do it. Thank you all. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a